This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back for a special spooky season episode of art of darkness the podcast about the dark side of creativity we're covering one of the darkest or darker at least ones of these kevin how are you never better it's never. almost halloween mm. yeah, i'm a halloween i'm a halloween respecter yeah you got a costume I, lined up you know i don't but i have children and yeah. uh it, it's really all about the kids it's it all about the the trunk or treat trunk yeah. or treats and yeah. I'm seeing, I'm taking my my older daughter to see Tool on Halloween. Ooh. Uh, so Ooh. that is going to be a bucket list type thing. Yeah, she became a, cool. she turned 15. She became a metalhead on nice. her own. And dad gets to take her to see, to see Tool on Halloween. Yeah. So here we are. That's, That's going to be, be a lot of fun. She's going as, uh, as Ellie from the last of us which i respect okay okay yeah and i, I yeah. had to buy her costume and then you know I, and I said do you need a machete do you yeah. need a shotgun no. <laughs> no well correct me if i'm wrong i don't know the last of us isn't ellie just like a girl in a normal outfit Yes, yes, yes. Okay, but there okay. are special okay. little artifacts. She's okay. like, you know, but you can yes. there are identifiable things. That is really funny because one yeah. of the one of the items on, on her list uh yeah. was like a like a $70 backpack on Amazon. And I'm like, do you need this specific backpack to realize this? Like, because <laughs> sweetie, yeah. honey, yeah. I will yeah. get you a $70 backpack. But right. we're going to shop around for that. Right. We're going <laughs> to, I'd like that to be like, what if the apocalypse happens? Have, yeah. have in, 
in economy, there's nothing in this economy, it could right. happen. And I want I actually would like to go to the, the military surplus, the army surplus store, and get you the apocalypse survival backpack for $70. Sounds good. Yeah. I well, do you, do you, you're you're going as a podcaster again, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, that's what that's what I'm doing. Yeah. No, I hand out the treats. Maybe I maybe I'll put on I, I tend to have I've some years in the past, my my wife is a very talented face painter. It's not really what she does or anything, but she just has this skill. So I've had her do me up before. A good one to do, I've done a couple times because I got this big bald dome, uh, is you just doing two very realistic looking eyes on your forehead. It's a very unsettling effect. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we might do we might do that. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Very good. All right. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And who are we have you already said who we're doing today? I, I haven't actually pod? said. No, we're covering and if, if you clicked play you probably know, but we're covering Edgar Allan Poe. Oh. Yeah. That's a big one. I am excited. This is good. big air. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't wait. What do you yeah. what do you have lined up for us, Brad? Oh boy. Well, we're gonna. I mean, we, like we always do, Honor of Darkness. We're gonna tell the whole story. We're gonna dip into you know not every bit of work that he wrote, but some of the key stuff, some of the classics that people are ge generally familiar with, and then some of the stuff that maybe you weren't quite aware that he wrote. I, I think um, I, I'm not sure about you, Kevin, but my introduction to Edgar Allan Poe came in two forms when I was a young. A young buck. It came through the the uh, Treehouse of Horror uh, on the Simpsons Halloween special when they did an adaptation of of the Raven, and it came through uh, reading three or four of these stories in class in high school. That's how I got introduced to Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know how. Do you remember how Poe came into your? I think I acquired Poe cognizance, Poe consciousness, the same way that every American lad or lassie of our generation did through popular media. Yeah. Uh, and, and not just The Simpsons. I, I think probably every single cartoon we watched did a little weird Poe ripoff. Yeah. yeah like yeah. Looney Tunes would even, I imagine, maybe they have the Nevermore, you know, the Raven. Right. I mean, it's part of the folklore. It's for, it's like a level of folklore, yeah. uh, Poe. And then, of course, in high school, you're subjected to the the Telltale Heart and yep. maybe the Fall of the House of Usher yep. uh, and a few yep. other stories. I yep. was never gaga for mm -hmm. Poe. I never thought, oh, I'm going to seek these out and read more of these. Uh, yeah. But that may have just been because of the time in my life I was exposed to it. I, it was certainly a case of when we were made to read them in high school, feeling that ah, this isn't that much of a chore, but also right. I, I don't get it. Sure. Sure. And I think, I think if you're not already on the Poe train, I think during this episode, even if you don't necessarily fall in love with the particular story we talk about, I think you'll, what I want to convey to people in this episode is he is arguably the most important, depending on what you mean by important, American writers in American literary history. And he was some kind of mad genius. I, I mean, the things that he wrote to us because they've been adapted, because they've been reconfigured and put he, parts of them have been put in, you know, The Simpsons, and Looney Tunes and whatever, you kind of forget that oh, this guy came up with this stuff on his own and he has like seven or eight or 10 or 12 
narrative tropes that he basically invented that are continuously used. So uh, that's the kind of I want to get that impression to you. I also want to convey the fact that we need to to start with the opening question. Well, we we do need to get further. Let's do this. I mean, Kevin. Oh, by the way, I'm Brad Kelly at Brad Kelly on Twitter. This is Kevin Kautzman at Kautzmania on Twitter. Hit us up. Follow Art of Dark Pod at Art of Dark Pod as well. But the question, the opening question, which we always do or try to, uh, Kevin, what do you know about Edgar Allan Poe? All right. So I know what I've already said in terms of my own exposure and kind of the way that Poe exists in the American psyche at a level of like a folkloric level. Um, I know he is associated with Balmer, Baltimore, Mm -hmm. uh, heavily and... Mm -hmm. Much beyond that, uh, are we talking about the 1880s? Earlier. Uh, earlier, 1840s. It's earlier than I thought. Yeah, he dies in 1849. 1849. Okay, all right. So, yeah, clearly I'm wildly off the mark. I was so too. I, when, before the when, Civil War, yeah. Yeah, when I started this, I assumed that he was like alive during the Civil War, and that's not true at all. So, okay, yeah, yeah that's, that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, about Art of Darkness, we don't mm-hmm. always pose as the absolute experts at everything. <laughs> right, get things right. wildly wrong. Like, for example, yeah. Kevin, 40 years off of, of the Poe the po timeline. But that's part of the fun of the show. That's the franchise of this show. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think in this case, it actually tells us something. Because when we think about the stories and what he was doing, we cheat him forward in history a little bit. And we're going to see why that is. I can imagine why, because of mm-hmm. the outsized influence. Uh, I know that Wallabeck wrote, uh, did Wallabeck write a book on Lovecraft? No, he Wallabeck wrote he, a he, book on Lovecraft. Yeah. He wrote a book on Lovecraft. He probably, he may have written something about Poe. Poe was hugely important to the French symbolists and uh, Baudelaire, who Baudelaire is like the 19th century Wall- Wallabeck. So, yeah. Okay, well, that was that was what I was going to say, is I, mm-hmm. I think that he, he has like, among the French, he has an, an outsized reputation. Uh, and be you're right. Beyond that, uh, I really don't know much about Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm I'm excited to learn along cool. with our with our audience. Yeah, yeah. No, this is yeah. this is going to be a good one. I think. Uh, and one thing, he's a perfect subject for this show. I mean, the 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 pr- promise of the show is we're trying to long term. We're trying to understand. Uh, what is create what is creativity why do creative people often so often have troubled lives what is it about the relationship is there any relationship and in poe i think we're going to see not only a very troubled man a very talented man a very influential man but we're also going to see the fact that these things are, are they're not separate they're not isolated from each other he is the forerunner of the troubled writer uh uh cliche i mean there weren't before poe there weren't a whole lot of like down and out alcoholic writers that you would know about it's just they're just not that many of them um for whatever reason uh and i think that's interesting there's a way in which there's a the he, he not only he not only influenced in several different genres and subgenres as we're going to see but he also changed our impression of what a writer is as a figure in for good or ill you know um mm. so i also one last thing i maybe know about him is i feel like he was unlucky in love 
I don't know that his. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're gonna get to that. Right. Hmm. We're gonna actually in in the after dark for Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash darkpod, where we do our our after dark episodes for our beloved patrons. Uh, we're, one of the things we're gonna talk about is uh the time that a I don't know if you would call it quite a love affair where Poe's relationship with women not only got him in trouble, but basically got him booted out of the New York literati. Ah, uh, we're going to we're going to tell that story. In the I, I'd like to I'd like to imagine that Poe was the literary it girl of his time. <laughs> he was. He actually was ah, for about oh, good. six oh, months in 1845. That- that's the uh, of the ball. as long as anybody can stand to be yeah. the bell of the ball. And <laughs> right. it right. coincides with how long everybody else can stand it. That's it's right. Very, uh, very thin, thin window there. I am Indeed. excited. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Don't sleep on the Patreon. Every episode, bonus content after dark. Uh, yeah. Brad's going to talk about some since, extra juicy stuff. Since we're, mm-hmm. since we're saying the after dark, the, another thing we, we always have at least one thing we're going to talk about, but another thing we're going to talk about is Poe's, weirdest most prescient prescient story that unless you're a total poe head you have probably never heard of mm. so we'll unless talk you're about that as a well. total poe boy poe boy yeah unless you're a po- <laughs> unless you're a poe boy you probably don't know yep. anything about yep. this story yeah i mean yeah and i mean so we usually do housekeeping at this point we will not belabor it if you want to support the show patreon.com slash art of dark pod you get the bonus after dark you get access to the book club Aaron Gwynn is going to be joining us for the Blood Meridian Patreon Book yes. Club special. That's coming up fast. It's almost yep. November. That's going to yep. be in it's December. December, yep. 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 Don't sleep on that. He's also going to come and join us for a very special Beckett darkroom. Uh, so I'm excited for that. <laughs> That's, That's going to be, be fun. Yep. Uh, one one last time, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. We also have a telegram, uh, telegram channel. That's fun. People like getting in there. You listen to this episode about Poe. You, you're not sure. You you want to be a real po boy? You got to get into, you got to get into the Telegram. T.me slash Art of Dark Pod. We have a nice little community there. Uh, you could about imagine what a chat room full of you know 150, 160 uh, Art of Darkness listeners sounds like. If that sounds like fun to you, get in there. Uh, what else? Twitter uh, uh, yeah. at Art of Dark Pod, and we're also on YouTube. Which is fun. I think people are used to our faces by now, Brad. Yeah. So maybe the worst is behind us. Uh, Yeah. At first, everybody was like, you don't look like how I imagined you. And it was like, well, sorry, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's always a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's always an odd thing. Do I look better or worse? Like, yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, and, And I just, before we get into the episode proper, let me just say too, we appreciate all of our listeners. We really, really, really appreciate getting feedback. We appreciate hearing from you in the telegram, hearing from you in the Patreon chat room. We're, we're, we have an email artofdarkpod at gmail.com. You want to suggest a subject. You have thoughts that maybe you want to share with us. You have some ideas. We get something wrong. We want to hear about it. And yeah, uh, we say in the definitely intro, we're very if, online. We, yeah. if we get a factual thing wrong, I, I would like I would like to hear that. That's always interesting to me because we do our darndest. Sometimes you can get something. Honestly, I've come across this in a biography that's wrong. You'll read a biography and then read someplace else. You're like these two don't line up. I'm not sure which of these is right. Um, so that can that and and then other times you just make mistakes. So it is good to mm-hmm. it is good to hear that kind of thing for sure. All um, right. Quick thing on sources. My primary source is Poe, his life and legacy by 
Jeffrey Myers. Jeffrey Myers also wrote the uh, Joseph Conrad biography that I use. So, so we're, he's a great he's a great biographer, and this is this is a good read if you if you want to dive deeper. This is probably a great place to start on the life and legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. Other sources I'll read as I come to it. Um, I think to kind of launch into it, I'm going to read, and I, I'm going to try to make the argument. I, I made a pretty bold claim early that he is. Poe is maybe the most important American writer. If you think talk about if importance is about influence, um, I think there's a strong argument here that Poe among the Americans is as important as anybody else. And I'm going to try to make that argument. Melville, Poe, Melville, uh, who else? Hemingway, Hemingway now. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we're in uh, thin air up there. Yeah, very rarefied air. Mm -hmm. A handful. And, and you know, I'm not. I guess more than anything, I'm saying he's in the running. I don't really like most best that kind of thing necessarily, but he's certainly you can't understand American literature if you don't have some sense of who this guy was. Um, so let me read a little bit from this biography, this great Jeffrey Myers biography, and just this will give us a help us get a sense. <clears throat> Quote. This celebrated delinquent became the saddest and strangest figure in American liter literature. Socially dislocated, emotionally starved, and torn in spirit, he kept no diaries, had no intimate friends, and confided in no one. Poe's strange, melancholy loneliness, his obsession with plagiarism, his sensitivity to criticism, his frequent requests for money, his threats of rash behavior, his overweening pride, his humiliating self-abasement, and his compulsive self-destruction all contributed to his caustic and corrosive character. Yet a sense of social grievance, his brooding temperament, his fecklessness, his excitable, imperious nature were balanced by his Castilian courtesy, polished manners, enormous erudition, formidable, formidable conversational abilities, and indescribable personal magnetism. The life of the wild, eccentric, audacious, tortured, horror-haunted, sorrowing, beauty-loving Poe was defined by the unbearable tensions in his paradoxical character. He was a Virginia gentleman and the son of itinerant actors, the heir to a great fortune and a disinherited outcast, a university man who had failed to graduate, a soldier brought out of the army, a court-martialed cadet. Later in life, he would become a husband with an unapproachable child bride, a brilliant editor and low-salaried hack, a world-renowned but impoverished author, the fiancé of two women who would not marry him, a normally temperate man and an uncontrollable alcoholic, a rationalist with a mystical cast of mind, and a materialist, a materialist who yearned for a final unity with God. Okay. All right, now... Open door for Jeffrey Meyer. Is it Jeffrey yeah. Meyer, the biographer? Jeffrey Myers. Biographer? Yeah. Myers. Myers yeah. Yep. Open door to come on the pod any anytime. That is a yeah. very well written couple of paragraphs it's, there. It's, and it's good. Yeah. Let, let me say you don't ever really want to be called feckless. No, it's one of the it's actually one of those like inserts insults that's worse than it seems at first. <laughs> yeah. You want to be known for your feck. Yeah. I yeah, you know, be a be very be a fecker. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so I'm going to read a couple other things because I want to paint a picture of the various people that he influenced. So here's from D.H. Lawrence. People probably at least know the name D.H. Lawrence. Quote, Poe is absolutely concerned with the disintegration processes of his own psyche. As we have said, the rhythm of American art 
art activity is dual. One, a disintegrating and sloughing off of the old consciousness. Two, the forming of a new consciousness underneath. Fenimore Cooper has the two vibrations going on together. Poe has only one, only the disintegrative vibration. This makes him almost more a scientist than an artist. Moralists have always wondered helplessly why Poe's morbid tales need have been written. They need to be written because old things need to die and disintegrate, because the old writer's psyche has to be gradually broken down before anything else can come to pass. Man must be stripped even of himself, and it is a painful, sometimes a ghastly process. Poe had a pretty bitter doom, doomed to seethe down his soul in a great continuous convulsion of disintegration and doomed to register the process and then doomed to be abused for it when he had performed some of the bitterest tasks of human experience that can be asked of a man. Necessary tasks, too, for the human soul must suffer its own disintegration consciously if ever it is to survive. But Poe is rather a scientist than an artist. He is reducing his own self as a scientist reduces a salt in a crucible. It is an almost chemical analysis of the soul and consciousness. Whereas in true art, there is always the double rhythm of creating and destroying. This is why Poe po calls his things tales. They are a con concatenation of cause and effect. His best pieces, however, are not tales. They are more. They are ghastly stories of the human soul in its disruptive throes. So I keep that in mind, this, 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 the headier take on, as we talk about stories like the pit and the pendulum and the, and the, 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 um, the telltale heart. Um, here's a little bit from, uh, the writer and thinker, Paul Valerie, Valerie, how do you say it? Valerie? That's way too American. I don't yeah. know. I would say, yeah. I would say Valerie. Yeah. That's how I say it in my head. I just, I have this feeling that somebody out there has a much more sophisticated pronunciation. We have a, <laughs> between the two of us, we have a serious dearth of French. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we really do. Yeah. That is yeah, a gap. We really do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's, here's what he had to say about, um, uh, Poe, um, and partially how the, the poet and writer Baudelaire thought of Poe. <clears throat> uh, Poe is a demon of lucidity, a genius of analysis, and an inventor of the newest, most seductive combinations of logic and imagination, of mysticism and calculation, a psychologist of the exceptional, a literary engineer who studied and utilized all the resources of art. Okay, Poe was also a direct influence on Dostoevsky. When we, which we can see in a couple places that are are fairly clear, we can see in Notes from Underground. Right, Notes from Underground is narrated by a sort of deranged, uh, morally bankrupt narrator. That was Poe's specialty. Um, we also just see like it. our show. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. Yes. I, I didn't realize this about the influence on Dostoevsky. That is, yeah. that's why. Yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah, and I'm going to read you a bit. In later on, I've got a space for it that is going to seem ex very similar to the moment in Crime and Punishment when the main the the, the protagonist um, chops the land the the pawn lady with an axe, like that's taken right from Poe almost, and, and, and not to discredit Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is untouchable, uh, uh, of right? course, but right. but everything kind of comes from somewhere. And and Dostoevsky was hugely influenced by Poe. In fact, was he reading Poe in in English? Um, Dostoevsky. I, I think. I, he, I I don't know. Yeah, I would have to. 
we'll figure it out when yeah. we get to the, Do- yeah. the Dostoevsky yeah. episode. Um, mm. At one point, when Dostoevsky was at the height of his fame in Russia, he wrote an essay on Poe, which eventually led to Poe selling hundreds of thousands of copies in Russia. Right. So, yeah. Wow. So Poe. So Dostoevsky brought Poe to Russia, essentially. Um, Poe was a profound influence on the English aesthetes, uh, Rossetti, Pater, and of course, Oscar Wilde, who's the portrait of the of Dorian Gray. There's nothing more. Nobody wrote anything more like Poe that wasn't actually Poe than the portrait of Dorian Gray. And, and Wilde was one of our early episodes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Wilde was one of the key episodes that helped us put together what this podcast was yeah, going I to be. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Because when yeah, we started, sure. we didn't realize. In any case, don't stop listening to this episode, yeah. but do go back and listen to listen to the Wild episode oh, if you have. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar Wilde, one of the most fascinating people who ever lived as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. And 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 Portrait of Dorian Gray, not only does it feel like a Poe story, it may have in fact been inspired by a short story of Poe's called The Oval Portrait not suggesting any kind of plagiarism here again but like there is a lineage that oscar wilde comes out of and poe is there and and he and his contemporaries all celebrated poe um poe was a major influence on robert louis stevenson who borrowed extensively from poe when he wrote dr jekyll and mr hyde basing it loose partially taking some things from a story called william wilson and also treasure island um, Poe has a couple of seafaring stories, one of them, one of which we're going to talk about at length. Um, ditto for Rudder, uh, Rudyard Kipling, who said, quote, my own personal debt to Poe is a heavy one. Um, and Poe and uh, Kipling borrowed both plot lines, um, a story about a haunted horse and a story about a murder by an orangutan. So these are not like vague, like Poe wrote a story in which an orangutan murders somebody. And Kipling wrote a story where it rang. It's not. They're, they're pretty. Those are pretty close to each other. <laughs> um, Conrad was also hugely influenced by Poe. Um, we, uh, you know, we talked in the Conrad episode. We made a kind of an argument that Conrad was one of the first writers to be sort of against progress writ large. Poe is a precursor to that in some ways that I think we're going to see as this episode unfolds. Um, Heart of Darkness certainly works to evoke the same kind of horror that Poe works for at in his finest moments. Um, James Joyce to James Joyce, Poe was quote the high priest of the modern schools, and he alludes to Poe's work a dozen times throughout his multiple books. Um, Melville was probably influenced by Poe, though we don't have any kind of correspondence to that effect. Fitzgerald's uh, Diamond as Big as a Ritz was influenced by the fall. Was was like. I think Fitzgerald may even had a letter to this effect, was influenced by the fall of the House of Usher. uh, Nabokov's Lolita was originally going to be titled The Kingdom by the Sea, which is a line from Poe's final poem, Annabelle Lee, about his child bride. Whoa. Right. Uh, <laughs> Poe, uh, yeah. Yeah. Lolita, Lolita was nearly called. I'm a Poe boy. I'm a Poe. I stand Edgar Allan Poe. Right, right, Can you believe right. it? Yeah, right. Yeah. I th- probably, is... probably Lolita is a better title. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Certainly is. Yeah. I had um, no idea the influences were this. It's, it's vast. huge. I had no See, idea. Th- this is where, like, this is my trouble because of how it was introduced. Like I said, through that that great. If you've never seen it. Google the Simpsons. I posted a link in the telegram t.me slash art darkpod. Simpsons adaptation of Poe's The Raven, his famous poem. 
and that was my introduction. And so for me, Poe is always a kind of an old timey sort of like almost cliche kind of thing. Right. And and as I'm going through this and I'm reading some of the stories again, some of them I'm reading again, some of them are new. You kind of realize like this guy was a true original. There was no you know what I mean? He came from a lineage, but there are some things he did that nobody had ever even thought to do before. Um, Love it. Did Freud have anything to say about Poe? Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. When we come around to the Freud episode and do it, I, I might put a pin in my brain to come back and think about it because, you know, it's so essential to think about like how much of an influence Freud is on everything around us at all times Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how he was influenced by literature. Right. Right. So, yeah, you know, there were psychologists uh, before Freud. He just kind of codified it. Well, and it is interesting that Poe, I'm not necessarily saying he was the first, but he is maybe the earliest um, exemplar that we still talk of, of a of a writer writing a narrator who's crazy. Right. Where the, the, the person narrating is actually insane. Um, that's uh, interesting, right? Such a fun choice. Where, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you cannot trust this narrator. And I'm going to put you right into the narrator's head. Right. And there's nowhere else to go because you're just in their head. There is a and sense sometimes in those stories where you feel trapped in this person's consciousness. It's great. I don't want to hijack the, the main episode here, so mm-hmm. I think we'll save it for the after dark. But I do want to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, yeah. Let's do that in the after dark. On the after dark, yeah. Brett. Yeah, Go on. yeah, yeah, I like it. Um, let me give you. A, I'm going to read a little bit more from here, and then we're going to get into the actual bio. We're going to go back to his birth and all that. <laughs> Again, from the Jeffrey Myers bio- biography. Quote: Poe was the first major American writer whose personal reputation influenced the reception of his work. He was also the only 19th century American writer whose poems and stories were valued more highly in Europe than in his homeland. These two facts were closely closely related. The scandalous reputation that began in Poe's lifetime was fostered by his literary literary executor and editor, Rufus Griswold. Remember that name, Rufus Griswold, um, who insisted that Poe was a vicious man and lacked moral principle in his writing. At the same time, he argued, confusing the man with the work, the creator of hallucinating murders must himself be evil to have so evil an imagination. In mid-century America, this was unfortunately a powerful argument and it has proved an enduring one. You imagine you're reading all these stories and they're little romances and little adventure stories. And then you flip the page and it's the black cat by Edgar Allan Poe. And you're reading this thing. And suddenly Edgar, this narrator who's saying, I did this. I thought this. I said this um, murders his wife. And it's sort of like and it says Edgar Allan Poe at the top. And it's it's a little disturbing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. So let's let's. Let's go back to the beginning with Edgar Allan Poe and let's figure it, out. Who it's this very guy interesting was because the the moral panics go on; they just have a different shape now. It's they, just about they, different stuff. Yeah, this is about different stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 Now we'll talk about. We'll, yeah, we'll talk about Killers of, of the Flower okay. Moon. Okay, uh, great. Yeah, yeah great. later. I still haven't seen it, so don't spoil it. I'm I'm willing to get like spoilers. <laughs> okay. The okay. Back, okay. Back. We'll we'll figure it out on the after yeah. dark. All right, but this Got is it. this is Poe time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's right. we're in That's Poe right. Town now. But yeah. listen, I think you've done a fabulous job at the top of this episode of making the case to to get to listen to the rest of this episode yeah. so you can understand this man's life because this this influence is 
incredible and it's, it's huge it's yeah it's, it's, because anybody it's it's like yeah. yeah it's it's pretty it's it's outsized in a way yeah for sure yeah so thank you yes we're gonna and we're gonna tell the story we're gonna say how he got there what were his tenants and you know people are familiar with the pit and the pendulum and the telltale heart there are several different poses in writing and we're gonna see all of them um so Poe is born in 1809, but we're going to go start in 1775. 1775, Poe's grandfather, David Poe, moves to Baltimore with his family. They'd been settled in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for the last 25 years after emigrating from the bog farms of Dring, Ireland, when the boy was just seven years old in 1750. The bog farms? Yeah, there's farms in boggy country. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's not good. You don't want to bog when you're trying to farm. Doesn't um, sound. I've never heard of a bog. It doesn't sound ideal. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, it's not yeah. great. Um, David, this is Poe's grandfather, uh, becomes this, an assistant deputy quartermaster in John uh, Captain John McClellan's company in 1778. He's authorized to make purchases for the American Army. He was well known enough uh, that. Uh, in 1824, when General Lafayette, and this, we're not going to talk about the Revolutionary War, but when General Lafayette, a name people probably know, returned to Baltimore on this sort of grand tour he did, um, he asked about his old friend, Mr. Poe, because Mr. Poe had given $40,000 in those days dollars to the Revolutionary War effort. Um, it was never repaid, but it did earn David Poe the title general poe even though he never actually earned that rank so he was ge- he was the general but not because he was actually a general um literally he was a rich man who became poor to help support the revolutionary war i mean he's a like he's a hero in a way right historically speaking i mean forty thousand dollars in those days i don't even know what that is it's millions um, I looked it up just now on yeah. the fly and so take this yeah. uh with a grain of salt but it says the it would be worth one point one point six million dollars. Yeah, no, and his yeah. entire and it was all of it, right? Yeah, it was all of his money. Um, on Poe's mother's side, um, uh, he came from uh in his Eng- from his English grandmother Elizabeth Arnold, who was an actress at the Theater Royal. Uh, uh, in seventeen ninety five, now widowed, she came to Boston with her daughter Eliza. Eliza Poe's mother made her theatrical debut at the age of nine. Uh, she married at age 15, this guy named Charles Hopkins and continued her acting career starring in nearly 300 roles, including Juliet, Ophelia, and many other characters from then, you know, the comedies and farces and, you know, she'd just play whatever role they needed somebody to play. Um, 300. She, yeah. Mm. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was a, she was a hit. Um, she was, a, she was like a local, uh, she was, a celebrity on some level. Um, 1806, Charles Hopkins, her husband, dies, and she marries another actor, and this is David Poe Jr. This is Edgar Allan Poe's father. Uh, uh, he was born in 1874. So they were both pretty young, and she it's possible that she may have just married him for protection. Her she was young, her you know, a teenager still, I believe. Her husband had just died, she had no parents. Let's marry this guy. You know, um, he was a reasonably successful actor, but nothing like Eliza. And he suffered any number of negative reviews, some of which poked fun at his name. Uh, you know, the name Poe, 
Uh, if you want to just get an easy jibe at somebody named Poe, you just say their name is Poo. Oh, no. <laughs> Listen, and nothing has changed. Everybody's a freaking critic. You do right? anything. You make yourself public doing anything. You write yeah. a play. You make a podcast. There's always going to be somebody who finds some fault. And they're good. And they yeah. have no nobody. No skin in the game. They have no skin in the game. And yeah. nobody uh, is a critic of the critics. <laughs> right that's a good point yeah, yeah. We need that. They're, they're sort of almost above well we don't have to get into it yeah yeah you know? yeah 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 <laughs> <Ooh. So, Come laughs> so on. like god right you really have to call me poo like i yeah. get that the acting performance right. wasn't that right. good right. I'm, I'm putting myself out here and you're literally my, calling me my father yeah. founded the country like come on give me a freaking <laughs> yeah. break right you um freaking win with these people right so David Poe Jr., we don't know a ton about him. He was a drinker and he was hot tempered. These things we do know. Soon enough, 1809, here comes Edgar. Um, his mother, and it, just to paint the picture of like, they were not doing well. She was a successful actress, but even then a successful actress. In some quarters, it was one step above prostitution. Like it was not, it was sort of frowned upon in polite company. And there also wasn't a ton of money in it. Um, his mother appeared, and, and everybody like, everybody thinks that it's wildly different now. But the reality is, is that it's kind of not like. Oh yeah, there's like there's like two hundred people who are like <laughs> right. super hyper Hollywood successful, and then there's a thousand like of actual people. working actors and right. yeah, and commercials a, and and plays and this and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember yeah. Uh, I, I lived in a. And I'm not even going to say because I, I love I really like this guy and I don't want it to sound like I'm but I knew a guy in a city I lived with. I knew him barely and he was an actor and he was just in everything. When you went to the Haunted Cemetery tour, he was the guy who led the Haunted Cemetery tour. When you went to the Science Center and they had like a Bill Nye, Dr. Nye thing, he was the Dr. Nye guy. When you went to, over to the, like this other thing, he was the guy. He just he, you know. That's what he did. And he was good at it. He was funny yeah. and he was charismatic and he was handsome. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's that's a career. Right. For, right. For act actors. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in their situation, his mother appeared on stage as part of a traveling troupe just a week before Edgar's birth and then also performed just a one month after. So she's not stop, you know, it's have the kid, you keep going pretty much. Um Edgar was born in a lodging house just uh, south of the Boston Common. So he was born in Boston, but he grew up. Well, we'll get we'll get to it. He he, he sort of was uh, itinerant in a way, which we'll see. And when you say lodging house, we're talking about like the Airbnb type thing of the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was shared, she was, shared communal spaces. And right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, just to kind of put us in in t time history, he was born, Poe was born the same year as Charles Darwin, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, and Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Just to give us a sense, they all outlive him, of course. I'm really uh, regretting my misplacement of him in time, but uh, I'm going to I'm gonna forgive myself again because of yeah. his influence. Often yeah. when someone's that influential, it feels like they're closer to us than they really are. But I think mm -hmm. if I had... Had more time to meditate it on, meditate on him. I would have put him a little earlier. I, I think maybe the most surprising thing is that he was writing before the Civil War. I would have thought somebody writing that kind of macabre uh, material would have been informed possibly by the Civil War. Uh, yeah, so that's very he was, interesting. 
he was like a, at least a generation ahead of his time i think cool i think that's partially yeah. what's, what's going on here um boston like baltimore has claimed poe to a certain degree but the truth is because yeah, because boston doesn't have enough influence right, uh right, right. They, don't right. they don't have an important people. school they can't, they can't just let baltimore have this <laughs> right uh, <laughs> but here's here's where we get a little bit of revenge poe hated boston he hated its stuffiness he hated he hated transcendentalism to be honest he thought it was all a bunch of malarkey um, he just like me for real he he hated um boston's abolitionism and most importantly, he hated the way that Boston, he thought Boston literary scene not only dominated the American world, dominated American literary culture, but that it was boring. I am so on board with all of this. I can't yeah. tell you except how much the, I Except agree. the hating the abolition part. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But the did, other stuff. What, what a denomination was Poe's family? Were they just... Um, general even, protestant it, it, was, it didn't really come up that much because his his foster father as we'll see here wasn't very religious um i think he got i think he was baptized episcopalian if i'm not mistaken and i think he was married in a presbyterian church right? okay or general I, there might, there might american be the way around protestant yeah got it yeah yeah okay um so Poe suddenly appearing in this family, and like we said, lodging house, his parents are actors. The family was already kind of teetering on, you know, a very precarious financial situation. And Poe, a little baby coming into the scene, um, just throws us all out of whack. Um, just a few weeks after his his birth, they actually leave Edgar with the general. Uh, General Poe and General Poe's wife, his grandmother, so they could continue touring because they had to go make money, right? And you can't, I mean, you got a little baby. We got to, we got to go, we got to make some things happen. We got to stack that cheese. Um, let me read a little bit about being uh, his time with uh, the general. Um, <clears throat> let's see. <clears throat> they, that's Poe's parents, returned to fetch him in late August when the season was over, placing Edgar and later his sister Rosalie in the care of an old nursemaid. A friend reported that the two children were thin and pale and very fretful. To quiet them, their old nurse took them upon her lap and fed them liberally with bread soaked in gin when they, full, uh, when they soon fell asleep. She acknowledged that she had, from the very birth of Rosalie, freely administered to them gin and other spiritous liquors with sometimes laudanum to make them strong and healthy or to put them to sleep when restless. The uh, etiology Ooh. of Poe's alcoholism began in infancy. Okay, I hope you're taking notes for those new <laughs> for those new parents out there. Yeah. What was it? It was gin soaked gin. in bread. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Around my house, we call that a dirty Poe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Here's a question deep. for you, Brad. Were you yeah. aware? I, I have two young children at home. Were you mm. aware that uh, a baby can teethe so much? And that that their drool causes them to to have rash. I've seen, I've heard of this. Yes. I did not know yeah. that was a thing. Yeah, saliva <laughs> can be an irritant if there's like oh too much of it there's, boy. Mm. I mean, human yeah. jack o' lantern season. <laughs> Just teeth, <laughs> teeth every which way, Aww. and that poor little baby. Anyway, okay. Aww. So, if, uh, fellow parents out there, yeah. uh, thoughts and prayers uh, for for my Absolutely. family and, and going yeah. back out to you too. It yeah. is it is not an easy thing to to no. raise. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's miraculous that we decide to do it over and over over again in a way. 
It's um, miraculous that any of us make it to adulthood. <laughs> like, yeah, there is like a part where it's like, like it's funny we we joke like friends and right. I have joked like the reason a baby is cute is so you don't just throw them out the window. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like when I do Pearl Jam on for karaoke, I do. I'm yeah. still alive, but I always kind of yeah. put a question mark at the end of it. <laughs> I'm still alive. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> I do. I do, <laughs> I do the William Shatner cover of of I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have fun uh, on Art of Darkness. We do. Okay. So, uh, I, you might have caught that from that excerpt I read. Poe had a sister. He also had a brother. They're going to come back. I'm not going to talk about him much here. Um, in 1811, having given up the stage for booze, Poe's father leaves the family, just ba- abandons them. And then a few months later, he was dead. In October of 1811, Eliza, Poe's mother, uh, made her last stage appearance, followed by an intense illness. This was in Richmond, Virginia. They pretty much decamped to Richmond, Virginia at this point. Uh, when she came down with this this intense illness, the Richmond Society uh, tried their best to attend to her, basically raise money for her. Um, there was even a benefit performance put on by the Richmond Theater and pleas in the Richmond Inquirer newspaper for donations to help her out. But... On December 8th, 1811, Eliza died of tuberculosis. Edgar was just, excuse me, uh, a month shy of three years old. Oh, no. I didn't realize this. Yeah. Oh, no. So let me read just a little bit here. on. Wow. This. I mean, we always, on this pod, we always mark when uh, one of the artists we cover has, loses one parent. I think, yeah. have we, who else have we done where they've lost both parents this year. I don't young. know. I don't know if we have any straight up orphans that I can think of. No. Yeah, this is a first for the yeah. for the pod. Yeah. Wow. Quote, the desertion of his father and the death of his mother must have had considerable emotional impact on the nearly three year old child. Closeted with his mother in their cramped quarters, he must have remembered something of the melancholy atmosphere, poignant silence, and hopeless despair as the attendants passed in and out of the sick room. He surely retained some memory of the racking coughs, the spitting of blood, the sudden crimson hemorrhages and the pallid figure extended on her deathbed. Poe later emphasized, emphasized his artistic heritage and exclaimed, quote, the writer of this article is himself the son of an actress, has invariably made it his boast, and no earl was ever prouder of his earldom than he of his descent from a woman who, although well-born, hesitated not to consecrate to drama her brief career of genius and of beauty. Besides the inscribed watercolor of Boston Harbor, Poe inherited his mother's precocity, talent, imagination, dedication to art, and courage in adversity, as well as the indelible image of a beautiful, dying young woman. He would also share her itinerant way of life, her impoverished existence, and her dreary death. Okay. <clears throat> Not only do oh. we have two, what, two actors? For for parents, mm-hmm. one uh, a failure, mm-hmm. one a um, successful actor, but short lived. Yeah, yeah, and now they're both dead. Yeah, yikes! Yes. Whoa, yeah. doggy. Yeah, it's not great. Now, there's a little story I want to tell that's not directly related to Poe, but when we think about Poe, the spookiness of Poe's work, the the supernatural aspects of it. Let me read you this. Uh, Uh, talk a little bit about something that happened um, after Eliza died. So 
Uh, Eliza Poe dies on December 8th. Remember, there was a benefit performance at the Richmond Theater. Um, a little over a week after this benefit performance, uh, at, at a stage in which she was a favorite, right? There were positive write-ups. People came to see her as much as they came to see whatever play she happened to be in. Now, on December 26th, just a few weeks later, um, the Richmond Theater held a benefit for another theater maker. This was a guy named Alexander uh, Placide. It doesn't matter. Um, this benefit was postponed uh, in part because of the death of Eliza Poe, right? She's such a big, big figure in this scene. But at this benefit, um, this other one for this guy named Alexander Placide, in attendance were a number of dignitaries, including George William Smith, a uh, former senator, um, a guy who had been one of Aaron Burr's lawyers. I think the governor of Virginia was there. Uh, actually, I think that's who George William Smith is, right? Like a bunch of big, big, important people in Virginia were at this benefit performance. Let me read this bit. Quote, the fire started after the curtain fell following the first act of the pantomime. When the chandelier was lifted toward the ceiling with the flame still lit. The lamp became entangled in the cords used to lift the chandelier, and it touched one of the items used in the front scenes, which caught fire. As soon as the boy worker who was operating the cord saw the flames, he fled the building. The flames rose up to the scenery and spread in the fly gallery from one hanging scene to the other. Excuse me. There were 35 such hanging scenes, which could be lowered. In addition to the hangings were also uh, were also the borders that provided the outlines of buildings and skies, among other set pieces. These two caught fire sequ sequentially. Pine planks fixed over rafters with no plastering and ceiling spread the flames, which fell from the ceiling and spread extremely rapidly. The impact of the fire was worsened because the stage curtain hid the initial flames from the audience. Oh, um, no. The and theater she literally have fire raining down on an, an old timey audience of stinky people. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I thought whatever. I put the number and it was it was dozens of people died. That's terrible. Uh, the theater burned down. I mean, there's like a whole Wikipedia page about this event. This is the same theater that Poe's mother was one of the most popular actresses in. And so here is the, and then this is, this is why I spent some time on this. Kevin, have you ever heard of the Poe story Hop Frog? I maybe have heard of it, but I don't, I, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Not one of his most popular, one of his best, in my opinion. Um, there is these it's actually one of his last stories. I think it was written in 1849, the year of his death. Um, yeah, 1849. Let me just read you the wiki and then I'm going to read you a little thing. Keeping in mind this this theater fire. Um, Hop Frog is a short story uh, first published in 1849. The title character, a person with dwarfism taken from his homeland, becomes the jester of a king pr uh, particularly fond of practical jokes taking revenge on the king and his cabinet for the king's striking of his friend and fellow dwarf, Trippetta, he dresses the king and his cabinet as orangutans for a masquerade. In front of the king's guests, Hop Frog murders them all by setting their costumes on fire. Okay. Let me read you a little bit of this because I want to get... We haven't had any Poe's voice yet, really. Um, so I'm just going to read a, a, a little snippet from uh, Hop Frog. Hop frog. Yeah. The, the dwarf who gets his revenge. He gets his revenge. And again, we have the orangutans. I think Poe is very interested in orangutans or orang orangutans, I think is how they said it back then. Um, all right. This is just the end of Hop Frog. 
Quote, and now while the whole assembly, the apes included, remember he has tricked Hopfrog has tricked the king and his retinue into dressing up because it's like, you'll be part of the show. It'll be funny. And now while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle when the chain flew violently up for about 30 feet, dragging with it the, the dismayed and struggling Urang Utangs and leaving them suspended in midair between the skylight and the floor. Hopfrog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers and still continued to thrust his torch down toward them as though endeavoring to discover who they were. They had been tarred and then had hair put on them, so they're covered in tar. So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by just such a low, harsh, grating sound as had, as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors when the former threw the wine in the face of Trippetta. But on the present occasion, there could be no question as to whence the sound issued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf, who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenances of the king and his seven companions. Aha, said at length the infuriated gesture. Aha, I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped them and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. Okay. Banger. Yeah. Cinematic. It is. It feels like a movie. It's putting all the pieces are in place it, and you can it see it. Sounds like something that if you wrote to if you wrote it today, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be wildly off the mark of what what people want right now. Yeah, no, it's it's hyper violence, it's revenge fantasy, it's yeah, it's got all kinds of elements that I think and again. Picture it's got monkeys. Like, people love monkeys. People love monkeys, right? <laughs> right, yep. right. Yep. Yeah, it's an it's yeah. an interesting story. I had never heard about. I was completely unfamiliar with that story. Um, if you go, how on would they YouTube, say uh, is for Oorang, the children? Oorang, <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, just a, a quick shout out. If you go on YouTube, you can find Christopher Lee reading six or eight different Poe stories. Christopher Lee, the great actor, the late great. Uh, they're they're phenomenal. He does such a good job. You should, and he does Hop Frog, and it's it's mwah, chef's kiss. I think uh, that I saw something recently about, was he in Wicker Man, Christopher Lee? Um, gosh, I don't think so, but maybe. Yeah, no, he was. He was, he was Lord Summer Isle. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Young, but uh, young, youngish Christopher Lee. What's funny yeah. is uh, he gave an interview or he, at some point where the person who created the Wicker Man, the director, uh, told him the title. And uh, apparently he was hiding the ending from everybody, That's something smart. like this. And yeah. Christopher Lee was like, oh, is it is it about, uh, you know, pagan sacrifice? And and uh, the director's like, damn you. You're the yeah. only one who knew. And Christopher <laughs> Lee's like, oh, well, I studied folklore. I studied, you know, I don't know. So, right. yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Christopher Lee was the real deal, man. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, okay, so Poe is an orphan. Theater burn, uh, theater is burnt down. His mother has died. His father has died. Poe is an orphan. 
His grandfather, General Poe, is basically destitute. Remember, he he had a fortune. He never got it back after the Revolutionary War. Um, so Poe is taken in by a man named John Allen, A-L-L-A-N. This is where we get Edgar Allen Poe. The Allen actually comes from the name of his foster father, which, as we'll see, was probably a little bit of an albatross around uh, Edgar's neck, and yet he he kept it. Um. Uh, John Allen had been an orphan himself, which probably, you know, contributed to him wanting to take in young Edgar. I think, um, Henry, his brother, Edgar's brother, Henry went to another family and his sister Rosalie ended up going to the general Poe. Um, we'll get to them, their, their fates eventually here. Um, John Allen was a Scotsman who'd emigrated to Richmond, uh, Virginia when he was 16 and established himself as a successful merchant trading basically whatever. Virginia tobacco, textiles, hardware, paints, coffee, wine, liquor, horses, pigs, and the occasional, quote, old slave, which who they hired um, out at coal pits until they died. Um, John Allen was not. Yeah, yeah. John Allen was uh, not a particularly nice man, uh, though he did attempt to spoil young Edgar. Let me read uh, a little bit about this. Um, <clears throat> quote, the Allens dressed Edgar like a young prince and took him each summer to White Sulphur Springs and other fashionable resorts. At the age of three, he was a lovely, a, a quote, lovely, fine fellow with dark curls and brilliant eyes, charming everyone by his childish grace, vivacity and cleverness. His parents were fond of exhibiting his precocious talents to their evening guests, and Edgar's retentive memory and musical ear enabled him to learn and recite the most moving and beautiful passages of English poetry. He was encouraged to stand on the dining room table in his stockinged feet and toast the health of the ladies with a glass of sweetened wine. Allen, a poor uh, that's John Allen, his, his foster father, a poor disciplinarian, confused the child by alternately spoiling and scolding him. Okay, so... That's the he went from itinerant actors, drunk arguments, poor to this guy, successful businessman, spoiling him, scolding him, putting him in situations he wasn't familiar with. Um, interesting sort of transition. Um, in 1815, after the hostilities of the uh, War of the of 1812, John Allen, again, a Scotsman, packed up the family for a business venture back in London. Um, they visited Scottish family and put Edgar in a boarding school in Chelsea, where he studied, you know, spelling, history, geography, etc. Wow, and that 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 is a shocking move. It uh, is going to the heart of London uh, yeah. from where? From Baltimore? Uh, uh, from Richmond, Virginia. From Richmond, Virginia. That is, it's a different planet. Sure. Even yeah. now, it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. Um, uh, 1818, so uh, Poe is uh, nine years old. Edgar was put into a different boarding school out in the country, a uh, village of Stoke Newington, just north of London. Um, this is just coincidentally the same town in which uh, Daniel Defoe uh, wrote Robinson Crusoe. Let me read you a quick thing on that. Um, again, from this great Jeffrey Myers biography. <clears throat> Quote, a historian of education has emphasized the mechanical rote learning that prevailed in English schools at the time. Excuse me. There was no genuine teaching, no conception of the process of uh, processes of education, of learning, nothing but continuous memorizing of a series of classical texts whose content was rarely expounded or understood. 
and a biographer has described a school similar to Poe's at Enfield, six miles north of Stoke Newington, which Keats attended in 1803 when he was eight years old. The basis of the curriculum was Latin, French, and mathematics, the atmosphere less cruel and more congenial than in the older and more famous schools. So I'm going to read a little bit. It's not about the school that Poe went to, but it's about like the next school over, which would have been very, very much the same. The small academy at Enfield with almost 75 students was not thought of as a preparatory school for scholars any more than for sons of the aristocracy. The intention was to offer a fairly liberal education to students whose families were in trade or in the less affluent professions and who were not necessarily looking forward to entering a university. Some mathematics and science were taught, and the grounding in Latin was good. Greek was probably not taught. French was taught, and Keats learned to read it fluently. If Enfield lacked the advantages of the great public schools, it had compensations. There was no... um, I'm not going to say that word. Uh, there even seems to have been little or no physical punishment. The school Buggery? was small enough. Uh, was, yeah, yeah. There was, the school was small enough for the, uh, so that the enlightened uh, influence of the headmaster was constantly felt. Okay. Now, it, it, let me just say something. I recognize these different names: Stoke Newington, Enfield, and I'm like, well, yeah. they, they, not that. It's like that's all literally like central London now. Oh yeah, it's it, all it London was, now. Now mm-hmm. it was the outskirts or even beyond. But yeah, of mm-hmm. course, now it's okay. actually part of part of the megalopolis. Um, let's talk right here about another under, underappreciated uh, short story of of Poe's. Um, we're, we are going to talk about the classics that you know are, about. Are we not saying the word buggery anymore on the pod? Or well, was it a they, different they word? Used, they used uh, uh, an F seven, word. I got you. Okay. That Interesting. Doesn't, it doesn't play. Yeah, anything. yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, F's a, in the chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so... This story I'm going to talk about is William Wilson. Just talk about it briefly because uh, I think it's thematically critical to understanding what Poe's deal is. Um, so William Wilson is a story about a, a person named, of course, William Wilson. Um, and he's a boy or this story when the story starts, he's a boy in a, quote, misty looking village of New England. So like Stoke Newington, um, William Wilson encounters a boy who this is kind of creepy just in setup. Honestly, he encounters a boy who looks like him dresses like him acts like him has the same name and the same birthday it's, it's that to me that that is like a twilight zoney kind of setup is like yeah, kind of unnerving Lynchian kind of right. doppelganger doppelgangers are an old weird uh, mm-hmm. uncanny thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think because we we're all our own doppelganger you know we're all sort of reflecting ourselves back at ourselves some of us more than others uh, <laughs> you know? um in, in varying yeah. ways but it, it's yeah. interesting uh you know yeah uh, yeah it's, I, it's, it would be an interesting idea for uh, like a high concept story would be like you create Somebody creates an online persona and then meets that online persona IRL. <laughs> right, right. Who's at actually these, living at? What are these like yeah. uh, anime anons on, yeah. on Twitter? It actually manifests it as like a tulpa in the real world and can't get rid of it. It moves in. <laughs> right, right. That's right, a good right. idea. That's a yeah. free idea for anybody who wants to there go. There you go. Like that. Yeah. yeah, all right. Yeah. yeah. Don't um, say we never did anything for you. <laughs> Now, in this story, throughout William Wilson's life, he's he's haunted by this double. So it's not just at school; like it's one thing. He's in school. He's in school with him the whole time, um, and the du- But he continues being with him into his adult life. And this double, who can only speak in a whisper for some reason, um, is always trying to advise him, 
He's always showing up at crucial moments to th- uh, to thwart William Wilson's plans or to point out how wretched he is. All of this eventually leads to the protagonist, William Wilson, murdering his double. Um, so it's just a cool, I think the premise by itself is very Yeah, cool. this is cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to kind of skip reading that part. Just, just kind of moving on. What was what was the name of that story again? It's just called William Wilson. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but I'm going to give you. I am going to tell you a little bit about. Uh, and and part of the reason I brought it up now is because there's a big part uh, in it about being in a school in semi-rural England that Poe just took directly from his life. Um, let me read you a little bit from the bio about Poe as a boy, because I think this is interesting. Um, Hunter. Uh, Let's see. Oh, this is about his, this is more about his education, actually. So uh, Hunter described the quality of Edgar's education in England, his precocious poetry, Bransby's opinion of his character, Bransby was the headmaster, and what is most interesting in connection with uh, Alan's later meanness with money, Bransby's belief that his most famous pupil had been spoiled by his foster father's extravagance. Here's what Bransby, the headmaster, said. When Poe left it, he was able to speak the French language, construe any easy Latin author, and was far better acquainted with history and literature than many boys of a more advanced age who had had greater advantages than he had had. I spoke to Dr. Bransby about him two or three times during my school days, having then, as now, a deep admiration for his poems, a copy of which I received as a prize for an effort in English verse. Dr. Bransby seemed rather to shun the topic. I suppose from some feelings with regard to his name being used distastefully in the story of William Wilson. In answer to my question, on one occasion, he said Edgar Edgar Allen, that was the name that Poe was known by at school, is just Edgar Allen. Edgar Allen was a quick and clever boy and would have been a very good boy if he had not been spoilt by his parents. But they spoilt him and allowed him an extravagant amount of pocket money, which enabled him to get into all manner of mischief. Still, I liked the boy. Poor fellow, his parents spoiled him. Um, he also said at one time that Alan was uh, Edgar Allan Poe was intelligent, wayward, and willful. Okay. Now, uh, in 1820, um, the Allens moved back to the United States, so Poe would have been about 11 years old. Let me read a tiny, a little bit on that, um, because because this is people. I got a couple quotes here from people who knew. Go ahead. I'm not surprised that he lived in in England based yeah. on his education, you know, what the education he must have received. I mean, he at some point he was going to have to go to like a very 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 good school. Mm. So, uh I'm not surprised that it was over there. Yeah, but you know, he comes back it's only until age 11, right? So fair, not, no, fair enough, but but yeah. these years yeah, these years don't surprise me and the fact that they're they're yeah. saying he's precocious. Mm-hmm. Uh mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Multiple people over time would say how reten- how how powerful his memory was. Um, hmm. This comes up multiple times, where it's just like he could remember everything. He could just recite stuff he'd read a couple times. Boy, um, I and and let me tell you, you have a give a good memory. It it makes sense to want to pour a lot of alcohol right on top of that sucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you're if you're thinking about uh, yeah. some you know whatever something that happened 15 years ago. Yeah, and you yeah. can see it in your mind's eye. You could rotate that apple of shame <laughs> in your mind's eye. Yeah, you might want to, might want to yeah. yeah. soak some bread and gin. Uh, that's right. That that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
in back in the United States, uh, 1820, they come back to America. Um, it's actually going pretty well. He's 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 the child of a wealthy man who maybe spoils him, maybe scolds him a little bit too much, but he's certainly out of that precariousness that he had with his parents as actors. Um, and all of it's going pretty smoothly until 1824, when he would have been 15 years old. Um, at this time, while at a boarding school, he'd become friends, quote, in quotes, with the mother of one of his friends, right? And this is a woman named Jane Stannard. Um, he was as devoted to her as a son might be to his mother, right? Um, and you can imagine there probably was an element. I mean, he's 15. He's not nine or five. He's, you know, pubet, post-pubescent. Um so you can imagine there's erotic or romantic overtone, uh, undertones, overtones, whatever to this. Um, oh, just tones. Tones. Tones in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah we get tones. Yeah. That she, um, not long after he met her, she um, she soon died, quote, insane, according to Jeffrey Myers, which I don't know exactly what it means to die in, like, is it one of the things you die from being insane or you die and you happen to be insane at the same time? I'm not Listen, sure. We, we do this podcast long enough. Stick yeah. around. You're going to, you're going to find out. Brad. <laughs> it's going to happen. That's right. Uh, let me, so let me read a little bit about this because it's an important biographical note quote after Jane's death, the future creator of horror stories described the apparitions that appeared in his nightmares quote, the most horrible thing he could imagine as a boy was to feel an ice cold hand laid upon his face in a pitch dark room when alone at night or to awaken in semi darkness and see an evil face gazing close into his own. And these fancies had so haunted him that he would often keep his head under the bed covering until nearly suffocated. The superstitious skeptic who could be terrified by his own imagination later confessed to the editor, George Graham, that he, quote, disliked the dark and was rarely out at night. On one occasion, he said to me, I believe that demons take advantage of the night to mislead the unwary. Although, you know, he added, I don't believe in demons. <laughs> okay, so adolescent Poe. Eventually becomes college age Poe in 1825. He's 16. Poe meets uh, and becomes supposedly engaged to the daughter of his neighbor. This is in Richmond, Virginia. Um, this is a woman named Elmira Royster. Um, they're like 15, 16 years old. Um, I just want to kind of put the fact that she exists there because she ends up coming back later. Um, her father would interfere in their love affair and after around 1826, we don't really actually hear anything more about um, Elmira Royster for like 20 years. But he had this very young love affair. He thought that they were going to get married. It doesn't work out. Um, now, Poe was already writing at this time, this middle adolescence. Um, he was writing poetry probably by about age 14, if not earlier. Um, his foster father, John Allen, recognized that Poe had talent uh, that he had a quote genius, um, which would quote someday fill the world with its with his fame. Um, but he also believed that this talent led uh, Poe to being impulsive and wayward. We have a lot of impulsive people. We don't have that many people who are wayward anymore. You don't hear, oh, he's a wayward 
so and so anymore. Hmm. I think we need to bring back wayward. Yeah. I yeah. well, you know, the sixties happened and there's that whole not all who wander are lost thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 I yeah. think the world has become a lot more, even though it might not feel that that this way, yeah. I do think the world has become a lot more forgiving. I think that's you true can, in some ways. Yeah. 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 The the bottom then was right. just like death. Right. Like, right. And, it, and it's and it still is. It yeah. still is. But, but I no, feel like but, we maybe there I feel a, like we maybe get a few more spins of the wheel here. Yeah. You know, no, we the, grow up was, slower. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's like all like cancel culture stuff now or whatever, but like there was at this time where like a 15, 16 year old girl in certain in certain sets of society, if she got caught kissing a boy, yeah, as it for she's like, like a soiled woman forever, right? Yeah. 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 We yeah. don't we don't have that kind of thing. It's a shipper to the country. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, right, she'd yeah. take like a she'd have to like take a lifetime of cold showers or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um uh so okay, so as Poe gets older, end of his teenage years, and this you can imagine this is not uncommon, things with his his foster father get more and more difficult. He's very devoted and he loves his foster mother, but he and his foster father butt heads constantly. Um uh, you know, and I think it, it gets to the point that if someone wanted to blame somebody other than Poe for all of Poe's ills, and as we're going to see, there are a lot of Poe's life is not good. Like you wouldn't trade you any, no, almost no one would trade their life for his. Um, and I think you could put that at the feet of John Allen in a certain way. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, Poe himself he's he's strange he's temperamental he's um he can't really motivate himself toward anything unless it's exactly what he wants to be doing um and so you know his father his foster father who's this like successful industrialist exporting and importing and you know he's a businessman mm-hmm. and his son's a poet and is it, it kind it, of a, art? I'm art vandalay, right? Yeah, exactly. it, 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 importing and exporting, okay. right? Right, right, no, right. Well, it's like it's like there's so yeah. many people that we've covered so far. We're in the general line, like they okay. yeah. we buy yeah. things and we sell them for high. Like, what do you yeah. mean the general line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, yeah any, in any case, hmm. yeah. Now, um, quick thing on John <laughs> Allen. This is this gets kind of this gets fairly interesting. Now he's. So we got we know that about Poe. John Allen, also temperamental. You got two very temperamental people, strong personalities. Um, he's also very smart. He's an exacting guy. And the one thing he did, which is is, you know, maybe we take some parenting, can take a parenting lesson from lesson from this. Whenever he got angry with Edgar, he would threaten to cut him off. So it's like even when Edgar's like 12 and he's not cooperating, it's like, I'll cut you off. I'm not really your dad, you know. That's yeah. tough. You got to yeah. give him some. You got to give him some room to screw up and argue with, uh, a little bit, right? Mm. Um, you can't um, what just is it? Up. I'm not the dad. I'm the dad who stepped up. <laughs> Something like that. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got to, but we really do have the material here of folklore. Dead mm-hmm. or orphan children are yeah. at the like the quintessential heart of at least Western folk folklore and yeah. the, the sort of not maybe abusive but the the you know step step parenting is hard and yeah. 
you hear about the wicked step wicked step parents right. you know for a reason it's, for a it's reason. a difficult yeah. relationship no, uh, yeah, yeah it's tough it's tough for the parents tough for the kid uh, it's statistically it's not great you know no, like it's not. yeah so yeah so it's not it's not easy for anybody involved um uh, yeah right cuz the little the little bastards are so difficult <laughs> They are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is a this is a step parent respecter podcast. It better be. Okay? I mean, I, I was I was raised in part by a stepfather. Yeah, I'm and, a step parent. God damn it. Yeah. And Brad's a step parent. God damn it, you better respect the step parents. Yeah. yeah. It's not it's easy. Not, it's not that it's harder, it's different, but also hard. Yeah. Hmm. Um uh <laughs> yeah. Now, as the 1820s, as the 1820s wore on. Uh, and Alan's finances kind of took a dip. The business faltered a little bit. He became surlier and more miserable, right? So it's one thing when he's rich and he's got a cute little kid. It's another thing when his finances aren't so great and he's got an asshole, moody teenage boy, right? These are two uh, different I, worlds. I yeah. want to love you. I want to love you, son. But yeah. my, my, the, Crypto's crashing. <laughs> exactly. I don't have any. I don't have any room in, in my heart yeah. for you when when Doge is six cents. <laughs> we pumped it. I gotta love my kid. <laughs> Hashtag something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, now this changes. This slightly changes. Eighteen twenty-five. An uncle of John Allen. This is a strange turn of events. An uncle of John Allen's named William Galt, who happens to be the richest man in Virginia, dies and leaves John Allen a fortune of, at the time, several hundred thousand dollars. Which we know now it would be worth at least multiple millions of dollars. Multiple millions. In today's yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. Wealthy, wealthy man. Now, this was money that Poe could have inherited if he'd simply stayed on good terms with his foster father. Toward that end, in 1826, Poe goes to the University of Virginia. Now, University of Virginia, I did not know how interesting University of Virginia was as a place. Uh, to me, it was just another university. I'm sure a good school, but I didn't know anything about the history. The University of Virginia was founded in 1819 by none other than Thomas Jefferson. It is now apparently a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I did not know any of this. Yeah, Kevin, you had. I, no, I think I knew that. But I okay. think that, I, yeah. Yeah, Jefferson designed almost every aspect of the place from picking the site, designing the buildings, hiring the professors, planning the curriculums. He wrote the regulations uh, with the stated purpose to, quote, develop the reasoning faculties of our youth, enlarge their minds, cultivate their morals, and instill into them the precepts of virtue and order and generally excuse me, to form them to the habits of reflection and correct action, rendering them example of virtue to others and of happiness within, excuse me, within themselves. Um, it was a sort of an inspiration for the American college model in a lot of ways. And there were other ones and there were other American colleges that came before this, but it was a, sure. it was a, it was a deliberate effort to create a particular kind of atmosphere well and thank god that he did that because otherwise we wouldn't have the university of minnesota the finest institution in That's the right. americas full stop yeah. go gophers that was this whole that was it was all Jeffrey Jefferson yeah. knew he was just yeah. tri it was a trial run in Virginia yeah you can't so start in Minnesota I mean no right not at that, yeah. not at that time not at that yeah. time but they knew yeah. yeah now pursuant to trying to create this environment um there was no presence of 
religion on campus. And students were expected to sort of off quote author their own lives to the fullest extent possible. Um, there were a number of things that were strictly forbidden. These included smoking, drinking, gambling, fighting, horses, servants, dueling. Um, Ooh, boring. These things, these no were dueling. St- yeah. I want to go to a dueling school. <laughs> For real. These, yeah. Could you imagine just just take like American drinking? college drinking culture and then just add occasionally there's a duel on top of it well you know we, we you know, full disclosure we got a we do have a little bit of that over here at the university of minnesota right? so we'll just okay. that's okay. just not it's a very good school it's a very yeah. good school yeah <laughs> now i say that all of these things were strictly pr- forbidden what i should have said is well that while that is true they were omnipresent it was everywhere. oh damn I, because jefferson was like well, we'll let these young men author their own lives. And, well, they, they shouldn't drink or smoke or do any, you know, through 18 years old, they're away from home for the first time. Nothing changes, right? Um, so Poe is introduced to this environment. Now, at the same time, he's a more, much more than competent student. He barely had to study. Remember, powerful memory, good good uh, education leading up to this. Um in December of 1826, he was examined for two hours by none other than James Madison, who'd followed Thomas Jefferson as the rector, and James Monroe. You know, people who are founding father respecters will know those names. Uh, Poe was awarded highest honors in both ancient and modern languages. He was among the best students of his cohort at the University of Virginia. Nonetheless, he had few, if any, close friends at the University of Virginia. Reports vary from the time as to whether he was a wild man or a sober, quiet student. It's like it depended who you talk to, what his persona was like. There were even he was even physically remembered in different ways. Some people remembered him as like slender and athletic, and some people remembered him as like short and stout. Like there's like conflicting reports of like who this guy even was when he was on campus. Well, yeah, they Um, were all uh, drunk. (laughs) <laughs> they're all wasted. They're, they're all wasted and looking over their shoulder for the next duel. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So let me let me give you um this is somebody who did uh this is apparently the most vivid account of Poe at the University of Virginia from this guy, Miles George, who would later become a prominent uh Virginia doctor. Quote Poe was uh, fond of quoting poetic authors and reading poetic productions of his own, with which his friends were delighted and entertained. Then suddenly a change would come over him. He he would, with a piece of charcoal, evince his versatile genius by sketching upon the walls of his dormitory whimsical, fanciful, and grotesque figures with so much artistic skill as to leave us in doubt whether Poe in future life would be painter or poet. He was very excitable and restless, at times wayward, again, wayward, melancholic and morose. But again, in his better moods, frolicsome. You never hear that word. We don't hear wayward very often, but I don't know if I've ever heard frolicsome. Uh, In better moods, frolicsome, full of fun and a most attractive. Go ahead. uh, Let me read the definition of wayward. How would you define wayward if you had to define it, Brad? I mean... My assumption is it's like you go off the straight and narrow. Whatever the straight and narrow is, it's going off that. Yeah. The precise definition is difficult to control or predict because of unusual or perverse behavior. Oh. So I have been known to be wayward. 
Indeed. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I know you have been known to be wayward. <laughs> uh, Webster or Miriam Webster says following one's own capricious, wanton or depraved inclinations, ungovernable. Oh, become and wayward. Become wayward. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you wait, you you really want to fit into this system? Right? Look around, you want to be well adjusted to this system. Right, right. right. Become wayward. wayward. Part of darkpod.com. We're here we're here for the wayward people. That's right. That's true. That's very much true. Let me give you one last bit from this this Miles George quote. I love this. Become wayward. Um, to calm and quiet the excessive nervous excitability under which Poe labored, he would too often put himself under the influence of that, quote, invisible spirit of wine. So we've got Poe drinking uh, a bit. He's not the first person to go off to college and drink a little bit too much. Um, but this is a particularly particularly turbulent environment to get an education in. Um, like most co- like a lot of colleges are. But 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 let me tell you like how cra- out of hand it got. In 1840, now this is well after Poe's time, but there's a trajectory going on here. Things at the University of Virginia got so out of hand that a professor was actually murdered while trying to stop a student disturbance, right? It was like the Wild West, but in like a Thomas Jefferson designed, you know, beautiful environment. Things um, are pretty hot on on campuses these days. I hope yeah. everybody can cool down and uh, yeah. we, we don't see any violence like this. Yes. Well, I'm glad to not be on a college campus anymore, to be frank with you. Um Awesome. This is this is our world. college campus. Yeah, we are. Yeah, exactly. we're, we're our own little. We're we're adjunct professors of our own, Brad. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, let me read you a quote from a friend of Poe's, a later friend, Thomas Holly Chivers. Um, this is a little bit more about um, alcohol and, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> quote. Um, Poe's passion for strong drink was as marked as a, and as peculiar as that for cards. It was not the taste of the beverage that influenced him. Without a sip or smack of the mouth, he would seize a full glass without water or sugar and send it home with a single gulp. This frequently used him up. Poe was particularly fond of playing cards, 7-Up and Lou. I don't know what that game is, being his favorite games. He played 7-Up. Isn't 7-Up that thing you play as a kid where you like put your head down and like somebody taps you on the back of the head? You ever play Heads Up, Seven Up? Heads Up, Seven Up, but that's not a card game, though, is it? Well, it says his favorite game is Seven Up. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. What, I don't know. What it's I, nah, it'd be some sort of a, a card game. I'm looking up uh, Lou L O O O. Yeah, yeah, and it says Lou was a trivial and once disre- uh, disreputable trick-taking game for five or more players. It was equally popular as a gambling game ah. when it could get quite vicious. Sure. Uh, or as a mild domestic pastime, such as it appears in the novels of Jane Austen. Okay. Yeah. All right. It it is yeah. funny that later on in um, I believe it's the murders at room the murders at Rue Morgue, uh Poe goes on a whole thing about um the the example like what the rational mind is and what what's an a real analyst, an analytical brain. And he makes the argument that to a true analytical mind, the card game of whist. Is a, is much richer than the game of chess. Hmm. I've never played whist. I couldn't speak to that, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. Now reading this, so 
Um, Wait, were you were you raised among card people? Because euchre. I I'm a Michigander. We play euchre. You play euchre. And, yeah. Okay, I I did see that Lou is in the family of euchre. Yeah, euchre would okay. be a good gambling game. I never gambled much with it, but it would be a good gambling game. We played uh, hearts, rummy, and my family. Uh, and I didn't play it, and mm. much to my family's dismay, uh, Pinochle. The, where I'm from, like Pinochle, Pinochle was was huge. I yeah. played Pinochle. I've played mm. Rummy, and I've played I've played other games, but like I, I in Michigan, I do have a theory that like if if we as a generation, or I guess maybe it's too late for us now, Brad, but if the Zoomers really wanted to do any one cultural thing that might save the country and yeah. get people to start making eye contact again it yeah. would be to to host card parties yeah those can you imagine more that used to be anymore. that used to be that was all anybody that did. was it yeah. i mean even when i was growing up that was it in the yeah. 90s yeah 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 yep. very interesting become wayward and host yeah. you, <laughs> you, card parties. Parties. Yeah, you, parties. <laughs> you, you heard it here yeah, yeah. um now i, I want to say something about poe's relationship to alcohol um Poe wasn't necessarily a person who was drinking all of the time. He seemed to have a peculiar physiological response in which one or two drinks could get him just hammered. Um, he seemed to take very little to any joy in drinking. Um, it was like he Call just... Call that a, a cheap date. Yeah, right, right. He just went to the dark side pretty much immediately. Um, and he could go long stretches without drinking. I mean, he would go months without drinking anything. And then he would have a drink and then he would proceed to dismantle his life over the course of a week or two. And then he would sober up and be sober for months again. Um, so that's the kind of guy we're, we're dealing with here. Um, do you think now, psychologically, do you think he was like chasing the ghosts of his dead parents? I'm sure that's that. part of it. I'm sure that's yeah. part of it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I yeah. you know, I don't think he was ever, I don't think he ever came to peace with that. Well, and then he, you know, this woman when in 1824, this woman who was, who was the, the mother of a friend, she dies. Um, she's also fairly young. Um, we're going to see in a bit, uh, his foster mother dies when Poe's like 20 and he loved her. Like all the women around him just drop. Um, so yeah, I think there's, I think there, I think that's certainly a factor. Um, now there are, uh, now Poe, he only lasts at the university of Virginia for a year. He's a good student. He's the best student in, uh, modern and ancient languages. Right. So why does he leave? Um, his father's one of the wealthiest men, you know, in all things considered, he should have just stuck with it. He didn't have any academic problems, despite whatever drinking and gambling he was doing. So why does he leave? Um, well, it comes down to money, ultimately. According to Jeffrey Myers, and uh, later bemoaned in letters from Poe to John Allen, his foster father, John Allen, John Allen didn't send Poe with enough money. So here's the thing. It's great to pay for your kid's college. Um and pay for whatever they need. But like basically John Allen put the Poe in the situation where he paid for his tuition. He paid for room and board and that was it. And it was like, he had no, he had nothing else. Like his clothes, when his, you know, his ripped his pants, 
He couldn't buy new clothes. He couldn't buy shoes. He couldn't buy any of the normal stuff. Of life. Right, right. And it's it's not like now where he could maybe take a little odd job off campus at a coffee shop or something. Right, right. Yeah. It's like he put him, he direct, he, del- and, and there's some indications he did this deliberately, like put him in this situation where like he was almost taken care of, but that had no means of making up the rest. Boy, I can't relate to this at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yo. Yeah. It's called called being born in the 80s. It me. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Wait. Yo, not to get too derailed, but like it it always shocked me to realize time and time again when I would meet people at the university who didn't seem to work and, and they seemed to have scratch to go to spring break and whatever. I realized like, oh, you're just like, you're you're like a kept creature like <laughs> yeah, 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 i'm yeah. working i'm yeah. working and getting the degree in four years right like, right 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 damn I'm, there are I'm, a lot of us out there yeah. yeah i worked i worked not grad school necessarily but i worked my whole way through two undergrad degrees um nope. So he so so this is this basically is the situation and Poe claims that he the he and Poe ends up in a bunch of gambling debt. He ends up in twenty five hundred dollars at the time in gambling debt. A lot, a lot of money. Um, And so but Poe would claim like, well, father, what did you expect me to do? I had to make up this money somehow. And then he got like lost in a cycle of gambling. Right? I'm a professional. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just down. Just stake me harder. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Man, I tell you what, when yeah. those just 10 cents again, you're going to love me. Right. right. Yeah. Now let me, let me, um, let me read you part of a letter um this is that that poe that poe wrote the later game, the game is called lou because that's where your finances go yeah, uh, yeah. in the yeah. in the turlet yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah uh um this is a letter that comes later because poe basically never poe is mostly poor He he's never not poor the best he's ever doing is like kind of all right <laughs> and uh, a few years after college, he writes um, John Allen, his foster father, this letter. <clears throat> Quote, I will boldly say that it was wholly and entirely your own mistaken parsimony that caused all the difficulties in which I was involved while at Char- Charlottesville. Charlottesville is University of Virginia. The expenses of the institution at the lowest estimate were 350 per annum. Most students need at least 500. You sent me there with 110. Of this, 50 were to be paid immediately for board, 60 for attendance upon two professors, and you even then did not miss the opportunity for abusing me because I did not attend three. Then, then 15 more dollars were paid to be uh, were to be paid for room rent. Remember that all this was to be, to be paid in advance with $110, $12 more for a bed and $12 more for room furniture. I had, of course, the mortification of running in debt for public property against the known rules of the institution and was immediately regarded in the light of a beggar. You will remember that in a week after my arrival, I wrote to you for some more money and for books. You replied in terms of the utmost abuse. If I had been the vilest wretch on earth, you could not have been more abusive than you were because I could not contrive to pay $150 with 110. Okay. A little bit further down the letter. Books were bought on credit. In this manner, debts were accumulated and money borrowed from Jews in Charlottesville at extravagant interest, for I was obliged to hire a servant to pay for wood, for washing, and a thousand other necessaries. It was then that I became dissolute, for how could it be otherwise? I applied to uh, James Galt, 
Um, this is uh, the the son of John Allen's benefactor, William Galt. But he, I believe, from the best of motives, refused to lend me any. I then became desperate and gambled until I finally involved myself irretrievably. You would not let me return because bills were presented to you for payment, which I never wished nor desired you to pay. See, when Poe couldn't pay, they sent the bills to his dad, right? And his dad's like, what? He's racking up all of this debt? Incre- like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Had Oof. you let me had you let me return, my reformation had been sure, as my conduct the last three months at the university gave every reason to believe. So if we believe Poe, this is all John Allen's fault. If you know we find somewhere in the middle, it still seems like John Allen kind of set him up for failure. You know, it's like yeah. So anyway, um let's talk about a Poe story here. Um one of the great ones. This is about a decadent, uh, the decadence of a wealthy family, um, a, which has a curse sort of embedded inside of its prosperity. This is the fall of the House of Usher. So, um, Kevin, have you read the Fall of the House of Usher? Probably years ago, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, in high school. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. No, uh, between all the reading I do for Out of Darkness and whatever else I, I squeeze in, I have not read The Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is it like a novella? or, or No, just it's, a, it's, it's not that short long. Story. I mean, you'd be surprised mm-hmm. to find that most of these post stories are like 10 pages long. In my memory, they're like bigger somehow. <laughs> right. like, well, you go because back you're, like, you're a child and it's, right. it's difficult language. They give it to you because it's slightly more difficult. And yeah, there's, I, there's subtext. I and I think mm. that's true. Yeah, you've got to stretch a little bit to actually when you're in like eighth grade like or something. Teen. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, so the fall of the House of Usher is a classic. It's a classic, and, and some would say the best of the Poe stories. Um, let me just read you uh, and basically how it works is there's this family, the ushers, they were once very wealthy. Like I said, there's somehow like a curse, um, not only in the house of the usher, but in the ushers themselves, they're terribly sensitive. Um, and one of the ushers, Roderick Usher, he's in fact, the last of the male ushers calls upon the narrator to come attend upon him. And the narrator is a friend from way back who hasn't seen him in years. And it's kind of mysterious why he's even calling him to the, um, even calling him to the, the, the house. Um, I need to read a little bit. Uh, and this is when, uh, the narrator arrives at the house of Usher quote, I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the afterdream of the reveler upon opium the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? And he goes into this house and there's clearly what's so effective about this story is the um, is is the mood more than anything. There is this sense like that it's not clear exactly what's wrong, but it feels haunted. And it, I mean, Poe tells you it's sort of haunted, but there's there's this way in which he establishes a, a feeling 
that we see more. I, I think, for instance, Lovecraft would have taken a lot from from this story. Hold on, I'm just trying to find a note here. Oh, can I not do that? Da, da, da. Hold on. I have sorry. to say, the title, "The Fall of the House of Usher," is such a poetic, sonorous. It feels like a story that. Uh, like a Borgesian thing. If, if oh, it yeah. didn't exist, somebody would have to create it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. now let me read you a part where he describes what's wrong with the ushers. And again, I'm just trying to get you to get a sense of what is Poe doing? How does he write these things? And this is one of his, one of his most prominent and, and well-loved pieces. <clears throat> Quote, um, it was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit. That is, Roderick Usher spoke of the narrator's visit of his earnest desire to see me and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and a family evil, and one uh, one for which he despised, uh, despaired to find a remedy. A mere nervous affection, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unnatural sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me. Although, perhaps, the terms and the general manner of their narration had their weight. He had suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds, and these from stringed, stringed instrument, instruments, which did not inspire him with horror. Okay, so... Things that I like about this story, I mean, he's Poe is playing in the Gothic tradition of the late 1700s, it kind of predates him, right? Gothic, Gothic fiction, and, and to put it simply, it's all about you know grand buildings that have fallen into disuse, beautiful women with a haunted look. Roderick Usher has a sister who's like has tuberculosis, but she's beautiful and striking, right? Um, uh, it's about ghosts. It's about murder. It's about passion, secrets, family lines. These are all the tropes of Gothic literature. And there we still have Gothic stories now, right? That that, that not just in not just stories that are Gothic, like aesthetically based on like, you know, a stormy night in an old mansion, but that follow the actual the deeper trends of Gothic literature. Like if like well southern gothic is clearly an example as a genre but i remember seeing um did you ever see that show i was on netflix bloodlines sam shepherd was in it he was like the i i may have seen one or two episodes yeah. of it but i was aware that it was like one of the last things sam shepherd did yeah yeah and, and yeah. sam shepherd and sissy spacek are the 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 they're the the elders of this family that run this hotel in Florida, whatever. But it's, it's, it's very modern. Like there's cell phones and, you know, but it's, it's clearly a Gothic story. Like True everything about season it one. Right. Yeah. 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 And so, so Poe is playing in that tradition. Um, and it was Gothic literature was extremely popular in the late 1700s. Yeah. Cause it's kind of, it's kind of sexy and it's kind of like old world and it's a little bit mm -hmm. uh, uh, transgressive and yeah, it'll, it'll perennially come back. Oh yeah. 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 It's yeah. a vibe. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, I think it, it, it also speaks to an aspect of everybody's life kind of has a Gothic aspect to it too. Right. Mm. Cause it's, cause mm. I think especially the ghost part, it's mm. like, it's, it's one of the genres that it was okay to put ghosts in for the longest time. 
Sure, sure. And, and now we're thinking about death and right and memory wrestle. and yeah. yeah. And what do we really know about you know? And not everybody's uh, quite as heavily churched. People are sort of being more a little more liberal. Mm-hmm. And we're getting more education and yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, there's something could be something rather titillating about death too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Being scared. It's a bit of a yeah and, that, and that, that horror movie first date you know that everybody right. talks about yeah go to a horror movie right yeah. right right mm. right mm. and well and also secrets family mm. secrets every mm. family's got one or two things that they don't really talk about you know what i mean yeah and then yeah. nobody really has the whole full story or the sure. person who does doesn't actually never tells it that kind of thing just like we have the incident on the pod that we yeah would we'll, never talk about yeah, yeah of course <laughs> don't even allude don't even allude <laughs> to it uh, <laughs> um one thing i like about uh there's a couple of things that i like about this story too one is that poe does this really cool thing where so so the narrator spends all this time like reading books with roderick usher, usher and they like paint pictures He's just like keeping him company, basically. And meanwhile, the sister is sort of dying. Um, uh, And there is this moment where the story that they're reading, the things that are happening in the story start to seem like they're causing things in the house to happen. It's a really cool move. Like there's some kind of sound in the story he's reading. So there's a story within the story. And then that that sound breaks out into what actually happens within the house of Usher. There's this cool sort of like meta thing happening. Um, There's also some typical Poe traits, right? As I mentioned, the sister, the Usher sister is dying. I think of tuberculosis and she, they thinking that she's dead. Roderick buries her in the family tomb down in the basement, but she comes to life, right? It's like a very, it's like a very Poe move not only to bury somebody down in the tomb, but to like have them come back to life. Um, so it's, it's sort of like the archetypal, if you want to like all of the Poe elements to show up in one place or as many of them as possible, you do it in the house of Usher and the fall of the house of Usher. Um, okay. So what does Poe do after leaving the university of Virginia? He tries to live at home with John Allen for a while, but this just does not work at all. And he finds himself adrift in April of 1827 or sorry. Yeah. 1827. He lands absolutely penniless in Boston, the sound of city of his birth and uh, a city which he despised for a while. He works as a clerk. How do you like them apples? Yeah. Bean town. <laughs> Hack the cod. Have it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, I wonder if that was the Boston accent was like in 1827. Yeah, boy, I would love to right? listen to some scholar or some expert of accents do a Boston accent circa 1827. Yeah, it would be very interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, Poe works as a clerk at a warehouse for a while. Then he works for a small newspaper. Finally, he enlists in the army under the name Edgar A. Perry. He's only 18 years old, but he gives his age as 22. Um, not long after he enlists. Uh, <laughs> I'm 22. I'm 22 in drinking years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's probably looking a little rough. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't had a good yeah. meal in a couple weeks. I've been drinking <laughs> and gambling. Yeah. Um, in July of 1827, Poe puts out his first collection of poems. Uh, 
Oh, Christ. <laughs> I had to do oh, it one I time. Take, shouldn't take the Lord's name in <laughs> yeah. vain, but I had to do goodness. it one time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oof. Yeah. It, we, yeah. Some people say poems. In yeah. this case, Poe <laughs> is writing poems. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> pain. He, he managed. He manages to put this out um, through. Don uh, he self publishes it, and he takes donations from from friends. Um, mostly, these were fellow soldiers that he was enlisted with. And the the funny thing is, apparently, he would tell like ribald little like limericks and like little rhymy, dirty joke kind of things. You know, hanging out with the boys as you do, and. Uh, Apparently, the other soldiers thought that when he said, I'm taking up a collection of poetry for I'm taking up a collection to put out this poetry, they thought it was going to be that they thought it was going to be like body humorous, like, yeah. Talent He's going to put his little, uh, yeah, Poe shit talk kind of, right. kinda, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, no, you know, it'd be clever and funny. And it mm. was not that uh, at mm. all. <laughs> it was called Tamerlane and Other Poems. Uh, the title poem is Tamerlane. And if, for people who don't know who Tamerlane was, he was the last of the great nomadic conquerors of the Eurasian steppe, I think uh, 14th century, maybe 15th century. Um, he was a brilliant military strategist who founded his empire stretched from Afghanistan to Iran to Central Asia, um, also known as a great patron of the arts. Um, this poem was inspired by Thomas Coleridge's uh, Kubla Khan poem, the great Kubla Khan poem of 1797. Who can blame somebody for taking a page from Kubla Khan? There isn't a single dick joke in this <laughs> fucking tome. Yeah. yeah. This poem. Where's what Eddie? What is this? Where's yeah, Eddie? We, I want my nickel where, back. Yeah, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read you just a just a taste of Tamerlane. It's kind of long. I'm not going to read much of it, but I just want you to. What does a 18 year old Poe? What does his po poetry sound like? Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> Tamerlane, kind solace in a dying hour. Such father is not now my theme. I will not madly deem that power of earth may shrive me of the sin on earthly unearthly pride that reveled in i have no time to dote or dream you call it hope that fire of fire it is but agony of desire you, you see this thing that poesing around <laughs> what gary the <laughs> what the hell is what the hell is this buggery <laughs> what is this ah i knew that boy wasn't right uh, you, so, that boy what? wouldn't write. I thought you say I'm gonna you say I'm gonna deliver a book of poems. I think you're 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 being funny. <laughs> right. This isn't funny. There's nothing funny about this. Um, also, also it lacks the the structural integrity and the metaphoric <laughs> lift of Coleridge. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. Yeah, Gary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Gary. <laughs> um yeah, so so <laughs> his poetry, we'll talk a little bit about his poetry. I mean, there would be people who knew him more as a poet, even in his writing career, than as anything else. Um, his poetry, most of it, I'm going to be honest, doesn't do a ton for me personally. Um, but uh, I think it's worth looking at because it's kind of how he starts as a writer. Um, let's read a little bit from uh, a poem called... Uh, I think it's the Conqueror Worm. Is it Conqueror Worm or the, yeah, the Conqueror Worm? And I'll that, just this, yeah, I remember that. 
as a title. Yeah. That's another banger title. Yeah. So let me, I'll just read this whole thing because it's relatively short as far as as Poe's poems go. Well, you do. I'm just going to stand up. I'm going to refill my water. I am listening. You, our listeners, are listening to Art of Darkness. You know that. This is the Mm -hmm. Poe episode. Brad is getting it in. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to read The Conqueror Worm. Yes. You know where to find us. Yeah. Yeah, Artofdarkpod.com. I'm I'm really enjoying myself, Brad. This is Good. fun. I yeah, yeah I knew Poe was going to be interesting, but I am I'm riveted. All right, awesome. bring it on. Excellent. The Conqueror Worm. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theater to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes in the form of God on high mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly mere puppets they who come and go. At bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings, invisible, woe. That motley drama, oh be sure, it shall not be forgot. With its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the selfsame spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. But see amid the mimic rout a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes, with mortal pangs the mimes become its food, and the angels sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm and the angels all pallid and wan uprising unveiling affirm that the play is the tragedy man and its hero the conqueror worm okay now let me read <clears throat> well we'll go i think i was going to read another play poem that's a little bit longer but i really want to spend a little bit of time talking about this piece that Poe wrote. It's sort of an aesthetic statement. It's not a manifesto per se, um, but it's a, an essay he wrote fairly late in life um, called uh, The Poetic Principle. Now, I'm just going to give you, I, I, it's sort of his rules for what makes a good poetry, uh, a good poem, and excuse me, what is valuable about poetry. poetry and it's- I am be- I am back with my my soda water and the the conqueror worm. That's a that's a banger. It's a good that's a good poem. That's a good poem. That's an all time good good poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's dark and it's heavy and it has twists and turns you don't see coming and like you don't expect hmm. it to be about an actual worm, (laughs) sort of right. Like like you think it's going to be all metaphorical or something, but it's not. It's it's good. I, I quite like it. Did I hear the word manifesto? (laughs) <laughs> not quite a manifesto but it is a statement he made of several pages long with which i'm going to read the opening para or two called the poetic principle and this is where he basically it, once once poe got somewhat established and we're getting there he becomes very he becomes very pretentious <laughs> right this is like it's like oh well i will i will tell everyone what the principle of poetry is um <clears throat> quote In speaking of the poetic principle, I have no design to either be thorough or profound. 
while discussing very much at random the essential uh, the essentiality that's a good word of what we call poetry my principal purpose will be to cite for consideration some few of those minor english or american poems which best suit my own taste or which upon my own fancy have left the most definite impression by quote minor poems i mean of course poems of little length and here in the beginning permit me to say a few words in regard to a somewhat peculiar principle which, whether rightfully or wrongfully, has always had its influence in my own critical estimate of the poem. I hold that a long poem does not exist. I maintain that the phrase a long poem is simply a flat contradiction in terms. I need scarcely observe uh, that a poem... Oh, uh, sorry, skipping down. There are no doubt many who have found difficulty in re uh, reconciling the critical dictum that the par that uh, Paradise Lost, John Milton episode, folks, if you haven't checked that out, check that out. Uh, Paradise Lost is to be devoutly admired throughout with the absolute impossibility of maintaining for it during perusal the amount of enthusiasm which that critical dictum would demand. So he's basically saying like, what a poem is trying to accomplish you can't make it hundreds of pages long. Like it fundamentally, you're trying to create an acute emotional sensation and you literally can't do that over the course of hundreds of pages. So he calls a uh, paradise lost, a sequence of poems. If you were to uh, take each book or each section as its own poem, then okay, that's a poem. That's a poem. That's a poem. And they all line up and they link together. It's a pretty, pretty bold statement for a fellow who, has yet to write anything like right. the quality of Paradise Lost or, or much like the great comedy from, from Dante. Right, right. Yeah, he doesn't say anything about Dante, but I, he would throw, I mean, that would fit in what he's saying here as well. Um, <clears throat> in regard to the Iliad, we have, if not positive proof, at least very good reason for believing it intended as a series of lyrics. But granting the epic intention, I can say only that the work is based in an imperfect sense of art. The modern epic is of the... Suppositious ancient model, but an inconsiderate and blindfold imitation. But the day of these artistic anomalies is over. If at any time any very long poem were popular in reality, which I doubt, it is at least clear that no very long poem will ever be popular again. One more little bit from this. <clears throat> On the other hand, it is clear that a poem may be improperly brief. Undue brevity degenerates into mere epigrammatism. A very short poem, while now and then producing a brilliant or vivid, uh, never produces a profound or enduring effect. There must be the steady pressing down of the stamp upon the wax. I really like that analogy, that a poem has to have a, the steady pressing down uh, of the stamp upon the wax. You have to make the feeling happen. Um, Poe did not care for allegory, though he sometimes delved into allegory. Um, he thought that stories were meant to, in a, in a fairly modern sense, were meant to entertain and to engender a feeling. They were supposed to make you feel a certain way. Um, and so he often was at odds with other writers of his day who were sort of thought more that 
literature was cerebral, high-minded. Right. It, it sort of yeah. it should elevate the rational right. faculties and make us more uh, right. reasonable creatures. It, it, right. You know, maybe spark empathy, but we don't want to get carried away, do we? Right. And, right. And I'll tell you that there are way more of those people now who who think they're more like Poe. Right. But they're way more doing the other thing. Uh, <laughs> That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, they yeah. don't want to be wayward, Brad. We're right. we all have to have careers here at the end of the day. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right, yeah. Course. If you're if you if you wear the wrong thing to your book, your book coming out, <gasps> the co- the coverage is going to be scathing, Brad. Right. <laughs> when we what are we going to wear to next year's Art of Darkness live in Detroit, Brad? We have to begin planning. Well, I, I was, surely. Designer. I was going to wear this. I don't know. Oh I... shit! Yeah, I don't know. I, I might. I'll probably wash this first. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could grow my beard back, so I can yeah. put. I got to put. I got to get my beard back so I can put a little bird in it for Heart of Darkness Live. <laughs> We've been preparing this episode all month. The bird yeah. is vested in Kevin's beard. <laughs> now we're going to be doing. Did, have we announced who we're going to do for for the live? I don't show think next we year? have. Maybe let's announce features. it right now. Ooh. Oh yeah, let's let's, let's announce it right okay. now. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. So we, we've we've done one Art of Darkness live so far. Yeah. F. Scott Fitzgerald here in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota. So much fun. Next year, date TBD because yeah. uh, I'm, ex- I'm expecting another child. Let's so Woo. just there you go. Whoop party. Okay. So at a certain point, that will happen. Uh, my life will become just that much crazier. And yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, please uh, pray pray for us if you're of that of that disposition, or send us some some thinky thunks and thoughts. Um, but w- around that that blessed event, uh, assuming everything goes well, um, uh, and of course it will. Uh, Brad and I are going to do an Art of Darkness live episode. Where Brad in Detroit. Detroit, Michigan, sunny Detroit, Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, the Paris of uh, America. Yeah. And and who are we going to do when we do Art of Darkness Live in Michigan 2024? After after much consternation, we've decided that we are going to cover the great Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Why? Because what's the, the Detroit connection? He spent a number of years as a teenager in Detroit in a famous school that's right up the road here so yeah perfect okay so you have that to look forward to Mm -hmm. in 2024 if you're in or around uh, detroit you'll be able to drive down the road the rest Mm -hmm. of you can come and visit and and join us and we'll do the live show and and uh, maybe i'll have a bird in my beard maybe i won't (laughs) uh it's gonna be but i'm really excited for that brad and we're gonna have to talk more on a back channel and, and make plans yeah there's some planning to do but it's happening Boy, aren't you glad that you're listening to the this episode now, folks? Now you know where the live show is going to be next year, right here yeah. in the middle of this Poe episode. I'm excited. Yeah. This is going to yeah, be fun. Yeah, yeah. Doing yeah, it live, exactly. doing it live was a lot of fun. That too. That it was. Yeah, it was a different. I mean, it, it's a whole different animal than what, how we do this. I mean, yeah, I, I just yeah. pretend that I'm talking to you. Right. Right. I'm I'm increasingly conscious that there is an audience <laughs> on the yeah. other side of this. Yeah. Um, it's a, maybe that's a problem. I don't yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. If you're listening to this, though, we do appreciate it. Hopefully you're enjoying this episode. And if you're in the area uh, you know, of Detroit, when we drop that, definitely please come yeah, out. Be great. We're going to make it a, a fun time. All right, Absolutely. Brad, where were we in the uh, Poe trajectory? Poe is in the army. 
Um, mm. he hung he he enlisted just as a private or whatever, the lowest rank you can walk in the door as. Um, and he, while in the army, he got a promotion first to artificer, in which he apparently prepared artillery shells. Um, he gets to the point where he's making something like three or four hundred dollars a month, which um, you know, uh, isn't and that's in today's dollars. Uh, sorry, so not great. Um, by but in today's dollars, he's making that. Oof, yeah. But you, you know, yeah. they're feeding yeah. you, yeah. and they're yeah, he's in the army. He's so got yeah, three hots and a cot or whatever they right. say. But right. yeah, but still, not a ton of money. Um, mm. by 1829, uh, he would be promoted to regimental sergeant major, which is the highest rank an enlisted man can could acquire, maybe even still, certainly at the time. Um. He reconnected to his foster father somewhat. Remember, he basically bailed out of the house and like disappeared and enlisted in the army under another name, right? But he's kind of reconnected with his foster father to a certain extent, John Allen. I'm going to read you a little bit of this letter he wrote to him. Uh, See, Um, is that right? Uh, Yeah. Um, Let's see. Thinking of his recently published volume of poetry, Poe begged his father not to, quote, throw me aside as degraded. I will be an honor to your name. Now, this time, instead of meaningless threats, um, Poe bade uh, Alan a theatrical adieu and, like the hero of a melodrama, claimed that Alan's rejection would inspire his quest for success. And this is part of the letter here. Quote, if you determine to abandon me, here I t- uh, here take I my farewell. Neglected, I will be doubly ambitious, and the world shall hear of the son whom you have thought unworthy of your notice. Ten days later... On January 1st, 1829, Poe, having shot up in only 19 months to the highest rank an enlisted man could attain, right? So he's really trying to make a go of it in the army. Um, he, you know, he, he wants this to succeed. He's, he's, he's feeling ambitious. This is, a, um, this is a turn I did not see coming. I did not yeah. see Poe thriving as a military uh, figure. Right, so very right. interesting. Okay. He's yeah. pulling himself together. Yes. Yes. Now, mm. We're up for a quick, a fairly quick turn. He eventually, after about two years, wants out. He's he's not really fit for the military. He's managed to kind of like stomach it and push through, but he's a poet. He's a scholar. He's a writer. The army's not exactly the place for him. Um, and unfortunately, you know, they're also he'd also like hit the ceiling on how far he could go with it too he'd sort of gotten promoted as far as he get promoted and he's like now what you know i'm a ma- I, I made for greater things than this yeah so yeah I, I, right. i've been on rogan right uh, my, my, my <laughs> books aren't selling anymore yeah uh I, probably the only thing that's going to help me is uh some sort yeah. of a serious addiction and rehab somewhere like siberia <laughs> Right, right. That'll help my career. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he's got nowhere to go. Yeah. Now, the the sort of final straw of this is when his um, foster mother, Frances Allen, dies in early 1829. He has a brief reconciliation with his father sort of around that, right? I mean, it's his, it's his foster father's wife and she's died. And so, of course, that, that kind of brings them together a little bit. Um, uh, and Poe finally in this time manages to convince his foster father to write a letter getting him out of the army. He needs a letter from his father to get out of the army. I don't think, I don't know what the rules are now to get out of the army, but apparently (laughs) this is what he had to do. He also had to pay for his own substitute. So he had to, he had to find somebody to replace him in his regiment. 
and pay for that person to take that spot. Hmm. Um, that's, that's so that's wild because we have the same clause on this podcast. If, if either <laughs> one of us wants to take a break, we have yeah. to find our, our substitute. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. I'm, tr- I'm currently training an AI. To, oh no! I am. Is, wait, I am too. Wait. Yeah, I'm to, the AI is gonna gonna make mediocre jokes. It's yeah. gonna, you know, it's gonna. But I have to have a comprehensive knowledge of the University of Minnesota. His <laughs> <laughs> AI is gonna be wild, man. You aren't even gonna notice. I'm. Yeah. I'm just gonna slip him in. Yeah. It, it's gonna be like one of these doppelgangers from a post right. story. Yeah. For yeah. people watching on YouTube, you'll know it's Kevin's been AI this entire episode. <laughs> this entire time <laughs> let's stay one yeah um so okay so he gets out of the army now he moves to baltimore and he lives with a cousin and he looks uh, looks for work 1829 he uh basically republishes but with some additional poems a 250 copy edition of tamerlane and other poems um now Modest beginnings, but here is something to sort of chew on. He puts this book out. I think he, I could be wrong, but I think he put this book out himself. I think this is another self-published deal. Um, not too many years ago, at auction, the last surviving copy of this book fetched the highest price ever paid for a book by an American. What was it? Uh, I don't remember actually. Maybe look. Oh, at, oh yeah, I'll look I, it up. I, 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 I must have yeah. missed it. Yeah, Tamerlane and other poems. Poe auction price. Um, so just self-published. I mean, you know, th- impressive. I mean, he does this in college as an army gr- uh, army grunt. Nobody nobody's paying any attention Yo. to it. How much Yo. was it? In December of 2009, a fairly yeah. worn original copy of Tamerlane and Other Poems sold at Christie's Auction House in New York for a whopping $662,500. Yeah. For, that established a record previous to this record setter, the last known copy to have sold at auction fetched a quarter of a million. Yeah. So, whoa, doggy. Yeah. You too can yeah. self publish. Yeah. Homes that alienate you from your drinking buddies. <laughs> <laughs> and later, someone yeah. will get a healthy commission right. on that. Yeah. Someone yep. else will sell it for more money than you made in your entire life. In, right. Yeah. Yeah. You t- <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Hey, he's still, he was the literary it girl of New York City that's there right. for a minute, Brad. Yeah, Even as a, as a ghost, as yeah. a spooky, haunting literary, literary it girl. Just yeah. fabulous. Hovering yeah. over, over Christie's auction house. Yeah. muttering yeah. <laughs> you know if only i could have seen some of that money in my lifetime i Indeed. too could have thrown fabulous parties <laughs> uh, okay he's in baltimore he's basically extracted himself from the army he's got a book of poems out there that nobody has read what does he do next what is he going to do he can't seem to make scratch in baltimore he decides He's going to go to West Point. Now, become an officer. Yeah, I think what happened is, and he never says this anywhere, but I think what happened is he got bored of the army. He leaves or, or just didn't like the army, you know, whatever. He leaves. He goes in Baltimore for a while, can't make a go of it. And then he decides, well, he's like, hey, you know, I was actually pretty good at the army thing. 
Like maybe what I just need to do, I need to level up, right? I need to, what's the next? Okay, if you go to West Point, then I'll be in off. Maybe I can, you know, I think he saw it as like a fallback plan and something he could make a living at. Yeah. Well, and he shows up in the Christian Bale movie. Yes, uh, he does. The pale blue eye. Yes. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I knew I knew this. I knew that he was at West Point. But right. Yeah. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. the the, the, con, uh, the, con, the premise of the pale blue eye is that there is a, a murder or a series of murders on the West Point campus. Christian Bale is a sort of like drunken detective kind of guy who shows up and Poe helps him solve the crime. Um, which we'll get to why some other reasons why that's interesting from a sort of literary history standpoint a little bit later. Um, so he gets into West Point, um, gets some help from his father. Remember, his father is perhaps the wealthiest man in Virginia. So that doesn't hurt. Um, and he gets to West Point in the year 1830, just one year after the graduation of Robert E. Lee. You know what I thought was interesting? West Point's been around forever. Apparently, Poe is like the only writer to come out of West Point. There's like hmm. no other. I mean, well, I'm sure there's people who've written like autobiographies and stuff, but like, that's it. He's the only one. I mean, that's not really what that that school is designed to produce. It's uh, not. It's not. Yeah. But so, but you're, it, it does attract a, a lot of brain power. Absolutely. You know it's, what I mean? It's a very prestigious institution. It really uh, is. Yeah. And also an absolutely beautiful part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've never been there there specifically, but I'm sort of familiar with. Yeah, the, H- the, the Hudson region. Valley is uh, just an incredible region. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, okay. Here's a bit from the Myers biography about West Point. Quote, Poe was distinctly ill-suited to the rigors of life at West Point. In order to develop Spartan character and discipline in the cadets, the academy required attendance at church, minute regulation of daily life, cold rooms in winter and hot ones in summer, inferior food, and no recreation. Uh, Thayer and his successors prescribed uh, harmless as well as pernicious pursuits. Um, forbidding the candidates, uh, the cadets to drink, play cards or chess, gamble, use or possess tobacco, keep any cooking utensils in their room, participate in any games, read novels, romances or plays, go off the post, bathe in the river or play any musical instruments. Unlike the University of Virginia, which encouraged uh, Poe's tendency uh, to gamble and drink, the academy imposed intolerable discipline and severe punishments for any breach of the rules. Um, now, he did fairly well in the academic portion, at least. He was third in his class of 87 in um, the f- subject of French, and he was 13th in math. So he's he's always a good student. He's a smart, he's, I mean, he's a smart guy. There's just like no way of getting around it. Um, here is a bit about uh, an observation about Poe at the time. Uh, Alan Magruder, a classmate from Virginia who left the academy in 1831, mentioned the intellectual ability that enabled Poe to excel without effort. Uh, but he also stressed the lack of interest in routine military duties, which he had mastered during his two years in the army. <laughs> He's, uh, Alan Magruder says, quote, Poe was very shy and reserved in his intercourse with his fellow cadets, his associates being confined almost exclusively to Virginians. He was an accomplished French scholar and had a wonderful aptitude for mathematics so that he had no difficulty in preparing his recitations in his class and attaining the highest marks in these departments. He was a devourer of books, but his fault, uh, great fault was his neglect of an apparent contempt for military duties. 
His wayward and capricious temper made him at times utterly oblivious or indifferent to the ordinary routine of roll call drills and guard duties. These habits subjected him often to arrest and punishment and effectively prevented his learning or discharging the uh, duties of a soldier. It'd be real tough at West Point if you're like, nah, I ain't going to do that. Nah, nah, it's not for me, nah, man. I don't, yeah. nah, I don't feel like yeah. guard duty. Yeah, yeah. I don't really. I don't, it's not how I roll. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here. I'm go over here. And do yeah, something else. That, you, that works real well, right? <laughs> now, Jeez. so ultimately, Poe decides that it is time, in fact, time to get out. Now, he had to ask his father, foster father, for help doing this. Now, remember, he he goes in the army, calls up his, or writes up his foster father a little while later. Says, "Dad, I want out of this. Can you get me out of this?" Okay, he does. Goes to Baltimore and kind of doesn't really know what he's doing for a while. Then he asks his foster father, can you help me get into West Point? Foster father does it. Year or so later, can you help me get out of West Point? It's like, no, dude, you're on your, like, you got to stick to something, bro. Like, you can't just, you know, and at and this point, I sympathize with his foster father. Like, no. Yeah. 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 Your major um, gambling debts. Right. Your your self-publishing poems oh my god <laughs> right 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 um uh yeah so so okay so how does poe po does get out though and this is how he does it he simply stops doing it he doesn't show up to drills he doesn't carry out the duties he's supposed to carry out he stops going to class um he's still on campus living in his room he just doesn't do anything whoa um, and then he gets uh, intentionally to get himself court-martialed. And because he knew that court-martial didn't mean you'd get expelled, he pled not guilty to the charges, right? Because that amplifies the pun. They're like, we'll just get rid of this. We got to just get rid of this guy. Um, so, you know, February of 1831, he is court-martialed and summarily dismissed from West Point. Um, now... What is oh and and also in this process he and his foster father John Allen they're they're basically done like any idea that he was going to get the inheritance any idea that they were going to come to friendly terms as he grew in adulthood it's over well it's reaching a point now too where you're embarrassing him yeah he again yeah, yeah he's a prominent he's one of the wealthiest man men in the state and his son just brought up on charges at West Point for failure to do anything at all. And then pled not guilty like a jackass, right? Like, it, yeah, it's yeah. not, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You can see, yeah, you can see why his foster father's a little, a little uh, uh, miffed at him. Now, after West Point, there's actually a few years that are fairly obscure, and there's not that much that is known about what he was up to. He's desperately poor. Is about the only thing that we know for sure. Um, at these were the these are the the neat years. Yeah, the neat years. The, mm-hmm. He was. This N-E-E-T. is when he was. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is when he was especially especially wayward. Uh, one thing. Uh, oh, it, so this is where he he reconnects with some family. This is his his father's widowed sister. This woman, uh, Maria Clem, and Maria Clem's excuse me daughter Virginia Clem. He hooks up with them somehow in. Uh, uh, I think in Philadelphia, I believe it's Philadelphia. Um, they live uh, together. The three of them live in one house together for a while off of a soldier's pension. That's this is actually General Poe's 
pension, the the old grandfather Poe, the the last remaining bits of it, um, and they live off the sewing that Maria Clem can bring in. Um, Poe would eventually come to refer to Maria Clem, his aunt, as mother. He would even write a sonnet to her called To My Mother in later years. And they really stuck by each other. Maria and Poe, his aunt, they stuck by each other till he died, right? Um, he took when he could, he mm. took care of him of her, and when he couldn't, she took care of him. Um, it's kind of yeah. It is lovely. I'm glad that this has happened because yeah. it's, it was starting to look pretty gnarly for our our hero here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it still yeah. gets pretty gnarly, but like this is like a life raft kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, he also comes back in. Um, this would be in the early 1830s. He comes back into semi regular contact with his brother, who had been raised by General Poe when Poe's parents died. Um, but sadly, this is like this is a kind of a crazy story. Uh, not long after they reconnect, uh, this is Henry, Henry Poe. Henry drinks himself to death. He's like 24 years old and he drinks himself to death, possibly with a touch of tuberculosis uh, along with it. This leaves Poe and his erratic, delusional sister down in Richmond, Virginia, as the only Poe's. And I don't think either of them had children. Uh, well, I know Ed- Edgar didn't, but I don't think Rosalie had children. Um, now, Poe, of course, has been writing through this time. And in 1832, he gets his first uh, publication uh, that's other than his Tamerlane and his poem and other poems. This is a short story called uh, Metzengerstein, uh, gothic supernatural horror in the vein of E.T.A. Hoffman. Uh, it, quote, uh, depicts pathological emotional states, subconscious criminal impulses, and a poetic atmosphere that combined realistic and supernatural worlds. It's very gothic. It's 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 kind of a masterful piece of gothic uh, literature. I don't think it's uh, earth shattering in any particular way. It does involve a haunted horse, which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, it's a nice it's a nice little story. Maybe not where I'd start if I hadn't read any Poe before. Um, in 18- the, the full title is uh, Metzengerstein, a tale in imitation of the German. Yeah, the German is E.T.A. Hoffman, is the writer E.T.A. Mm. Hoffman. Ah, He's I see. Him as okay. the German. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Metzengerstein. Um, Metzengerstein. Mm. Yeah, that's it. It's getting so much better, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> I <German>. did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, 1833, Poe enters six stories into a a contest in the Baltimore Saturday Visitor. The story uh, MS in a Bottle, Manuscript in a Bottle, won the $50 prize. And I think that's like around $1,500 in today's money. That's Um, not too bad. That's a good prize. That's a good prize. That's a nice little, no writer is going to turn that down uh, even now. Yeah. Yeah. And and the prestige that comes with that. Yeah. 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 We, We say this on the pod. And I'm going to say it again for anybody yeah. who's listening, who is of means, who bought who bought Doge early <laughs> right uh, time, or yeah. whatever. If you anybody who actually loves their children, uh, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're, really, though, you could do so much for the arts and letters by just endowing like a five thousand dollar annual prize with your yeah. name on it. That yeah. gives some sort of prestige. The real challenge is administrative. Like, how do you actually take submissions, right. manage submissions, who it's, chooses? It's, it's all that stuff. But yeah. 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 If you're if you're a motivated person and you want to support the arts, the best the very best thing you can do is don't send your money to a university. Don't send your money to an arts institution unless you vet that institution to find out how much money they put in the hands of artists directly. Right. Right. But like right. direct material support for artists. 
that's yeah, that's where huge. it's right. I think that's the future, frankly. But it, that's a bit of an aside. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad that he won an award. Did, yeah. Did, yeah. He, did he win it for which story? Uh, it's called MS in a Bottle. Okay, manuscript in yeah, a bottle. Manuscript yeah, cool. in a bottle. It's quite. It's quite good. It's. It's got seafaring element. He's already doing these sort of supernatural, psychological thrill. It, it's. It's good. I would actually re- recommend this as in his his sort of upper, maybe upper quartile of. of and these are stories. these are stories he's writing like in his Philadelphia days. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Eighteen thirty-three. Yeah, I believe he's still in Philadelphia now. He he moves around so much; it's a little hard to keep track. But I'm pretty mm. sure he's mm. in, in Philadelphia at the time. Um, though this is in a Baltimore newspaper. Um, so he might actually be in Baltimore by this point. Whatever the case, he's okay. gonna yeah. he's gonna bounce around. Um, he 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 submitted poems in this as well, and this is where we get the the con- very contentious poe. He submits some poems which did not win. Um, he took he takes this part of it personally. The fact that he, his poems didn't win, uh, especially when he finds out that the newspaper's editor had won under a pseudonym. Oh. Um, Damn scandalous. Yeah. Poe confronts the man in the street. This guy is named John Hewitt. Let me just read you this this little anecdote about what happens when he confronts him in the street. Um Poe is uh a Poe is temperamental. Um Poe's, quote, Poe's aggressive behavior on the streets of Baltimore. So he was living in Baltimore at the time uh, when he encountered John Hewitt, the editor of the Saturday Visitor, who had submitted his own poem under a pseudonym and won the prize, showed his deep resentment about the matter and provoked a physical assault. According to Hewitt, Poe approached him with an ominous scowl and sternly said, you have used underhanded means, sir, to obtain that prize over me. I deny it, sir, was my reply. Then why did you keep back your real name? I had my reasons, and you have no right to question me. But you have tampered with the committee, sir. The committee are gentlemen above being tampered with, sir. I agree that the committee are gentlemen, replied he, his dark eyes flashing with anger. But I cannot place you in that category. My blood mounted up to fever heat in a moment, and with my usual impulsiveness, I dealt him a blow which staggered him for i was physically his superior become wayward (laughs) i love this Uh, dude i I love somebody who takes this this seriously yeah 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 well he felt like he'd gotten cheated you know Mm. and yeah you gotta there are times to stand up for yourself you know that's being cheated is one of them right Mm. um now he starts to make in these in this era, you know, his first couple of publications, he starts to make some literary friends. One of the judges of the contest he wins is this prominent lawyer named John Pendleton Kennedy, which I don't know if it has any relation to the Kennedy family. It may or may not. Um, and this guy becomes something of a patron for a little while. Um, let me read a little bit about this, because you remember Poe is desperately poor at this time. Um this is from this is from John Kennedy, uh, John Pendleton Kennedy, quote, I have never known nor heard of anyone. And he's talking about Poe, whose life so curiously illustrated that twofold existence of the spiritual and the carnal disputing the control of the man, which has often made the theme of fiction. He was debauched by the most groveling appetites and exalted by the richest concept uh, conceptions of genius. Um, and let me give you a little um a bit about uh this is from another guy that ran the contest this guy john latrobe 
um, talking about Poe because I want to give you he's like an adult now right up until now uh, I'm reading about this Pendleton Kennedy and I, it yeah. doesn't appear that he's related to okay. you know the other obvious just but a, just, yeah, just just at a glance if anybody just knows another. different yeah yeah just another just Kennedy another. just another yeah. famous John Kennedy yeah <laughs> uh, I mean this guy this guy has a serious Wikipedia page does he's, he really oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um Here's a from another uh, j- contest judge, John Latrobe, talking about Poe. I, I just be I like this because it gives you a picture of, of uh, we get a good image of of Poe, what he looked like, what he seemed like. Quote: He was, if anything, below the middle size, and yet could not be described as a small man. His figure was remarkably good, and he carried himself erect and well, as one who had been trained to it. He was dressed in black, and his frock coat was buttoned to the throat, where it met the black stock, then almost universally worn. Not a particle of white was visible. Coat, hat, boots, and gloves had very evidently seen their best days, but so far as mending and brushing go, everything had been done, apparently, to make them presentable. On most men, his clothes would have looked shabby and seedy, but there was something about this man that prevented one from criticizing his garments. The impression made, however, was that the award in Mr. Poe's favor was not inopportune. The, the prize, they were like, oh, he probably really needed that. Um, this is what everybody said about Poe. He he would dress very well and his clothes would be good clothes and clean, but shabby. Like, you know, he's like wearing the same thing. It's a very nice outfit that he presses and cleans, but he wears it every day for months on end. And just yeah. to be clear, grunge had not happened yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, exactly. This, this wasn't a look you could pull off. There was no. a time where people would judge you by how well yeah, how many holes clothes were tailored. Yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, the biggest thing that Kennedy, this Kennedy fellow ends up doing was to hook Poe up with a gig working for a gentleman named Thomas Willis White at the Southern Literary Messenger based in Richmond, Virginia, which is where sort of where Poe is from. Poe was born in Boston, but his childhood is overseas and in Richmond, Virginia. Uh for this job, he's doing basically every task imaginable for the most money he's ever made, which still is something like $400 a week in today's dollars. It's still not very much money, even though it's the most money he's ever made. Um, this is uh, the middle of this is 1835 where this is going on. He gets this job, the Southern Literary Messenger. Now, he starts uh here we get the first instantiation of a cycle that happens several times for poe he gets an editing job he's actually really really good at it um his boss thinks he's talented he's making big contributions including actual pieces of his own writing um but like every other one he's underpaid he and he eventually becomes difficult to deal with. He becomes uh, uh, erratic and one might say even wayward. Okay, our favorite <laughs> word here. Yeah, we got it. I, we, I'm we. i really glad. That's my new favorite word. It's a good word. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, I, this- I really am. I, I'm feeling like a future merch opportunity. Yeah. We yeah. do have a little bit. You go to the website, artofdarkpod.com. Mm-hmm. There's a link to a, a bonfire. I, yeah. I'm feeling like we need a become wayward shirt or mug. I like that. Good one. It's a keeper. Yeah. Now 
Now, it, whenever he had these issues at these journals, there was always a sort of a the, the general cause is that he's Edgar Allan Poe. But there's always a sort of approximate cause. Like, what's the kickoff of the thing? Right. He's doing well. He's publishing articles, blah, 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 blah. Now, this time. So this move, he makes this move from Baltimore to Richmond. It's still fairly on in his relationship with his aunt Maria Clem and Maria's daughter and post cousin Virginia. And so he's left them behind. He's sending them some money, but he's left them behind in Baltimore. Um, and it turns out that Poe's cousin Nielsen Poe is starting to make advances to Aunt Maria and Virginia and saying, just come, you should just come live with me. I'll take care of you. And this enrages Edgar because Edgar seemed to want to eventually marry Virginia, his cousin. She's like 13 at this time, but I think the idea is like eventually they would get married, right? Okay. Now, there's been some scholarly debate about this, and we're going to get into it eventually here. Um, but let me tell you, this is this is from Thomas Willis White. And, and so smashing the age gap button. Bro, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Poe's getting all distressed about the situation going up. Basically, I might lose Virginia, right? Right. Um, right. This prospect, this woman that I might eventually want to marry. Well, and it might have also offended his sensibility of like as a man, like this is my unit and you're interjecting. I, I, yeah. I think yeah. I think that's I think that's part of it too. I think it's like I'm sending money back. I'm trying to build something here. I'm gonna take care of these people. They took care of they took me in and I'm gonna, you know, I think that's the most charitable version of this. But it certainly bothered him and preoccupied him and stressed him out that this was going on back up in in Baltimore. Um let, let's uh yeah let me read this little bit. This is a uh uh about his boss. Uh, responding to this. <clears throat> White, that's his boss, told uh, Lucian Minor, a temperance advocate and frequent contributor to the Southern Literary Messenger, that's the magazine Poe worked on, that drink and depression had driven the unstable young man to the verge of suicide. Quote, Poe is now in my employ, not as editor. He is unfortunately rather dissipated, and therefore I can place very little reliance upon him. His disposition is quite amiable. He will become some assistance to me in proofreading. But Poe but po has flew the track already. His habits were not good. He is, in addition, the victim of melancholy. I should not be at all astonished to hear that he has been guilty of suicides. Of suicide? Suicide. Um, this letter may have, in fact, started the rumor in the literary world that Poe was not quite sane. Eesh. Oof. <sighs> So, yeah, that's tough. You're trying to employ this kid and it's like you're basically saying he's erratic, he's depressed, he's he's got bad habits. We know what that means. Yeah, right. And he's a lot to deal with. But he's right. but he has potential. Yeah, he's it, good. He's talented, he's smart. And when he's not drunk, he's like a reasonable guy, you know. Mm. Yeah. And people would often talk about how well man he was like a southern gentleman or at least positioned posed himself as that. So if you caught him on a day when he was not in some strange mood or intoxicated or coming off a bender, he would be a very reasonable person. People would say he was very good in conversation. He seemed like he was really listening to you and he always had something to contribute. You know, there's. And a man, a man of letters yes. uh, and an educated man. Yeah. Right. Right. Now he does. So white Thomas Willis white fires him 
and then hires him back and then Poe begs to get the job back and he gets hired back. He apparently went sober for a while. And then Poe on the second round convinces the Clems to come down to Richmond. So he moves Aunt Maria and Virginia down, down to Richmond where he's now going to be, he's going to be their financial support. Um, and like happens in many men, the burden of responsibility sharpens him up. Right. The fact mm. that it's like it's on you now, buddy, like it actually he gets he gets himself together a bit um, by early 1836. He is the capital E editor of the Southern Literary Messenger. He's, the you know, he's not the owner, but he's the top dog. OK, now Poe, the editor for mo- for many people in Poe's time, if you knew who Poe was, you would know him as an editor and a critic. That's how you would know him. Some people would know him as a poet. Some people would know him as an editor and critic. Some people would know him as a short story writer. Some people, of course, all all of these things combined. Poe would become, as a critic, would become practically a household name, at least in literary households. You know, if you got books on the shelf, you probably are familiar with Poe's reviews of this or that. Um, uh, Though, you know, much of the so he's cranking out stuff for the messenger, the Southern literary messenger. And a lot of it is, is sort of rushed out. It, do, it doesn't always, you know, show how brilliant he is. Um, at the same time, apparently during this time, he was working all day in the library and deliberately using the work he was doing for the su- Southern literary messenger to expand his erudition. He's like, I am going to learn as much as I can in order to write this review. I'm going to read this book, that book, and this book. And I'm going to use this as a template, as a springboard to get smarter. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I will say it's one of the perks of doing Art of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Not that we're editors of a fancy magazine or anything, right, but right. one of the perks of this show is the, I can't say how how often it comes up naturally. In conversation, someone yeah. mentions a figure and you go, oh, and you try to not be insufferable right, <laughs> about right, it. Right. right? right. But it, yeah. it's an interesting thing about about doing this show. Yeah, this is a maybe this is maybe a good li- like life hack, no life hack. Right. Yeah. Like if you're yeah. in a position in a job to gobble up knowledge on the job and right. get paid to do it. Yeah. Use that to ratchet the two up because it made him a better critic, too. Right. But it also mm. turned into, you know, you read a book and. For the rest of your life, you've read it. So, yeah. Um, now, he uses his his position here to, in 1836, to publish a play he'd written called uh, Palatin or Politan? Pal- Palatin? Not, not Palatin. <laughs> uh, P-O-L-I-T-A-N. Palatin. Pal- whatever. Huh. It's about yeah. an actual murder that happened down in Kentucky that had become something of a legend. Uh, as a play, it did not engender much enthusiasm unfortunately but um he starts to publish i, I would say i would say politian or politian but, but it's just t-a-n no i i'm seeing i looked it up you might have a typo i oh, looked it up possible. it's uh yeah, yeah p-o-l-i-t-i-a-n so oh yeah yeah politian yeah 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 mm-hmm. you got yeah. it okay. I, missed, I just yep. missed a keystroke i think that's all um, right uh okay so he okay. He starts to he he's using this also not only to expand his erudition, but he's using it as an opportunity to put his own stories in. You're the editor. Editor, it is your job to fill space in the magazine, right? You got to sell those ads. You got to sell those ads. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you it, it, why why can't it be you, right? There's um, this there's this novel called Nutcranker by a fellow right. named Dan Baltic, and and uh, I really think people are gonna love it. 
<laughs> lawyer shows the lawyer, by lawyer. the way. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, let me read you a little bit of... Um, Oh, he's, so he starts he starts publishing himself and he's yeah. the editor and yeah. Does he do it under his own name? He's just like yeah. hey, oh yeah. cool. And people oh, nice. like it. People people like it. That's the other thing. Like it works. Oh, I'm so happy. Part. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy yeah. for him. I'm so yeah. happy that he got to this point. Yeah. Yeah. Now let me read you from one of the stories he published in the Southern Literary Messenger in the mid 18 I think this is 1837, possibly. <clears throat> Uh, this is a story called Berenice. He has a number of short stories that are just the titles of them are the names of women. Um, this one is Berenice. <clears throat> Quote, Berenice and I were cousins and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom. She, agile, graceful and overflowing with energy. Hers, the ramble on the hillside. Mine, the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Berenice! I call upon her name, Berenice, and from the gray ruins of memory, a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her lightheartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty. Oh, sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim. Oh, naiad among its fountains. And then, then all is mystery and terror and a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon her frame. And even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her, her habits and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where is she? I know her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. Now, this is a story, I'll give you a spoiler alert. Um, this is a story where we we see Poe reaching out past simple Gothic uh, superna- and supernatural into full-on horror. Um And Berenice, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The narrator has this thing where he becomes incredibly fixated on things. That's like his his pathology. He becomes like, he'll just like stare at a thing for hours on end. And at one point he gets obsessed with Berenice's teeth. He's just staring at them, staring at them. And then Berenice dies and she's buried. And overnight, um, somebody robs the grave and and our narrator sitting in bed and the housemaid or whatever comes to alert him that the the grave has been robbed. And it turns out that in like a fugue state, he has robbed her grave and taken her teeth out of her head. Oh, damn. Yeah. It's intense. Oh, that is dark, man. It's super dark. Yes. Yeah. And he didn't like... He, he, and so you've got all these sort of and is, is he conf- he's confessing it in the narration well, he, or yes he gets caught at the end like he comes to the realization that he did it like oh, he didn't wow. even know he was doing it right so you've got this like he's like deranged in a fugue state when he went and did it it's very it's it's good it's very effective and unsettling and it's, it's like a weird idea. fetishistic yeah and it's it's gory and like the idea of taking the teeth out of of a a, you know a a dead person it's all pretty yeah and and if you as a person if you become acutely aware of your own teeth have you ever done that where you sort of fixate on it you go yeah got bones i got bones in my face right (laughs) it's a very it's it's uncanny yeah oh yeah well have you ever had the dream of your teeth are falling out 
Oh, dude, yeah, grinding and everything. Super oh, it's unsettling. so painful. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, you like I've dreamed where I've like looked in the mirror and I like, Kink. oh, uh, yeah, and my yeah, teeth are yeah. falling. Out. Oh, oh. Yeah. anyway, so a very effective story. And like I said, moving just past just the like the wispy ghostly romances of gothic and adding this other like physically disturbing element right um now a story he writes after this typifies another genre that poe worked in and and frankly innovated in within profoundly this is a story called uh hans p-f-a-a-l-l hans fall i think hans fall yeah yeah. um so the full title (laughs) of it is the unparalleled adventure of one Hans Fall. Uh, yeah, fall. And, fall. and uh, yeah. this is a story that capitalizes on the uh, interest in the balloon, like the hot air balloon. The balloon had been invented in the late 1700s, right? So this is only like 30 or 40 years later. The balloon that and Poe would have three different prominent stories featuring balloons. Um, this balloon ends up on the moon. It's a moon balloon. Uh, oh. <laughs> uh Myers Myers I, I did read I did read it it's pr- it's pretty good it's not my favorite um Meyer Jeffrey Myers describes it as having all the reality of Daniel Defoe all the weirdness of ETA Hoffman and a de- demonstrable introduction of scientific techno and technological knowledge into fiction if one were to trace the origins this the history of science fiction it's not that Poe's story starts it but it is an important way point on the like jules verne had read this story right um uh who's the other big science fiction writer of that day i'm just blanking on his name uh hg uh, wells had read oh, this well, story you right? got it yeah. yeah so so he this is an important story in the if you want to understand the lineage of science fiction um and poe would have other stories that were science fiction and there's nothing horrific about it there's nothing gothic about it it's it's a you would recognize it as a science fiction story just before we have much of the technology, a lot of the technology that we have now. Um, it has all that G whiz vibe to it. Yeah. I like to say, you know, we're going to take a balloon to the moon. Right. We're going right. to space. Right. And yeah, they encounter like creatures a... there. And yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. a whole, it's yeah, a whole fun. Thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a um, smashing pumpkins video now. <laughs> exactly. I thought, I totally thought about that when I, when I, when I was reading it. Um, now, while Poe is working in the Southern Literary Messenger in the 1830s, he's an editor, and so he becomes something of a public intellectual. So, like, like let's look a moment at his uh, some of the th- other things that he did. Um, he int- he. Uh, this is from the Jeffrey Myers, bi- Myers biography. Quote: He introduced a series of articles on quote autography which discussed how handwriting revealed character, included physical descriptions of the authors who sent in their signatures and indulged in a bit of literary gossip. W.H. Uh, Auden uh, later expressed a commonly held view of Poe's literary journalism by stating that much of his best criticism will never be read wild- widely because it lies buried in reviews of totally uninteresting authors. So like there are literally reviews he wrote that are more noteworthy than the books they are reviewing, right? Uh, criticism is an art it, it is when it it's is. well done yeah. well it certainly yeah. is yeah. yeah for sure i was i was a little being jokey a little bit harsh earlier yeah. but uh yeah, yeah. but it, it is also it, it tends to be on the receiving side of public criticism especially yeah, when you can't shoot back it's uh it's a very yeah. heavy part of uh modern life mm-hmm. yeah 
yeah, uh, continuing on here. Yet the 94 pieces he wrote from December 1835 to August 1836 on philosophy, science, romance, poetry, travel, navigation, physiology, and law include many works by the leading authors of his time, Irving, Cooper, and Bryant, among the older generation of American writers, Godwin, Coleridge, Southey, uh, Hazlitt, Francis Trollope, and bulwer Lytton among his English contemporaries, right? Um, yeah, yeah, so... Uh, let me think about, oh, yes, here's the other thing. So he's not, so he develops this, this he, he over time he develops his reputation as sort of rapier witted. <laughs> like he's, he's, um, some people describe his critical pen as a tomahawk. Like they'll say, you know, Poe really tomahawked. Uh, did you read that new review of Poe, uh, Poe wrote on what, whatever book came out? He really tomahawked them. Um, he was he was happy to go ah. for the jugular. Yes, yes. Um, now uh, let me read a little bit about. Oh, here's a couple. Here's a couple of harsh reviews he wrote. Just snippets of really harsh reviews he wrote. Um, and I'm going to have titles of books in here that people probably don't know these books. Um, here's one quote: "The Swiss heiress should be read by all who have nothing better to do." Uh, banger Banger. another one he says uh quote ups and downs that's the name of the book is a public imposition it should have been printed among the quack advertisements (laughs) uh here's another one about uh paul ehrlich is too that's the name of the book is too purely imbecile to merit an extended critique as one of the class of absurdities with an uh, inundation of which our country is grievously threatened, we shall have no hesitation and shall, shall spare no pains in exposing fully before the public eye its 443 pages of utter folly, bombast, and inanity. Such are the works which bring daily discredit upon our national literature. Damn. Tough, tough crowd. Poe is a tough crowd. Woo! <laughs> Now it wasn't just sort of trashy novels. I mean, it, it could be one thing, you know. He's just he's just reviewing the bottom of the barrel. It wasn't just that. He um, he would make a number of enemies and sour relationships with many writers who even writers he respected at one time or another. He like we said before, he strongly disliked the transcendentalists. Um, of Ralph Waldo Emerson, he once said the man was quote a mystic for mysticism's sake. And he Poe generally just hated their poetry, um, not to mention their philosophy. Um, Poe would say of James Fenimore Cooper that Cooper couldn't write characters. And when Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, Mosses from an Old Manse came out, and he he'd previously liked Hawthorne and thought Hawthorne was the preeminent American writer, Poe called uh, Hawthorne at this time, when Mosses from an Old Manse came out, Poe said that Hawthorne was peculiar and not original. Uh, so that's tough. And he, um, and he did all this in writing. Yeah. 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 Oh, this isn't boy. just like talking yeah. to your friends. Yeah. Or this is in, reviews. I mean, and let, let's be real. The American, you know, literary scene has always been ent- entirely dominated by that corridor of the Northeast. And it still is to this day. Anybody will tell you that. Yeah. And, yeah. um, obviously it's changed an awful lot, but you're still in conversation with that, that megalopolis out West or out East from, yeah. from Boston all the way down to DC. And, yes. um, you know, you're you're not going to be making any friends by <laughs> by putting this stuff in circulation. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and then you're trying to make a li- like it, it's you. You don't have to suck up to these people like Hawthorne, 
but it's better to just not make an enemy of him. If you're trying to have your own career as a writer, right? Just, just maybe just don't review that. You know, I don't know. Sure. It's, sure. It's and then, yeah. It's also a but, bit of a, who do you, who do you think you are? And we happen to know in hindsight that he could back it up, but right, they, right, didn't, right. they didn't know that at the time. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, an interesting note too. And I think we may have mentioned it in the, in the intro. Poe was obsessed with and paranoid about plagiarism. Um, he pounced on even the faintest whiff of a borrowed idea in another person's work. And if anybody accused him, he was just aghast. Um, I think, I think, and, and if you read it, I mean, I read the majority of his short stories now at this point, and there are a lot of them. Um, he's constantly borrowing elements from himself. I think his obsession about plagiarism is actually a little bit of like, feeling insecure about it's the anxiety of influence i think it's like i'm stealing and borrowing stuff all the time i'm going to pounce on it when other people do it and if anybody accuses me of it i'm going to freak out right because i wonder i wonder too how much of it is like him he he obviously takes this seriously this is kind of the only thing he has it is it is yeah yeah yep. he's hanging on by a thread and he's not making a lot of money he's making he's making enough money to eat sort of right it's not and he's got his he's got his aunt and his 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 um young cousin to take care of as well now but as i said he's doing fairly well i mean he's like he has this he, he's he's sharpened himself up after this he got quit and he begged for his job back um on may 16th 1836 poe at the age of 27 marries his nearly 14 year old cousin virginia I'm going to give you a quick description of her. Um, that this, is that is one of the all-time Art of Darkness age gaps that we've had. Is. That is a uh, heavy-duty, very mm-hmm. alienating, what do you say, different times, but yeah, that's freaking wild. Right. I, yeah. I, and I it, and I, his own cousin. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty intense. Um, okay, here, here I'm going to give you a description of her from the Jeffrey Myers, Myers bio, biography. Um, quote, even as an adult, she was fair, soft, and graceful and girlish. Everyone who saw her was won by her. Poe was very proud and very fond of her and used to delight in the round, childlike face and plump little figure, which he contrasted with himself, so thin and half-melancholy looking. And she, in turn, idolized him. She had a voice of wonderful sweetness and was an exquisite singer. And in some of their more prosperous days, when they were living in a pretty little rose-covered cottage, she had her harp and piano. At home, the character of Edgar Poe appeared in its most beautiful light. Playful, affectionate, witty, alternately docile and wayward as a petted child. For his young, gentle, and idolized wife, and for all who came, he had had even in the midst of his most harassing literary duties, a kind word, a pleasant smile, a graceful and courteous attention. So, they love each other. I, you know, I think there's, there's some debate about whether he married her initially to sort of take care of her. I don't know that he would have to marry her necessarily, but it does keep other dudes away. Right. Um, he did have, yeah, there's a sort of similar thing with Marilyn all those yeah. years later. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now it's when, generally, and when I say Marilyn on this podcast, you know, the Marilyn I'm talking about, <laughs> right. I, I, yeah. I would hope. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go back and listen to the Marilyn Monroe episode for sure as a banger. Um, now he, we say, oh, it's a different time, so this age gap wasn't that big of a deal. Well, 
he had a, a witness te- uh, testify or whatever to the church that she was 21. Okay. I never, I never said it was not a big deal, by no, the way. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah, you did. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like, we think back, we're like, well, maybe that's what they did back then. It's right. Not, not really. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> right. Hmm. Um, now it, whatever, however the relationship started, it may not have started sexually that nobody knows for sure. Later on, he would refer to her as sis or sister. Um, it definitely, it, it's generally agreed now that it eventually, it at least eventually became a sexual relationship. Um, uh, but let's read another poem. <laughs> this is the last poem he wrote, and this is uh, believed oh, to be. Thank, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> this is believed to be about um, uh, Virginia. This is the poem hmm. that um, Nabokov took the working title of Lolita from. Uh, oh wow! Called. Uh, oh well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? It would, right? Uh, it's a poem called Annabelle Lee, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's got a lovely little lilt or something to it quote it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of annabelle lee and this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me i was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea but we loved with a love that was more than love i and my annabelle lee with a love that the winged seraph of heaven coveted her and me and this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her highborn kinsman came and bore her away from me to shut her up in the sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels not half so happy in heaven went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabel Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabel Lee. And so all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride. In the sepulcher here, there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. Okay. So that's the last poem he ever wrote. It comes much later in the story than we are right now. But that's that was his poem. Virginia dies before he does. Um, and that was his poem, sort of in honor of her. Hmm. Um, okay. And you so can now, you can get the motif of uh obsession. Uh, a fixation, the fixation on the name. I think anybody who's been in love, mm-hmm. uh, you could maybe relate to uh, that that idea of the name coming to it symbolizes something. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So now he gets married. The job is going fairly well. What go? What's something's going going to go wrong? What goes wrong? This um, is out of darkness. Something has yeah. to go wrong. Yeah, here's what goes wrong. Once again, it's booze. Let me read this oh, bit from the boy. biography. Uh, yeah. So, uh, this is just generally and then more specific. <clears throat> Poe was the kind of alcoholic who could abstain for months at a time and then suddenly lose control, start to drink excessively, and continue to do so for days at a time. <clears throat> 
he would, uh, as he tried to explain to a potential patron with more optimism than truth, quote, intemperance with me has never amounted to a habit. And it, had it been 10 times a habit, it would have required scarcely an effort on my part to shake it from me at once and forever. Now, a little bit late further down. Alcoholism imposed time when churches and temperance units exerted a powerful influence on society was considered as morally reprehensible as drug addiction is today. It was thought of as a moral defect rather than a psychological affliction, and few people were as sympathetic and tolerant as white. That's Poe's boss was Thomas Willis White. Drink brought out the split in Poe's personality. It reversed his normal nature and transformed the courtly gentleman into a frenzied beast. All his friends agreed that a single glass of wine to most men, a moderate stimulus turned him into a madman. He drank to ex excess, became coarse and vulgar, fell into fits of the deepest gloom, and finally became so sick that he could not drink anymore. These drinking bouts were always followed by several days of sickness. John Daniel, a Richmond editor, described Poe's drinking as a joyless and compulsive self-destruction. Quote, his taste for drink was a simple disease, no source of pleasure or excitement. When the poison had passed his lips, he would go at once to a bar and drink off glass after glass as fast as its titular genius could mix them until his faculties were utterly swallowed up. Okay. Now, basically, he drinks his way out of this job ends up getting fired. We're not going to go into all the details. There's a lot of magazine jobs that he has. He loses basically all of them. We're not going to necessarily track the vicissitudes of each one. This, the pattern is very much the same from one to the next. Um, now, one thing we should say is, though, he his work uh, expanded the distribution of the Southern Literary Messenger quite significantly, um, and he just made his same basic wage no matter how much better. You know, it's like I, we'll get to figures on a later magazine he works on where it's like it's like you'll see it's it's a little egregious, like how underpaid he was for how much work mm. he was doing and how successful sure. it was. Yeah. Um, now, so after he, he leaves, he leaves um, Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, Virginia, and he decides that he's going to try New York. Uh but he lands there amidst the Panic of 1837. The Panic of 1837 was one of the largest depressions in U.S. history. Uh, <laughs> I like how you could throw a dart at a uh, calendar just uh, for the past 200 years. And yeah. yeah, odds are like one in seven you're going right. to hit uh, the year of or right. right. It's almost like our system creates booms and busts. Yeah. And that it's, that it's planned and coordinated and right. people who, who are behind it sell the top and buy the bottom but let's yeah, just forget about any of that right. yeah right. No, okay no worries yeah, yeah. right no this whole is just lives completely... just yeah it's just normal this is just economics it's completely random it's nobody can normal. foresee it nobody... obviously yeah. yeah this is it's a feature not a bug right yeah <laughs> right I, it is so funny though because every single crash you read about it's like the, the greatest <laughs> right. it's never like a mild crash yeah. when you read yeah. about it you right know? right like, it's like suddenly everyone forgot what money was and there was no like there was no <laughs> right uh, the, the the bojangles crash of 1943 <laughs> when the you know, you're like what the right. hell what are you talking uh, yeah, about there was just yeah. a crash in the yeah anyway right right uh so <laughs> we're literally gonna live through if we live to be 80 we're gonna live through like 10 of these i've been through a handful yeah we've been already, through a few man. already yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. What do we what if we turn our homes into banks? That's a great idea. <laughs> we turn our homes into giant credit cards. That's a great let's let's idea. do that. Yeah, yeah what could yeah. go wrong? 
Uh, so he can't make a living in New York, 1837. He goes to Philadelphia, 1838, and becomes acquainted with some writers there. One of them is this guy, Thomas Dunn English. Uh, we're going to talk more about Thomas Dunn English in the After Dark, patreon.com slash Pod, where we learn what got Poe booted out of the new, he, what made it so he was no longer the literary it girl of New York City, and it involves Thomas Dunn English. Um, that's the story for for our patrons only though for patreon yeah now once he gets to philadelphia he does have a reputation as a writer i mean he's done well with the southern literary messenger it's not the biggest newspaper in the world but you have to remember people of any uh, literate people would be subscribed who if they had any money would be subscribed to perhaps three four five six of these different magazines you didn't have tv you didn't have radio um most people weren't buying a lot of books even like this is pretty much the media that you consumed was these magazines. Um, so, yeah. And they uh, would pass, they would probably change hands too. I've read this. Oh one yeah. And you get it. And yeah. Oh yeah. Little, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And new, yeah. and also newspapers, normal newspapers would have literary elements to them too. They'd have poems and stories and things like that. And then you'd have more literary compendiums that were like, you know, and then of course there were anthologies, all of this. So Poe is sort of known um, he wasn't as famous as like Emerson or Longfellow by any stretch of the imagination, but he was well known enough that other writers who were successful thought of him as an equal. Guys like James Kirk Paulding, uh, who people we don't know now necessarily, but Thomas Chovens, he had kind of a following. People knew who Poe was. So um, he tries to get some sh- a collection of short stories published uh, in a volume through Harper's and Harper's tell- basically tells him, look, People don't want a collection of short stories. They want a novel, basically. Okay. They'll tell you the same thing now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Is Whether it's true or not, who, who even knows anymore, right? Um, apparently they, they want somebody who can throw a good party. This is what yeah, I mean. they want somebody, they want a book that you can pose with. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so 1838, uh, Poe completes and publishes his only novel length book. It's actually pretty short. It's less than 200 pages called the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pyme. I want to read you the full subtitle of this book that it was published under because it's ridiculous. All right. So. Uh, one second. Sorry, I picked up the wrong book there. I do really like this book, though. Like, if you're looking for something that's a little bit, a little bit uh, longer to read from Poe, and maybe isn't so much of the horror stuff, though. There's plenty of horror in it. Narrative of uh, Arthur Gordon Pyme is great, but let me read you the subtitle. It's so funny. Um, the narr- the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pyme of Nantucket. Comprising the details of a mutiny and atrocious butchery on board the American big gra- uh, brig. Grampus on her way to the South Sea in the month of June 1827. With an account of the recapture of the vessel by the survivors, their shipwreck and subsequent horrible sufferings from famine, their deliverance by means of the British schooner Jane Guy, the brief cruise of this latter vessel into the uh, in the in Antarctic Ocean, her capture and the massacre of her crew among a group of islands in the 84th parallel of Southern Latitude, together with the incredible adventures and discoveries still farther south to which that distress, distressing calamity gave rise. That's the subtitle. He just tells you it's literally everything that happens in the book, every major plot point. That it would be so funny to memorize that as like a party trick or a. <laughs> right. Yeah, have you? Uh, yeah, be like, have you read? And just like reeled <laughs> off. Somebody, somebody asked for like a book recommendation. Like, you read anything good lately? Yeah, you know, I just finished uh, Edgar Allan Poe's 
without missing a beat just go just go so hard (laughs) you're just talking for like literally like 45 seconds straight (laughs) and that is how you get kicked out of the manhattan literary scene that's right that's right um i like again i i really recommend this story it's got there's so much going on it's very episodic it's very um it's the seafaring story primarily and he the level of technical details in here exceeds Conrad. And I'm not saying that Poe understood sailing more than Conrad did because um, Poe didn't have an, a lot of substantial experience as a, a sailor. But Poe loved technical details. He loves he would have loved escape rooms. He loved, he loved puzzles. We're going to talk later about how he loved cryptography and riddles. Um, so it's not surprising that he basically throws his character into an impossible situation. And then sort of you, you along with Poe figure out how you're going to get out of it. So it's pretty fun when it's, when it's well done. Um, I like the idea of uh, Poe at a couple of glasses of wine in, in a, an escape room in Cleveland yeah. <laughs> circa now. <laughs> right. right. You let me very... out of here, you demonic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he gets trapped. He, he can't get any of the references. Everything's too modern. <laughs> right. It's very right. funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, some other things that are really good about this, this book are, he's really good at expressing the effects of like the physical body and extremists. Cause like they, the character's, practically starved to death they actually have and it's unsettling scene they have a bit where they there's four of them left or five of them left and they're starving to death and they decide that one of them they got to draw straws and whoever loses is going to get eaten and like it the tension and the like the the difficulty of it it's it's great it's very well done and Mm -hmm. so like i say it gets dark like they're literally eating each other um it's pretty it's pretty wild um now the uh, the novel comes out. First two parts of it come out in the Literary Messenger. He basically never finishes it, which is the ending. Is we'll talk about the ending in a second. One thing I want to point out, though, a lot of the book takes place. Maybe the last third or so of the book takes takes place in Antarctica or Antarctic waters, and it's really important to think this book was published in 1838. Antarctica was discovered in 1820. Nobody knew what the hell was going on down there, right? Like, and when they mean discovered it, it's literally like they saw it over there. They didn't, and it's a huge, it's a huge landmass. So nobody knew anything about what it was. Yeah, um, it's, it's the great ice wall that hides Agartha. Uh, yeah, well, or, right. Now whatever. modern modern science knows. We this, now we time. know that that's the ice wall <laughs> behind which they hide the the spacecraft. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the, the rockets that work are behind the ice wall. But at that time, they they didn't have the, this advanced level of research that we've been able to do since. <laughs> um, there's there's so there's something kind of cool about like he he's filling in this blank spot on the map. He makes it up. He invents a civilization that it's lives down there. Yeah. Lovecraftian, it's very free, free love, Lovecraft. Love, yeah. You know, Lovecraft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our, our friend, uh, Ben Thomas, who helped us out with the Lovecraft episode, he refers to this as pre at the mountains of madness. This, this story, the, the, the Gordon Pine novel. Um, there's our, it's kind of, I had a tr- trouble deciding. I definitely wanted to read some parts of it, but it's kind of tricky to 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 decide which. 
Um, I'm going to read this. So, so part of it, uh, what happens is Pime. Well, the first thing that happens, Pime and his buddy, they go out drunken boating in the middle of the night and they get run over and nearly killed on, on the, like off of Nantucket. Then he decides that he wants to become a sailor and go out on a seafaring adventure. Pime does, but he knows his father won't let him. So he becomes a stowaway so that he'll come out when the ship is way at sea and there's nothing can be done about it. It's like already at sea. They can't turn around and go back or whatever. Um, but when he's down there in the hold, pirates take over the ship and kill almost everyone. And he's like locked down in the hold and he only gets out by like, you know, a, a complex set of puzzle solving. It's, it's, it's really, it's pretty good actually, but everybody's been slaughtered and like some of it's depicted like, just flat on the page. It's not even hidden. It's just, you know, we're murdering these people and throwing them over the, over the side. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, the fun fact. He he was only able to get out by doing his best Keith Richards impression. <laughs> Weird. How did that's, he, how, the, he that's the only way the pirates would let him out. <laughs> that's uh, that's <laughs> like Jack, Jack <laughs> no, this sounds fascinating. This, it's a, uh, this, it's a, this it's, novel. Yeah. It's a cool, it's a cool book. It's very, it's very pulpy, but sort of, but, but also, yeah, it I, I feels like really he's, it. it feels like he's going after, going after money with this. He's like this, he, I am a serious writer. I am having a career and, and I'm going to, I'm going to I'm going to move some copies. I, I honestly, I can't give you a good reason why it didn't, to be honest. Mm. Like there's no obvious, it's not too heady. It's not too cerebral or mm. anything like it, it feels um. Like it but it, but it, 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 it wasn't a it wasn't a big success. It wasn't. No, it hmm. sold very few but, copies. I mean, it alienated uh, some people. Possibly, probably. it's probably. Yeah. yeah. Now this is. I'm going to read a bit. This is basically after the worst of it's happened. So the bandits have killed most of the original crew. Time has broken out. He and a buddy and somebody they managed to turn over from the old crew have killed everybody else. Have killed all the pirates. Right? It's murder, 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 and then they get they get smashed by a squall. So the boat's no longer navigable. They're just floating around. They don't have any way to actually sail. There's on a big piece of wood. He keeps referring to it as the Hulk. Cause it's just like the last bit that hasn't sunk basically. Um, so this is, and they're starving. This is as bad as it, this is bad, bad as it gets. Um, I think at this point they've already eaten one of the, they've already elected to cannibalize one of the people I think happened before this bit I'm going to read. So let me just give you a, Quote, so you get a sense of what this is like. <clears throat> Quote, my principal terror was now on account of the sharks, which I knew to be in my vicinity. In order to deter these, if possible, from approaching me, I splashed the water vigorously with both hands and feet as I swam toward the hulk, creating a body of foam. I have no doubt that to this expedient, simple as it was, I was indebted for my preservation. For the sea all around the brig, just before her rolling over, was so crowded with these monsters that I must have been, and really was, in actual contact with some of them during my progress. By great good fortune, however, I reached the side of the vessel in safety, although so utterly weakened by the violent exertion I had used that I should have never been able to get upon it but for the timely assistance of Peters, who now, to my great joy, made his appearance and threw me the end of a rope, one of those which had been attached to the spikes. 
Having barely escaped this danger, our attention was now directed to the dreadful immediacy, uh, imminency of another, that of absolute starvation. Our whole stock of provision had been swept overboard in spite of all our care in securing it, and seeing no longer the remotest possibility of obtaining more, we gave way both of us to despair, weeping aloud like children, and neither of us, neither of us attempting to offer consolation to the other. Such weakness can scarcely be conceived, and to those who have never been so similar, similarly situated will, no doubt, appear unnatural. But it must be remembered that our intellects were so entirely disordered by the long course of privation and terror to which we had been subjected that we could not justly be considered at, the, at that period in the light of rational beings. In subsequent perils, nearly as great, if not greater, I bore up with fortitude against all the evils of my situation, and Peter's, it will be seen, evinced a stoical philosophy nearly as incredible as his present childlike supineness and imbecility. The mental condition made the difference. And part of the reason I read that is there is a there's an intense psychological component to this. It's not simply that they have this sort of adventure and things go awry. They, they're level of ability to deal with the situation starts to deteriorate as their condition deteriorates. And, and there's a certain level of sophistication to that. You start out as one thing and you're hungry and you're beat up and your hand and suddenly you're screwing up. You're making mistakes. You're, you could have clearly done something that seems easy on the page. And that makes their situation worse. And that was one of the elements I thought was quite realistic about as an adventure story. You know, the confusion and the mm -hmm. green fog and all of that was really it was really kind of interestingly done. Um, they do get picked up by another by another crew and Pi, Pi, uh, another ship and Pime gets integrated into that crew. He becomes sort of rises in the ranks in this other crew. They end up going in pursuit of the Aurora Islands, which is a phantom island. I mean, it's got a Wikipedia page. This is an island that has been discovered like four or five times and yet nobody seems to know where it is. So there's this phenomena in, in, in sea lore about islands that can't be reliably found. They're supposed to be in a place, but when you go there, they're not there. And then the next time somebody goes there, they are there. This is a <laughs> real one that they went in, in search of. Well, that's yeah. periodically the, the, the giant turtle that the world rests yeah. on will lift up a little bit and, right. and they'll sink back down. Yeah. They didn't yeah. have, they didn't have the we've, science. We've known that since the eighties. Right, 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 right. <laughs> now, now when he gets into, when he gets to uh, Antarctica and they encounter this, there's a civilization down there, fairly primitive civilization. I, Poe does a, a, a pretty amazing job of sort of building the world down there it's got all these um significances of color everything is black like the hills are soapstone the people are black their clothing are black everything is black and yet one and then the emergence of this one animal that happens to be white freaks out this entire tribe like there's just these cool little things that he has come up with that are um uh, indicate uh, that he's read deeply about um, accounts of like, you know, when, you know, Europeans encountered mm -hmm. tribes in mm -hmm. the Western Hemisphere. Like he knew how that w exchange worked had historically, and he conveys that really well. But then also the actual world itself is different than ours. And I want to read this one little bit. This is, the la I think this is the last 
but I'm going to read from this. I do. I I just, I was thrilled. I had, I think I tweeted that I, it's been a long time since I had this much fun reading. I just really enjoyed it. It's rollicking. Wow, it's, you found, this is great. Brad found the the novel from Poe that he's really into. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm enjoying watching you enjoy this. Yeah. Now this, this bit, I want you to think about Lovecraft as I'm reading this. <clears throat> This is when uh, the, the, they, they're in Antarctica and they go ashore and they're walking through this world. Uh, quote, at every step we took inland, the conviction forced itself upon us that we were in a country differing essentially from any hitherto visited by civilized men. We saw nothing which we had been formerly conversant. The trees resembled no growth of either the torrid, the temperate, or the nor northern frigid zones and were altogether unlike those of the, lo uh, the lower southern latitudes we had already traversed. The very rocks were novel in their mass, their color, and their stratification, and the streams themselves, utterly incredible as it may appear, had so little in common common with those of other climates that we were scrupulous of tasting them and indeed had difficulty in bringing ourselves to believe that their qualities were purely those of nature at a small brook which crossed our path path the first we had reached to wit uh, to wit is the name of the the chief of this tribe to wit and his attendants halted to drink on account of the singular character of the water, water, we refused to taste it, supposing it to be polluted, and it was not until some time afterward we came to understand that such was the appearance of the streams throughout the whole group. I am at a loss to give a distinct idea of the nature of this liquid and cannot do so without many words. Although it flowed with rapidity in all declivities where common water would do so, yet never, except when falling in a cascade, had it the customary appearance of limpidity. It was nevertheless, in point of fact, as perfectly limpid as any limestone water in existence, the difference being only in appearance. At first sight, and especially in cases where little declivity was found, it bore resemblance as regards consistency to a thick infusion of gum arabic in common water. But this was only the least remarkable of its extraordinary qualities. It was not colorless, nor was it of any one uniform color, presenting to the eyes as it flowed every possible shade of purple, like the hues of a changeable silk. This variation in shade was produced in a manner which excited as profound astonishment in the minds of our party as the mirror had done in the case of Two-Wit. So he does this great thing where he'd shown, they'd shown a mirror to the tribesmen and it had freaked, it blown their minds. And then they encounter this water in the land and it blows their mind. So you've got this sort of like exchange. It's very, it's very cool. It's very fun. I definitely recommend it. Um, I'm not going to give away the ending except to say it is among the most abrupt endings of ever any novel I have ever read. It's sort of like, it, it's more like a short story ending. So for people who maybe haven't, you know, considered how novel the difference and, you know, uh, I, the way they're structurally a short story, isn't just a short novel, a short story. You can kind of get away with ending on sort of a resonant image or note, just sort of like, and, you know, you kind of throw the things in the air and they don't have to come down a novel. And hey, you can do that, but typically there's a more, uh, encapsulated, uh, the, the narrative is more encapsulated and Poe is just sort of like, and then the next thing happened and it's like, it's just over. And I think it's, he, he'd never written a novel before. He never wrote another one after this. I think he, his form and, and even this, it's all very episodic. It's we, I was stuck in the hold. The pirates attacked. 
we killed the pirates. We ate each other. Like it's all and every one of them is great, but it's not necessarily the most strongly tied together. So um, anyway, hmm. I think that's I think that's it, here's another interesting thing about the the Gordon Pine stuff. People believed it was true. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me read a little. Let me read just a little bit about that. Um, this happens like four or five times in Poe's career. He writes some insane story, and people are like, people are convinced that it's real. Too um, much detail. Yeah, right. Too well written not to yeah. be real. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Quote, even readers as sophisticated as the American publisher George Putnam were at first taken in by Poe's, Poe's artful documentary effects and believed the narrative was a genuine travel book and a serious contribution to geographical science. As Putnam told his English co-publisher, alluding to the hieroglyphics that Poe had lifted from a traveler's book on Petra in the Jordanian desert. That's right. He has he shows hieroglyphics in the book that he has sketched out. Quote, this man has reached a higher latitude than any European navigator. Let us reprint this for the benefit of Mr. Mr. Bull, which uh, that's like Joe, Joe Sixpack. Uh, Putnam had later realized that the grave particularity of the title and of the narrative misled many of the critics as well as himself. He was amused to note that whole columns of these new discoveries, including the hieroglyphics found on the rocks, were copied by many of the English country papers as sober historical truth. So people bought That it. is I've very cool. And so, yeah. I mean, it's almost like a... War of the Worlds type thing, but a little more of a slow burn. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This novel being taken as real information. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, hmm. And part of it is the way it's set up in the opening. It's Edgar Allan Poe talking. And he's basically like, I have been written a letter by this guy, Gordon Pyme. He tells me this story and I'm going to do my best to present it to you, faithful mm. reader. So he, le he leaned into that. He did yeah. lean into it for sure. Hmm. For sure. Hmm. Um, I'm going to take a quick restroom break absolutely brad has to take a restroom break tell us where where yep go ahead well i was gonna say tell us about blood meridian book club and whatever else comes to mind absolutely yeah uh, brad go take the restroom break yeah we've got the blood meridian book club special coming up with the great aaron gwynn on patreon in december so if you want to get access to that you got to go to patreon.com slash art of dark pod we are going to do a live Zoom session like we do for all of the book club meetings that we do. If you want to attend, you can you can join. There's going to be a Q&A, a back and forth. If you're not comfortable joining, it's not your thing, you'll be able to listen back to that after the fact. And that, again, is for Patreon. I think it's December 3rd. I want to, want to confirm the details are at artofdarkpod.com. Uh, if you scroll down there, there is a bookends AOD Readers Club link and the schedule. Yeah, December 3rd. And we'll we'll share that information with the with the patrons uh, as we get closer to that. If you are not reading Blood Meridian yet, now would be a great time to start. You've still got, you know, a full month here. Uh and listen, if you're listening to this in the distant future, because these episodes are evergreen, right? Like Edgar Allan Poe's life is not going to change. It's still a good time to read Blood Meridian or reread it. Um, and then, this? like I mentioned, yeah, we have the the Beckett Darkroom episode coming up. I'm prepping um, uh, some some pretty exciting episodes. I've got uh, Shelley uh, that's coming oh, yeah. up. So that's we're going to be great. talking about monsters. 
and uh, Frankenstein and young authors making an outsized influence. Pretty I incredible. Love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and uh, just the, the Patreon pitch is that we hope you support the pod. We, yeah. we put a lot of effort into these episodes, especially the core episodes. Everybody who listens to this podcast, uh, you know, is is already a supporter just by listening. As far Indeed. as I'm concerned, we really appreciate it. Uh, we love doing this show. We want to do it for a good long time. If you want to materially support the show, the very best way to do it is patreon.com slash art of dark pod. You can also go to the website artofdarkpod.com, and there is a PayPal link. We are trying to work our way up the the, the rank, and we are trying to do more cool things generally but also for patrons um it's a lot of fun to do this show means a lot to us we love hearing from from listeners in pretty much any format uh telegram t.me slash art of dark pod i said the email earlier art of dark pod at gmail.com bradman's the twitter that's Mm -hmm. at art of dark pod where you can find us on patreon too where there's a chat room there now Uh, Mm -hmm. i manage that it's a really good time. We've got a nice division of labor here. Yeah. Brad takes a core episode. I take a core episode. We've got, you know, we we both kind of book guests, although Brad kind of takes the lead there. But I've increasingly been thinking, okay, who else can I, who yeah. else can I get on to talk about so um, and so? Yeah, we're, so we're always we're always on the hunt for for good guests. Yeah, yeah, always yeah. on the hunt for interesting guests, uh, yeah. people who can talk for sixty to ninety minutes about one of the core subjects we've covered. And uh, yeah, just love doing this show. Love our listeners. Love the Telegram chat room that we've got. The vibes are uh, immaculate. And please, you know, uh, wherever you you find your podcast, enjoy it. Share these episodes with your friends, your family. If you know somebody, you know, this uh, spooky season or again, and really any old time mm-hmm. who might want to hear about Edgar Allan Poe and in four X hours, however long mm-hmm. this is going to go, mm-hmm. uh, get kind of the comprehensive overview. You know, we we like to, we hope that this is valuable for people. So Indeed. good stuff. How was yeah. your, how was your bathroom? Are you feeling refreshed? Oh, I feel yeah. refreshed. I feel rested. Yeah. I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. Your, your teeth didn't fall out of your face. Well, one or two, but you know, <laughs> they, grow, they grow back. Uh, don't worry. The, uh, the, the, the witch that lives in your backyard will be there to collect them later, Brad. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. She's, um, <laughs> she's, it's the witch of the literary yeah. it girls past. Indeed. So we're entering Poe's last decade here. Um, he's uh, Gordon Pym didn't work out. He has a stretch where he's not doing any editorial work. He's getting some things published, but it's really not enough to live on, to be honest. And what does he make up with the shortfall? Mostly begging money from anybody he can get a buck from. Um, he does at one point take on a job that causes some serious problems for him. And the setup is this Harper's had put out a very expensive book on conchology that is conches seashells and that that sort of thing mm-hmm. right and it was a big expensive hardbound illustrated beautifully illustrated version and um Poe was approached by another publisher who said you know what i bet we could make some money if we made an inexpensive version of this right oh. and so mm-hmm. Poe Poe needs the money. Um, he gets paid at the time $50 to crank out an inexpensive version of, of Harper's Conchology. He does so. Um, 
And basically, he writes a very pretentious introduction that is off-putting for some people. He lifts large segments of it, apparently, or supposedly, or is accused of, from the Harper's version. So oh, he, gets so he does he does the thing that he hates. Mm. He's accused of plagiarism and probably did kind of plagiarize, though he would say that it, I think technically it was more like copyright violation because he was citing them, but he was citing large passages, large swaths, right? So plagiarism is maybe not exactly the right word, but in spirit, it's fundamentally the same. He's filling space with other people's work. Um, and then here's here's the killer. Here's the killer. He makes only $50. Here's the two killers. It would be the only book of Poe's reprinted in his own lifetime. He put his own name on it. He shouldn't have put he he should have did the Alan Smithy thing, right? Just come up with a name and smack slap it on there. And then Harper's was pretty upset about this. They'd been undercut. So when he went to Harper's with his next book, they just laughed him out of the room. They're like, no, we're not gonna publish, we're not gonna publish this thing. What are you talking about? Like you're you're the enemy. We're not, you know. So you're the, the conk man. Yeah. So with this, get out of here. He makes fifty bucks, which I think is like fifteen hundred dollars or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And he torpedoes his career and potential and his tarnishes his reputation. But he needed the money, right? He didn't want to write a book on conchology. Um, so anyway, he does get a job at uh, Burton's <laughs> Concho- yeah. Conchology. That sounds like a like a print like a lost Prince album, right? <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> like a lost Prince B sides, right? Conchology. I like it. I like it. Um, he gets a job at this magazine, Burton's. He's paid about $10 a week. He's told at first that it will only take two hours a day of his time, which uh, that's not bad. It's like a part-time job. Turns out to be a lot more than that. He's responsible for basically every aspect of the magazine, from proofing to overseeing the actual printing, the whole the whole shebang. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't really enough money to even like get like he couldn't make ends meet with it. Um, so even with this job, he's still sending out letters begging by the end of 1839, begging friends and whoever he can to try and send him a few bucks. Um, however, he does have now an avenue for his own writing. Uh, again, he's the editor of Burton's. He can put his own thing in there. Um, uh, the fall of the house of Usher comes out during this time in Burton's. Uh, he puts it, it, he puts it in his own magazine, which I, there, there's, there's this, the thing that writers we tend to do is we sort of sit around waiting for somebody to publish us, right? Like, oh, well, well, what if oh, I put my name in the hat and I'm in a slush pile and I'm in 50 slush piles and, you know, there is something to like, well, just make something happen, right? You kind of another. have to. Yeah, there right. are different approaches to this. Yeah, some of them, right. some of them, uh, you know, politically I might uh, reject or oppose, but if it mm-hmm. works, it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, so we talked about the fall of the house of ushers, uh, house of usher. He, it does manage to convince a publishing house in 1839 based on the strength of the fall of the house of usher to come out with a two volume collection of his short stories entitled tales of the grotesque and the arabesque, which is a good, that's a very pulpy. I like that title. It's yeah. good. Uh, this includes 25 stories. It gets mixed reviews. Um, it does have this story, the man who was used up, which I I love. 
This is one of my, if I'm doing a ranking, which I hate ranking, uh, this goes on my, this goes on my top five, maybe of post short stories. Uh, not, sorry, not the man who was used up another one. Um, the man of the crowd, the man who, the man who was used up is good too, but the man of the crowd is amazing. <laughs> I'll give you a quick breakdown. Basically what you've got there's a guy sitting there in London and the street is just choked with pedestrians and he's sitting there and he's categorizing everybody. He's a, that's a clerk. That's a housemaid. That's a carpenter. That's a, that's a, you know, that guy works in a factory. That's a newsboy. That's a chimney sweep, all of the different roles in society. And he's just putting them and all the different kinds of clerks, right? You know, old ones, young ones, fat ones, whatever. And then an old man walks by that he cannot figure out where this old man goes. Who is like, he doesn't fit any slot that he can come up with. And so our narrator starts to follow him and he follows him all night. And the old man doesn't seem to even notice him. He'll get like right up next to him. And the old man like doesn't see him. And he follows him all through the night. And the guy's just walking in just circuitous routes in London. He's never stopping anywhere. He follows him all night into the next day and into the next night. He's following this old man and it gets creepy. Like, like, where's the old man going? Why can't our narrator like stop following him? Why can't he just break off? He's, he, he has this obsessive thing. And there's this there's a sort of Kafka-esque kind of turn where the narrator stands right in front of him and the guy still doesn't notice him. Let me just read you a quick little, quick little bit from this story. I highly recommend it because what you, what you're seeing is like a, a, a quintessential modernist short story written in 1840, like well before anybody else was really playing. This That's game. that is remarkable, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, the, it's got the urban element, the the, the, the everything about it. <clears throat> um, so just there we go. This is just the last uh, little bit. <clears throat> Quote: The sun rose while we proceeded, and when we had once again reached that most thronged mart of the populous town, the street of the D Hotel, it presented an appearance of human bustle and activity scarcely inferior to what I had seen on the evening before. And here, long amid the momentary confusion. Did I persist in my pursuit of the stranger? But as usual, he walked to and fro, and during the day did not pass from out uh, from out the turmoil of that street. And as the shades of the second evening came on, I grew wearied unto death, and stopping fully in front of the wanderer, gazed at him steadfastly in the face. He noticed me not, but resumed his solemn walk, while I, ceasing to follow, remained absorbed in contemplation. This old man, I said at length, is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds. The worst heart of the world is a grosser book than the hortalus animi. And perhaps it is but one of the great mercies of God that er last sich nicht lesson. I don't know what that means. I should look that up. I should look that up. Is it Auf Deutsch? Uh, E-R, well, er, last, N-I-C-H-T. That's a German word, nicht. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nicht. yeah. Er yeah. lasst sich nicht. Er lasst sich nicht. Yeah, what, uh, lesen, right? Uh, L-A-S-S-T. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah, let me let me uh, translate it just so yeah, I get yeah, it accurate. It cannot be read. It cannot be read. Well, uh, well, because it's it it needs a lazen at the end. S less least. Oh, I'm sorry. It does have a lazen at the last. Yeah, line. yeah, I yeah. See it there. Yep. Yeah, You're yeah. Right. So it's er lässt sich. My German is crummy. Er lässt sich nicht lesen. It cannot be read. Wonderful. Or or he cannot read it. Really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fun. I- so great, great short story. If you're looking for, if you're looking for a Poe that isn't like the typical pit and pendulum telltale heart horror stories, which I love those stories too. But if you're looking for a slightly different one, uh, the man of the crowd, short read magnifique. Um, now, uh, Burton, uh, Poe is working at Burton's as we said. Um, <laughs> and then he gets fired again. He gets fired he gets fired for boozing fundamentally. He, he he's, he's falling down in the job. Now he very quickly turns this around and starts working for Graham's magazine. Uh, this is an 1841. This is another magazine, right? This uh, Graham is the name of a former cabinet maker and lawyer who um, basically, basically what happened is he bought Burton's Poe had been fired from Burton's. This Graham guy comes along. He had a magazine. He bought Burton's. He put it together with his magazine and he hired Poe. Um, and so now suddenly there's a distribution of uh, 5,000. Uh, the Graham's is a distribution of 5,000. Poe is given the, um, the, the position of editor. He's paid $800 a year. It's the most money he it might be the most money he ever makes as a wage. Um, $800 a year in those do- in those days dollars. Um and he has an assistant now so he doesn't have to do the you know he doesn't have to like arrange the type. He can like literally be an editor, you know, managing the content uh, of what's going to be in this magazine. Um and Poe's run at Graham's makes Graham a very wealthy man. Poe does not become wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you gotta yeah. you gotta structure your contracts yeah. properly people right yeah. right yeah. yeah there was a thing where i think there were other than graham i think there were five employees of the magazine the profit was twenty five thousand dollars a year when poe left he was the editor and he was making eight hundred dollars a year yeah okay i don't know yeah. i don't know what those numbers should be but you could have doubled. You could have doubled what you were paying Poe, and nobody would have noticed. Yeah, and maybe so, this has something to do with that boom and bust cycle we noticed earlier. <laughs> could be could somehow. Be. Mm, yeah. I wonder. Now, there's something very. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to get us through this. There's something very essential that Poe does at Graham's. He invents the detective story. There's never. There's basically zero detective stories before Poe writes the murders at Rue Morgue. They don't exist. Some people have said there weren't even really detectives before the murders at Rue Morgue. I can't, <laughs> like, I can't. I wouldn't even know where to find this detective. I would need a detective to find a detective story. Yes. That's a good idea. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So he he invents the detective. I think I vaguely maybe mm. knew this, but yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's three stories that feature this character uh, August August Dupin. French, French, uh, sort of freelance, um, detective, um, 
he's an expert in ratiocination, right? He he's he he can analyze any situation and break it down to um, exactly what happened. He can take very what seem to be disparate and and separate uh, details and weave a narrative, a rational narrative that connects the two of them. He's also very eccentric. He's sometimes irascible. He's sometimes condescending, plays by his own rules. He may remind people of some other famous literary character, Sherlock Holmes, who is a directly derived from August Dupin. Like Arthur Conan Doyle doesn't even try to hide it. It's he's like it's literally it's practically the same character. So Poe hmm. basically invented Sherlock Holmes. But not only you have to think not only Sherlock Holmes, think of the tropes, how many detective stories are there when you get the loose cannon cop or private detectives who's extremely talented but very eccentric and hard to deal with right it's literally august to Col- there's there's count colombo like there's 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 dozens and dozens and dozens of these uh, we always talk about <laughs> true detective season one yeah. it's right there yeah. It's yeah, it's a little bit in true detective right it's it's everywhere and poe basically creates this this trope uh, which just I, I think is is fascinating. It's pretty major. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, it is. It's he invented a you know. And this is the thing. If if that was all he did, he also you know pioneered in in gothic hor- horror. He's a pioneer in science fiction, um, and now he invents this whole subgenre. Um, there is this cool thing, and 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 so there's three stories: the the mur- uh, the murders at Rue Morgue. Where he solves this puzzle that ends up that an orangutan killed this this woman. Because <laughs> they can't he likes figure them it. orangutans. Yeah, he they, can, they can't they can't figure it out. It's like it had to have been somebody extremely strong. What, and then like, what's the yeah. motive? Right. Yeah. Well, it was just yeah yeah. Apparently, it had gotten loose from a zoo or something. Um, but it, it's interesting to watch Dupin go through how he's tracing these things together. And the other thing is Dupin is so rational that he can, it's like it borders on being able to read minds. Like he can, based on how you're acting, he can like tell you what you're thinking, right? And he, on more than one occasion, he sort of miraculously is able to pull off this feat, right? Press X to doubt. (laughs) That's right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Let me read a little bit from, uh, I think this is from... Yeah, I think this is from uh, D.H. Lawrence, I believe. Yes. Or from, yeah. Um, it's a little bit about Poe about po and murder as a crime, as an act, um, and a little bit about, well, just some of the things that seem to be going on in the works of Poe. Quote, in the murders in the Rue Morgue and another story, The Gold Bug, we have those mechanical tales where the interest lies in the following out of a subtle chain of cause and effect. The interest is scientific rather than artistic, a study in psychological relations. The fascination of murder itself is curious. Murder is not just killing. Murder is a lust to get at the very quick of life itself and kill it. Hence the stealth and the frequent uh, morbid dismemberment of the corpse, the attempt, uh, attempt to get at the very quick of the murdered being, to kind the quick uh, and to possess it. It is curious that the two men fascinated by the art of murder, though in different ways, should have been De Quincey and Poe. Uh, De Quincey, um, Thomas De Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, highly influential on Poe. 
uh, men so different in way of life, yet perhaps not so widely different in nature. And each of them is traceable, that strange lust for extreme love and extreme hate, possession by mystic violence of the other soul or violent deathly surrender of the soul and the self, and absence of manly virtue, which stands alone and accepts limits. Okay, just a little interesting thought about, you know, I think it's easy to, there, there is a certain, you know, in some ways, we have to reckon with the appeal of stories about murder. Like they're popular. They, they always have been, and they always will be right. They're, they're maybe more popular than they've ever been right now, you know? Um, and so, you know, the question is like, does that speak to, is that just a simple sort of facile, like fascination we have, or does it actually speak to something deeper about our relationship to life? And it and all speaks to something deeper because we're mm-hmm. the, we're really, we're the only animal that can murder really mm-hmm. certainly at the scale that we do. I'm sure somebody right. would, somebody with a fedora would want to come in and say, ah, but the monkeys, the chimps do it for blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But right. Uh, as far as we know, we're the only animals that are capable of doing that. It, the ability to murder is sort of what makes us human, yeah, uh, yeah. It, in a in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's uh, I'm getting ready to go see that Tool show, the Tool mm-hmm. song "Vicarious." Where you want to get really gnarly? It's sort of like, why are we entertained by this? Right. Why do we? You go into a workshop and it goes, "Oh, raise the stakes, raise the stakes." You know, get it. Why am I watching? And it's like, well, a murder will a murder will immediately grab your attention. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's primal, and, yeah. but it's also uh, extraordinarily human. And yeah. and there's a quality of, um, well, they say in that song, much better you than I. There's a little bit yeah. of like, if I'm here watching it, I can observe it and I'm safe from it. So it's titillating. Mm-hmm. It's almost pornographic in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a whole genre of murder porn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon a little more when we get to the, the, yeah. the Patreon, the After Dark. But uh, at the at the end of that, there's a this is no spoilers, but like it's a true crime story. And true mm. crime is aside from like comedy. It's the most yeah. popular genre of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it is. People love a murder story. So what, why, what do you think it is, Brad? I've got lots of well, theories about it. Well, but, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're, I think you're all, you're, you're hitting a lot of the notes. I think, I think this D.H. Lawrence bit was too. I think there's something very evolutionary about it too. There's something about like, there's something hmm. about observing a murder because, because our brains are always looking to how to solve problems that could happen to us too. Like that's part of the reason we gossip. I think is we're sort of like, did you hear what he did? That was really, you know, or did you hear what she did? And like your, your brain is logging this as information to like, not do that, not step over there, not interact with this, whatever it's, it's using it as survival. And so you see a murder and it's instant in instantly fascinating because it's like, that is a problem that I want to avoid as much as I possibly can. And oh, so it's so like that, magnetic. That's so interesting. Cause for me, it's always been like, Ooh, what if I have to do that one day? There's I that up, too. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah. kidding. But I think, I think on some subconscious level, there yeah. might be a, a little bit of that for people. Well, yeah. and you think of, well, this is another, this is another sort of subgenre of these sort of true crime movies is the, the, the story that's not, 
it's not like a um a murderer like somebody who sets out to murder it's somebody who for whatever reason a, a fairly innocuous or sort of medium level of guilt event gets out of hand and somebody dies right that's a situation you could imagine like you're driving on a road and you hit somebody and you're like not even drunk but ah, you know what i yeah, had two I, I had a couple of beers and yeah right sure right mm-hmm. like this would have happened mm-hmm. if i was sober but the courts you know like in those mm-hmm. situations are very unnerving i was i was right? swiping on my that my bumble match and <laughs> right. I, I didn't see the tricycle yeah yeah <laughs> what can i, what can right, I say right. right and i think it's significant to note too that one of the first stories in the bible is a murder it very early right i mean well and and the most important the most important story in the bible is a murder it is yeah in in a sense so yeah yeah, Yeah. it's it's at the heart of what makes us human yeah right right and so i I, you know i think poe is poe is when he gets to murders is is masterful at depicting the sort of psychological intricacies of these and yeah i think it's easy now for we kind of you know we can kind of mock the popularity of true crime, but there is, it clearly speaks to something just. It meets, it meets core. some human primal yeah. human need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really yeah. does. Yeah. Um, now 1841 Poe meets a guy named Rufus Griswold. Poe, uh, Rufus Griswold is kind of a hack writer who's, who gets a lot of power in the literati because he puts together a popular anthology. He's not apparently that great of a writer on his own. Poe has a very rivalrous relationship with him. And I'm just putting that name out there. So when Rufus Griswold comes back around near the end, you know that he he's known him for a number of years. Now, 1841, something else significant happens. Um, Virginia Clem begins to die. She gets tuberculosis, 1841, uh, or sorry, 1842, January 20th, 1842. While singing and playing the piano, she broke a blood vessel in her lungs and blood began to gush from her mouth. Ooh. So I don't know if you remember, there was an excerpt I read earlier when we were describing Virginia, and then we were describing Poe and Virginia at home, modest circumstances, but Poe's being very convivial and friendly to guests. And maybe Virginia is playing a little on the piano and singing. And despite their poverty, it's a beautiful little moment that they're able to have together. In one of these instances, she just starts coughing up blood and she's never well again for the rest of her life. Banging out rocket man on the piano. <laughs> just go so hard. I'm a rocket man. That is that is a scene. That's like something out of right. a, a play or a movie for sure. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, not too long after, uh in 1840. Oh no, 1842, same year of, of that she that, and Poe is there when this happens. The blood comes out and all of this. Um, he writes The Mask of the Red Death. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Kevin. The Master Heard of it, yeah. 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 yeah, I probably read uh, it ages yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah, so this is one of the first stories he writes after Virginia gets gets sick. Um, and this is where we see a big shift in the tenor. We see some of the elements that have always been there getting emphasized um, in this story and in those to follow. It's a Mask of the Red Death is a sort of imaginary period piece um, set you know, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> Um, and basically what's happened is this wealthy Prince Prospero has locked he and 
uh, he and a bunch of his friends, have, they've locked themselves up in the abbey and welded the doors shut to basically wait until this horrific plague dies down. And it's a plague where people are like bleeding from the pores of their skin. You die within like a half an hour of contracting it. It's like horrific. Um, and they've locked themselves into Ooh. this abbey. At least it wasn't COVID, though. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Woo>. right. <laughs> they really skated by there. Yeah, they, need, they, yeah, woof, they need their vaccines. Yeah. Okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and so they, <laughs> they're living in this very decadent environment. One thing that's cool that Poe does is he sets up each room in the Abbey is like he tells you exactly how it's lit and the col- each room is like a different color. This is very striking. Like he's 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 it's a cinematic kind of move. He's setting up these little set pieces um, that have these sort of poetic resonances. I keep thinking about Kafka. Did Kafka read Poe? He must have. I yeah. think he did. Yeah. 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 I, okay. I, 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 I I kept thinking the same thing. Like these mm-hmm. are sort of Kafka-esque setups where, where Kafka like sort of chops the end off of these almost or something, right? Like mm. Poe settles into them making sense a little more than Kafka does, but they there are they are of that same kind of vibe. Um let me just uh well, anyway, I, I just think the mask of the red death is significant not only because it's a good story in and of itself and it's worth reading i think it really i want to emphasize the shift in poe's perspective and his creative interests after virginia gets sick you get the mask of the red death and then it might not be the next story but a little bit later in the year you get the pit and the pendulum um Interestingly, The Pit and the Pendulum, one of his most famous stories, comes out in a volume, a literary annual called The Gift, a Christmas and New Year's present for 1843. And it's a story for people who don't know. It's a story set during the Spanish Inquisition in which a prisoner, um, he's he just wakes up in this dark dungeon. He's trying to figure it out. He's trying to measure it out. Then he 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 wakes up again. He I can't remember if he gets poisoned or what but anyway he wakes up again and he's strapped to some kind of front wooden frame and there is a pendulum a crescent shaped blade about a foot long swinging back and forth and with every swing it sort of inches closer to him right and and the horror of the story is the madness of just watching it every single inch you know, and the rhythm of it, right? And the impending. And after a while, you're going to know exactly how long this is going to take. And that's what the horror... And and again, think about tuberculosis for people was often fatal. Um, f- very often fatal, fra- uh, fatal in the 1840s. Um, he had lost... Poe had lost his brother to tuberculosis. He had lost his mother he had lost his foster foster mother and who knows how many other people he knew that had died of tuberculosis. And now his young wife, who he was madly in love with, has tuberculosis. And so that pendulum is swinging. Now, here's where the part that people forget in the pit in the pendulum. He gets out. The guy gets out of his strapping. He, He manages to trick a mouse or a rat to come and nibble off the like how he's been strapped down and escape. And then as soon as he does that, 
the walls become red hot and start squeezing in on him. <laughs> I think people freak. <laughs> that rocks. <laughs> like you just go out of one thing and soon enough. Eventually he does get he does get um he does get saved by the French army the last very last second. But mm. um but yeah, it's interesting. Um a few years later, we're gonna get a story called The Black Cat. This is one that I think people don't know as much. Uh, a little less familiar with, but it's a striking story. I'm just going to read a little passage from it and then we'll keep moving along. The black cat. This is so striking. Okay. Um, So what, what he'd done, the black cat, the narrator, it's one of Poe's deranged narrators. He, um, they had a black cat and the black cat, there's other things going on, but suffice to say that the narrator has like in a fit of rage killed this cat. And now he, and this is immediately after that <laughs> quote. And now I was indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity and a brute beast whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed a brute beast to work out for me, for me, a man fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe. Alas, neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest anymore. During the former, the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath uh, the presence of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my soul intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day, she accompanied me uh, upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit the cat followed me down oh yeah he killed the cat and it came back <clears throat> the cat came back the very next day <clears throat> uh the cat followed me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand i aimed a blow at the animal which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as i wished but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoni- demoniacal i withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain she fell dead upon the spot without a groan so we'll just say that there weren't a lot of people writing like that in Poe's day <laughs> just incidental axe murders uh in in you know in cellars yeah. And if you could write this right now today, yeah, it would, you know, it would have like an elevated, unusual style, but right. it, would, it would be enough. It would oh, be enough. Dude, did you, I, have you seen the, I'm sure you, you remember the first season of Fargo, the TV version of Fargo? Yeah. There's, you know, there's this and that going on. There's a lot going on. But the, the crux of the entire season is the main character at one point gets pushed too far into a corner and he just bops his wife in the face with an, a, a, a hammer and it kills her. Mm-hmm. It's just this moment of like, boom, like yep. now it's irrecoverable. You cross some line in a fraction of a second. You know, it's all of that. 
uh, yeah so yeah anyway um and there's all this other mis- uh you know hatred of humanity in here like poe is going to a very dark place after after virginia gets sick and we're gonna see how deep it gets but um moving right along now in reading poe's biography i think in terms of a writing career, I think we see a moment where he has in some ways made it um, in terms of reputation. You know, you can say made it as a as an artist. There's a lot of ways to say that you made it. I think, you know, you know, highly successful commercially might be one way. Um, another way might be respect of your peers. Right. Um, somebody who you look up to turns around and says, hey, you got it. Um that's kind of that's a version of making it. Um, and in March of 1842, Poe meets Charles Dickens. He'd sent Dick Charles Dickens a review of Barnaby Rudge. Um, and Dickens thought very well of Poe and liked his review. And um, when they met in uh, they met in Philadelphia, uh, Dickens promised to try and help Poe get published in England. Apparently nothing came of this, but Dickens was like, I'm on your side, man. You're a good writer. I'll see if I can help. And in fact, after Poe was dead, Dickens the neck another time came and toured America. He sought out Aunt Maria Clem, Poe's, you know, Poe's aunt, and gave her a reasonably sized donation to kind of help her keep uh keep body and soul together. Um around I'm, this- for, I'm sure she said, What the Dickens? <laughs> oh, it's yes. muddy. Yeah. Thank oh, you, yeah. I'll take that. Dickens. I will take yeah. that. I yeah. will. I like money. Mm-hmm. Um, now, around this time, too, in 1840, uh, 1842, he became well known to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Poe at one time thought that Hawthorne was uh, the most privately appre- admired and publicly unappreciated man of genius in America. And they, they, they became known to each other. Or, well, Poe became known to him. Um, uh, something else Poe does in 1840s that's pretty interesting and, and maybe would be expected by some people and not by others. Uh, while contributing to Grams, he starts doing uh, he starts doing this thing where he tells the reading audience to send in ciphers. Basically, a ciphers is a simple kind of code where there's some kind of substitution rule. And the trick to deciphering it is figuring out what the substitution rule is. And they can be fairly, they can be fairly complicated. Um, Poe would have the audience, the, the readership send these in and he would solve them. And he wrote a bit about how to come up with ciphers and how to decipher. He was very, very fascinated with cryptography in general. And apparently he solved virtually all of them that the audience would send in. And he would at one point he was giving away a yearly subscription if you could, you know, yeah, a you little know. contest. Yeah. yeah. Trick Poe. That's fun. Yeah, that's pretty. It cool. is pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. Sort of activating. Yeah. He had his own little <laughs> yeah, community. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It's a cool yeah. move. And, and, and his writing on cryptography was used as like a fundamental cryptography hadn't been formalized as a as a at that time quite yet there weren't like best practices and his document secret writing informed the later you know so he came up with encryption is what i'm trying to say though that's a stretch um edgar Allan poe is satoshi bitcoin <laughs> has been around since the 1840s just, just waiting on the technology it just wasn't in your computer yet right right exactly yeah. exactly uh <laughs> 
<laughs> this whole cryptography thing culminates in a story called The Gold Bug, um, which at its time was Poe's most popular story. It appeared in the Philadelphia Dollar newspaper, um, which had a circulation of 300,000, supposedly. Um, though for Poe, he only got paid $100. Um, the story, The Gold Bug, it's quite it's worth a read. It has a very long stretch of 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 Poe explaining how the narr- uh the main character, this guy, um uh, what the heck is his name? Anyway, the guy who the sort of main character of it, how he solved where this buried treasure was. And it goes on page after page of like decoding this like abstruse message. And to be frank, it's not the most interesting that it's not the most interesting of the Poe stories. There is a character, and Poe didn't do this very often. There is a slave character who is very much like, you know how um, what is that Disney movie, Sound of the S- Song of the South? That's mm-hmm. like the ant, yeah, Song of the South, yeah. Jupiter from Poe's story, The Gold Bug. Like the Gold Bug is like Poe's Song of the Just South. Just a, a a caricature. Yeah, a total okay. caricature. And right. part of the reason it was popular is because people thought, thought Jupiter was funny. Um, hey, okay. The the people want want the, what they want, Brad. I'm not. I'm just. Yeah. You know, I'm telling hey, culture. This is cultural at, history podcast. At yeah. least they're reading, is what somebody would would say now, or probably not. But in any case, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's interesting. That that's a, an odd story that would be his most popular. Uh, I find that interesting. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And now he would have one bigger, one much bigger hit than that when we're coming to okay. It. Cool. Um, uh, he it's, it's got to be the telltale heart, right? No, 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 no. Okay. the raven. Right. Oh, the raven, of course. Yeah. What am I thinking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, now he's got a whole damn football team na- named yeah. after him, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In- the Minnesota Vikings. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're getting into the f- uh, fifth hour, fifth hour. Yeah, the yeah, pod. we're getting there. Yeah, Brad, thank you so much for doing this. I love doing these core episodes with you. The darkroom episodes are fun too. It's great. Uh, this is awesome. We're, we're every now everybody knows too. We're getting to the Raven, and uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. really excited for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, April of 1842, Poe resigns from his job at Graham's. Graham's was the best job he ever had. Why does he resign? Well, frankly, he's being. This is the this is part of the reason he resigns is he the, the he rad radically expanded the distribution of grams and again profits of twenty five thousand dollars a year Poe making eight hundred dollars a year and it's basically Poe's magazine right like and, and again I don't know what the numbers should be but sure. it's a little hard to swallow when that's yeah. the disparity right part, let me buy in a partnership share. Right. Let me yeah, see some of the sweet, sweet, sweet yeah. greenbacks that right. I'm essentially making for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he said at one point, like, I would have rather like he could have given me a five percent stake in the company and paid like paid me no salary and I would have done better. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Right. Anyway, so that was part of it. Um, also, when Virginia had her hemorrhage, he had asked for a two month advance on his pay. Like you know, get a doctor and take care of some stuff. I might need to take a minute off, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and Graham said no. Um, so e- hmm. even not, not like this Graham guy. Yeah. And you can't even give him a little, give him a little, like, yeah. like a little, help him yeah. out a little bit. Hmm. Um, now he also was getting a little bit sick of getting pushed around. 
And then one day he returned from a brief illness, Poe did, probably boozing, but we don't know for sure, to find that another person was doing his job. So he just bounced. <laughs> Poe was like, that's it. I'm done. This is, this is ridiculous. Um, Rufus Griswold, who we mentioned briefly earlier, and I just told you to remember his name, Rufus Griswold took over the job. And while Poe was, po was making $800 and was a wild success, Rufus Griswold was paid $1,000 a year. So mm. this Poe did not like Griswold, and this was another reason not to like him. It's so funny. The, the name Rufus Griswold is just right out of central casting for a villain. It Jeez. really is. Yeah. 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 It really yeah. is. You don't hear the name Rufus much anymore, do you? Barely yeah. ever. Yeah. Maybe yeah, barely ever. Yeah. 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 It's got an interesting ring. Yeah, I don't think it's it. bad, really. Yeah, yeah I, I have a theory that one of the reasons we're having so few children as a species now uh, is mm. because we, we've we uh, stopped being able to come up with good names. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, could be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's all. That's all. Yeah, that's that's that it's okay. it's not even a joke. It's a real yeah. theory. <laughs> it is funny though, like when you think about naming kids, like because yeah, people had like Rufus as a name, but like who is looking at their little kid and being like, We should name him Rufus? They were out family names and relatives, yeah. and it, it has special meaning. And then it's it is strange how names take on like a weird sour turn at they a do. certain point. They, yeah. you know, hmm. but I yeah. feel like what we used to do was we would name an adult, and it's like they're just a kid, and eventually there'll be an adult named Carl. Whereas now we name a kid, we name a kid, we name a cute kid. You don't think that people gave names to their children back no, in the I, day? No, or? I think they did. But I think when they applied the name, they thought of them as an adult. Ah, ah, and I now see. It's oh, like, I see. Now you it's like we give them a cute baby's name. We give okay. them a cute, cute little kid's name. Yeah. I see. Okay. Well, this is this is riveting stuff, Brad. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure this is what everybody. I should have saved this for, for the Patreon. Yeah, this will. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're really going to sell the Patreon now, Brad. <laughs> interesting, though. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay, so he's got okay. this nemesis Rufus who's making okay. more money than he is yes. uh, at a crummier so, outfit, and, and took his and took his job from and took his now, job right. Basically, he took over his job. Didn't steal it. Now, after this, after he leaves Graham's. Poe gets the idea. He knows um, he knows uh, he has a friend who's friends with Robert Tyler, who's the son of John President John Tyler. And so it gets in Poe's head through some message uh, letter of a friend of his that he can get a basically a, a cushy government job working for the Philadelphia Custom House. Um, he has to wait for the other customs, the, the the customs official who's in the seat at the time to resign. And then they're going to open up a whole new, new run of jobs. And it seems like Poe probably would have got it. Um, except. Well, he got drunk. So he didn't get that job. Um, he, yeah. And then later, a year later, he tried to go to Washington, D.C. to make his case to John Tyler directly. And, and he got drunk. And mm -hmm. he didn't make it. So if you don't make your appointment with the president of the United States, uh, that's not good. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just like, dude, like yeah. pull yeah. it together for like, you got to follow minutes, through man. Yeah. yeah like yeah. for real. Yeah. Um, now, so he's getting poorer and poorer 
as you can imagine, he doesn't have his job anymore. He does start doing the lecture circuit. He does, I think his first event was a talk in Philadelphia on the topic of poetry in America. Mostly he just bashed Rufus, Rufus Griswold's po uh, poetry and anthology. But people liked to hear him talk. And for the rest of his life, he would periodically do um, give talks on or, or readings on one thing or another. Um, now, April 14, 1844, Poe moves to New York. Uh, he'd given a lecture there and it had gone well and he decided, you know what, I probably should be in the center of New York literary society. Um, one of the first bits of writing that he uh, hits the shelves in these New York years is a, and again, I, I, I'm skipping over some stuff here. There's a whole adventure story about how they got an apartment in New York. He like left her on the boat and like went ashore to find lodging. It's it's all pretty insane. And they're poor. He's got to bring, poor, you know, he's dragged Maria Clem all up and down the eastern seaboard, right? Um, but one of the first pieces of, he publishes his a story called The Balloon Hoax. It was published under the title The Balloon Hoax. So keep that in mind. Knowing, quote, the extravagant gullibility of the age, Poe tried to imagine improbable possibilities. In April, on April 13th of 1844, he publishes this story, The Balloon Hoax, in the New York Sun. And it's about a balloon, an impossible balloon crossing. Basically, what happened is they these guys had they they were gonna do a hot air balloon over the English Channel. And they get caught up in a jet stream and they get blown all the way to the United States, like super fast. It's going like, I think it takes them three days in the story. And this comes out in the New York Sun, the story. It's a fun little adventure story. It's the second balloon story um, of Pose. Of He ends up having three balloon stories. And despite the fact of the story's title, people once again believed this was a real news story. <laughs> you wouldn't tell us it was a hoax if it was if it if it was a hoax. Why? Maybe right. some lawyer, maybe right. some lawyer made him say the balloon hoax. Because I, honey, get in here. I think that this, I think that this story, the balloon hoax. What is that? What does hoax mean? Rufus, get in here. <laughs> hoax, people, the people balloon hoax. Yeah, people were like like pounding on the door of the New York Sun office trying to find out more about this record-breaking phenomenal balloon crossing. And it's just it's just so, it literally says in the title, this is not true. <laughs> and then the market crashed. Right. Yeah, the panic of 1844, <laughs> right? Everybody invested all their money in balloons. The whole thing went topsy-turvy. The Rufus Balloon Hoax Panic. <laughs> but, uh, I, but I study uh, an economic historian, so I pronounce it the Rufus Balloon Hoax. Hoax. <laughs> <laughs> and it just it just sent the market tumbling. <laughs> we, we usually say the market popped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. I, I think it's I just think it's funny because like a lot of times you always hear like people are so I, I don't know like I wonder if I feel like they're more gullible than we are now 
I, I think they they're, were. were equally gullible, but in a different way. That's probably I mean, true. what are we, yeah. I mean, yeah, their minds would be blown, but like what is happening? I mean, dude, how many bots oh. are on Twitter? Like how yeah. many real accounts? Oh yeah. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not saying, thing. I'm definitely not saying we're zero gullible. I just think like they may be even more gullible. Mm. They might've been even more gullible. He, it possibly. seems like, it seems like there's this thing that's like, if it's written down, even if it says it's a hoax, <laughs> It's got to be true. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, so, okay. So in this time, he also, uh, in this 1844 uh, time, he writes, he finishes the Dupin trilogy uh, with the Purloined Letter. Very good story. Very much like a logical, like a Hitchcockian kind of like, uh, it only works because of these sequences of who knew what, when, about what. Um, it was very well done, very concise, very tidy. Um, uh, he writes the premature burial, which expanded on people's fears of being burnt, buried alive. In the 19th century, people were terrified of being buried alive. I think this is common, commonly known now, but it was like a public fear that many, many people had. Um so he has that in premature burial, but he also has uh, the cask of Amontillado, uh, in which you know uh, the character, a character walls up his enemy in his basically his wine cellar. Um, Telltale Heart comes a little bit later. Um, now, in February of eighteen forty-five, Edgar Allan Poe publishes *The Raven* in the American Review. He publishes it under the name Quarles in reference to the English poet Francis uh, Quarles. He was paid $9 at the time for the poem. Um, and he said that he had deliberately tried to write something that would appeal to both popular and critical tastes. Um, and it was an immediate sensation and su surpassed in popularity any previous American poem. Uh, there was, and maybe never has been, frankly, a more popular poem than The Raven in America. Um, so suddenly, after nine months of living in a her, kind of a hermetic experience, experience he, he, he'd written a couple things here and there. He'd traveled a little bit and done a couple, uh, uh, he'd done a couple speaking things. He was suddenly the lion of the New York literary scene. The Raven just changes overnight his reputation in New York. Um, he has a biographical essay published about him in Graham's, which had, by the way, interestingly, Graham's, his old, excuse me, his old employer had refused to publish The Raven. But when Graham found out how hard up Poe was, Graham gave him 15 bucks. So Poe made more off of the rejection by a friend than actually publishing this story to huge acclaim. <laughs> Which <laughs> is just one of these weird ironies, right? Um, uh, after the poem comes out, he gets into friendly correspondence with the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who he he had a very, very high opinion of um, and who was deeply influenced by. Um, and fairly quickly, a collection of Poe's poetry comes out, which doesn't sell quite as well as the, the American Review edition that has the Raven in it. Um, let's just read. We got to read a little bit of the Raven. Not the whole thing, but a little bit. It's so it is, frankly, I didn't remember it that well, other than a couple of the kind of key phrases. It has, and we're gonna talk briefly about what he's doing poetically. Um, it is a special poem. It really is. It's 
it's something different than almost anything else. <clears throat> okay, this is the Raven, part of the Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books' surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore.' For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to still the beating of my heart I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, this it is, and nothing more." All right, let me skip to a little bit where it actually has the raven in it. But the raven sitting lonely on that plat. So for people who don't know, he's haunted by the sounds. He opens the door. There's nothing there. A raven comes in and he's all caught up. It's a it's a manifestation or an objective correlative of this sorrow he has for a woman that he has lost. <clears throat> but the raven sitting lonely on that placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply, so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till the songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. So it just goes on like that. Yeah, it's a banger. For it, sure. it really is, man. Mm -hmm. it, it, and when you read it aloud, too, it it takes over there's so many rhythms going on at the same time i mean cl clearly there's this rhyme scheme um it's uh written in trochaic octometer for people who are interested in this thing trochaic basically means that the meter goes stressed unstressed and octometer means there are eight of these uh pairs per line poe would claim that it was a mix of octometer uh actolectic heptometer catalectic and tetrameter catalectic uh, which probably was Poe boasting about the poem's complexity it is fairly complicated uh, in terms of meter and rhyme. It is fairly complicated. The rhyme scheme is generally A, B, C, B, 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 but he has a lot of internal rhyme and a number of alliterations that make it feel almost like slant rhyming. Um, he was incredibly proud of this work, as he should have been. Uh, when it was at the printers, he told a friend that it was the greatest poem ever written. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Right. Okay. Hey, man. Yeah. You know, the, I don't, there's, I, I don't know. there's no point being modest. I mean, no. what What's are you going to do? Get you gotta, yeah. If you believe, if, yeah. you, if you make something, you got to promote it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, he said that, quote, nothing even remote, remotely approaching this stanzaic combination has ever been attempted. Now, this isn't actually true. He borrowed a lot of the I, some of the core ideas about the stanzaic combination from Elizabeth Barrett, Barrett Browning. Um, but nonetheless, um, 
it was much more complicated than the kind of poetry that was popular at the time. This is the other thing. For it to be a popular poem, um, it is unusually, unusual, unusually intricate in its in how it rhymes and how it feels and how it sounds. Um, so in a way, he's kind of it's not wrong. I, I don't know if anybody's other people have tried it, but he's put something out there that is this kind of weird, rare gem. Hmm. Um, and immediately after it coming out, Poe is cock of the walk. Uh, let's read a bit from this little uh, biographical essay about him that came out right after this was published, right after um, the, the Raven was published. Quote, Mr. Poe is at once the most discriminating, philosophical, and fearless critic upon imaginative, imaginative works who has written in America. He seems sometimes to mistake his vial of pr uh, prussic acid, uh, but he sometimes seems to mistake his vial of prussic acid for his inkstand. Mr. Poe has two of the prime qualities of genius, a faculty of rigorous yet minute analysis and a wonderful fecundity of imagination. Seems very true. As a critic, Mr. Poe was aesthetically deficient. Unerring in his uh, analysis of dictions, meters, and plots, he seemed wanting in the faculty of perceiving the profounder ethics of art. His criticisms are, however, distinguished for scientific precision and coherence of logic. They have the exactness and, at the same time, the coldness of mathematical demonstrations. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's a little bit about how he looked at this time, what it was like to be in his space. Uh, quote, this is from a writer named... Um, his last name's Lowell. What's his first name? John? Anyway. <clears throat> quote, he was small. Or that is Poe. Poe was small. His complexion of what I sh should call a clammy, white, fine, dark eyes and fine head, very broad at the temples, but receding sharply from the brows backwards. His manner was rather formal, even pompous. I found him a little tipsy, as if he were recovering from a fit of drunkenness. And with that over solemnity with which men in such cases try to convince you of their sobriety, I well remember, for it pained me, the anxious expression of his wife. Okay, so moving right along here. Um, sorry, I was I... reading in the background that he this shot him to superstardom, yes. household name, and yes. he he even earned the nickname the Raven. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it played yeah. into his whole vibe. Like I'm saying dark and clammy and beady eyes and kind of you know, <laughs> like, and he reads, and then this is the thing he was, um, he was very good at, uh, reading aloud. Right. And so you have to imagine for a while, the hippest thing that could happen in New York city was for you to be at a party when this strange looking dude got up to read the Raven, like with intensity and like, you know what I mean? Like a, a certain strange, dark magnetism, uh, his shabby genteel clothes, right? Like there's just something. Yeah. With the, with the Southern accent and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. there, so mm -hmm. very, it would be, it would have been very cool to be in the room for that. Um, yeah. So, Poe is uh, a big deal. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it didn't bring him in hardly any money at all. It, he made $9 off of it at the time. Um, uh, <laughs> and, you know, as soon as he gets pushed into the like 
you know, he's been kind of a name in Philadelphia and in 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 Richmond and these smaller magazines. Now he's the literary lion of New York. Um, and this immediately puts him under scrutiny. He gets uh uh he <laughs> he doesn't like the biographical essay on him, even though it's positive, any negativity in there at all he takes umbrage with. He starts accusing people of being plagiarists that he doesn't like, including the guy who's who just depicted him, James Russell Lowell. Um uh yeah, um he ends up uh he ends up co-editing this magazine called the Broadway Journal, which is the most sophisticated of the magazines he's ever worked for. Um, and in the Broadway Journal, he starts going after Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And for people who don't know, Longfellow is, and at the time certainly was, we've, we've sort of forgotten his name to a certain extent. He was a hero of American letters. I mean, he wrote... Um, Hiawatha, which is like a true, an attempt at a true American original epic story. Um, he was, yeah, he was a literary hero. Um, people didn't, he didn't speak ill of, of, of Longfellow. Um, he, now Poe had called Longfellow the best American poet just years before, before, but the thinking is that Poe started to resent Longfellow after he'd written The Raven. He's like, no, The Raven is the best. The Raven is the poet, the poem. This is what you should be reading. Forget this Longfellow guy. There's that. There's also the fact that Poe, again, long overworked, long underpaid, resented that Longfellow was married to a wealthy woman. So Longfellow didn't have to worry about money. Longfellow had a chair at Harvard. He had a secure reputation and he had a tendency to moralize and Poe didn't like moralizing in literature. He didn't think that's what literature, poetry or stories were supposed to be about. So despite the fact that Poe had recognized Longfellow's talent, he became like the perfect enemy to Poe, right? Um, and you can, you can, in a sense, you can sort of understand why, because he's been suffering through all this. He's just gotten this huge validation, right? And then this asshole... <laughs> he sits at Harvard, doesn't do mm -hmm. whatever he wants. Yeah, he's the he's the establishment. I'm the I'm the new yeah. kid on the block, and right. I'm, the, I'm gonna let him know what's what. And I've got lots of theories about what poetry is, and I've written the greatest poem of all time. Right, I'm right. gonna come at you, bro. Yeah, you can yeah. you can kind of you can, it makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Now Longfellow never responded to anything Poe wrote about this. <laughs> That's the <laughs> that is the move. If you're if you've totally got a chair at Harvard, yeah, or whatever it is, yep. uh, yeah, yeah, so, you yeah. can just you don't always have to bite back. Yeah, yeah. Now here's what uh, because Longfellow outlived Poe. This is what Longfellow said about Poe: "Quote, what a melancholy death is that of Mister Poe, man so richly endowed with genius. I never knew him personally, but I've always entertained a high appreciation of his powers as a prose writer and a poet." His prose is remarkably vigorous, direct, and yet affluent, and his verse has a particular charm of melody, an atmosphere of true poetry about it, which is very winning. The harshness of his criticisms I have never attributed to anything but the irritation of his sensitive nature, chafed by some indefinite sense of wrong. Okay. Now, Poe, uh, if you're an artist and you can't make a bunch of money and you can't get an esteemed academic position and you can't get some huge major book deal... And you can't get a massive patronage. Uh, what is the next best reward? Some might say 
the next best reward would be access to attractive women. Now, Poe was apparently, now that he'd written written the, the Raven, attractive to a certain type of woman. Uh, the most prominent of these we're talking about near nearing his end of the end of his life is a woman named Frances Osgood or Fanny. Um, but he would have a number of other f- um, female friends who sometimes competed for his affections. Now, remember, Virginia is alive still in, in 1845, 1846, but she is very, very ill. And so she doesn't attend literary events with him for the most part. She spends most of her time in bed, frankly. Uh, it's a sad, tragic thing, but but he's out in literary society. He's out flirting, etc. Now, um, he, you know, as we said, he has this tomahawk. He's this harsh critic. He is want to sort of blow things up occasionally. He has a a speaking engagement at the Boston Lyceum that is roundly mocked in the newspapers. (laughs) Um, And it literally tarnishes reputation. It's a speaking engagement that goes so poorly. Like people, he loses a good chunk of the stock he had in people's eyes for writing the reputation. Um, He he was probably hammered or something. He might have been hammered. He read a part of Tamer Lane, which is just not a good poem. And then a part of the race part of the Raven. And it was supposed oh. to be about like the state of American poetry. It was just like, not what anybody came for. Man, and just come out an and asshole. read the, read the Raven, play the right. hits. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Play um, Freebird, man. Yeah. Yeah. He, he read Tamer Lane and then he was drunk on champagne and he basically mocked people for clapping at it, even because he'd written it when he was a teenager, even though they'd only clapped at it to be cur- courteous to him. Right. So this is like this weird, like, yeah, not good. Now the the stuffy the Bostonians are gonna love that right mm-hmm. right yeah. right right. Um, now he had um, so he's working on the Broadway Journal. He starts having issues with um, uh, you know he starts having issues with some of the the people that he works with. Um, one of the guys decides he's gonna try to buy out. There, there's a partnership that owns it. One of the guys decides he's going to, uh, I think it's Briggs. Briggs decides he's going to buy out the journal. um, But the other gentleman might not have his name. The other gentleman pushes back and Briggs ends up leaving. And so now it's, it's Poe and this other guy have the, have the, have the journal. And then this remaining owner owner sold the Broadway journal to Poe for $50. Poe didn't have this money, but he managed to scrabble it together. He dreamt for a long time of having a journal of his own. Now it sort of falls into his laps, his lap. Um, and uh, despite having been a successful editor, he can't run a magazine. There's like a, the business owning aspect. The pressure is too much. He just literally cannot handle it. Um, there is an interesting anecdote about Walt Whitman coming to visit him. So Walt Whitman, a young Walt Whitman and Poe sat in Poe's Broadway Journal office at one point. And I just think that would have been an interesting. That's two like that's two true American originals, you know. Um, uh, he just so anyway, Poe's trying to run this magazine. He just doesn't have any business ability. Uh, he couldn't keep the thing going. Uh Let's see. The final the final straw of this was that after a drunken spree, Poe could not get the mag the the copy ready on time. And basically the thing just falls apart. 
So a reasonably successful magazine, I think they got out two issues before Poe just blew the whole thing up. Uh Um, So we're getting close to the last bit of his life. Um, In the ensuing years, the last year of his life, 1849, he made $275. And the last three years of his life were roughly about that. Remember, he was starving or almost starving on $800 a year. The last three years of his life, he's making somewhere around $200 to $300 a year. And living in New York City. Living in New York City. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not. (laughs) And the question is, it's funny. I I had this, I had this question. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to set up this next part. You know, he's making so little, so little money. How did he survive? Well, the truth is he didn't. Right. It's literally, in my opinion, it's fundamentally poverty that kills him. Coming Um, to it, aren't we? Yes, Mm. we are coming to it. So, okay. So within a year of the Raven, Poe had largely disgraced himself with his Boston Lyceum performance. We're going to talk more in the after dark art of uh, patreon.com slash art of dark pod about the final act that gets him booted out of the New York literati. He loses his magazine. Um, There was a rumor going around fomented by both Poe's numerous literary enemies and even some of the letters he'd wrote that Poe was insane. Like generally, like it would not have been uncommon for people to just think that Poe was insane. Um, He'd written the Raven. He'd written stories about mad killers. Perhaps he was one or could be one. Right. Um, So he tries to distance himself somewhat from the New York scene and he moves up to this dilapidated cottage in Fordham. Um, way up north of the Bronx, past Yankee Stadium, for people who know any New York geography. Um, out there, just one last kind of cute anecdote. He befriends some Jesuits who uh, from St. John's College, which would later become Fordham University. Um, Poe said of them, they, quote, smoked, drink, and played cards like gentlemen and never said a word about religion. <laughs> <laughs> so i like this he's up there just like hanging out just chilling with the jesuits based jesuits yeah. right yeah <laughs> now poe kept stoking the fires of the new york literary scene he'd been he'd been run out of it in shame but he kept he he had a column for a while called the new york literati in which he <laughs> basically wrote it was basically a gossip column about like it'd be like writing a gossip column about isn't there like our podcast like, friends or whatever? Something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was <laughs> not a bad out, idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he would give out really harsh opinions about the literary merits of stuff. So it was a lot yeah. of like, and his yeah. book sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. boy. So this came out in something called uh, Godie's Ladies Book. It's just like a woman's gossip magazine. Um, Ugh. His last remaining friends, uh, were pretty much all aligned against him at this point. Um, he writes one of uh, the ultimate uh, <laughs> while caught up in a libel case, which we'll talk more about in the after dark. He writes one of the ultimate stories of re- revenge, the cask of Amontillado. Um, uh, yeah. I just, it's I, all I falling to, apart. I mean, it, and, and I also yeah. think there's, there's probably an element of, I, I don't think he could handle fame. No, I too. don't think so. So he I, it goes went to right, York, it went right to his yeah. head, goes yeah. right to his head, mm-hmm. goes to Boston, botches yeah. a speaking thing. He's an alcoholic. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. He can't hold it together. And right. there would have been no way for him to capitalize on this fame anyway. Not uh, really. Not not the way that he was. So. I mean, he probably mm-hmm. could, if he would have been enterprising and it would have been like, all right, this mm-hmm. is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tour the country reading The Raven. Reading The Raven in, in one of my short stories or two. Right. He probably yeah. could have done fairly well doing something yeah. like that. And it would have, wouldn't have lasted forever, but, no. you know, a year yeah. or something. Do a year of that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but um, anyway, January of 1847, we get almost the final nail in the coffin. Virginia dies. Um, she'd hardly had a good day since that day five years earlier when she had the hemorrhage. She was only 24 years old. Um, having no image of Virginia, Poe realized he had no painting or any or anything of her. He quickly commissioned a watercolor portrait. And if you look up Virginia Clem, the only image of her is that painting of her taken after her death. So, Looking it up now. Yeah. So after she dies, <clears throat> he breaks down completely. I mean, he'd already torpedoed his career, but basically now he, he physically and psychologically starts to break down. In 1847, a woman who nursed him said that she believed he had a lesion on his brain. And it was also remarked that his pulse would beat 10 regular beats and then intermittent. He had a heart arrhythmia. Um, Who knows how long he'd had this for, but he definitely had it now. Uh, Fanny Osgood, a woman, uh, a writer, a woman who was a writer who would had a flirtation with with Poe, became the apple of Poe's eye. He'd had an earlier flirtation with her that Virginia actually encouraged, which was kind of interesting. I think Virginia was incapable of participating in social and possibly even the sexual part of a relationship. And she kind of encouraged Poe to flirt with this woman. Um, She may have also been excited that Poe was attracting attention. Like there is some suggestion that that excited Virginia, the idea that her man was now suddenly this big deal that he was when the Raven was at its top. Um, But Fanny... Poe lost Fanny to Rufus Griswold. So it's another, another Rufus. Rufus is the son yeah. of a bitch. But you I know mean, what? Poe's Poe the son of a bitch too. Listen, you know what? As the old saying goes, when Rufus comes to Colin, hide your daughters. <laughs> you, you ever grow up? You ever grow up with that? You ever hear that? No, the, no, no? I, I didn't. No, no. <laughs> we grew up in different parts of the country. You played yeah, Euchre. Yeah. I played Pinnacle, and we hid yeah. our cousins from Rufus. <laughs> <laughs> now, out, out in North Dakota in the <laughs> 80s and the 90s. Now, there's one big piece of writing I got to talk about, and I'm not going to go in depth on it, but Poe thought it was among the most important things that had ever been written. It's a book called, it's a 40,000-word prose poem essay called Eureka. Um I'll just give you a quick summary. Eureka is Poe's attempt at explaining the universe using his general proposition that, quote, because nothing was, therefore all things are. In Eureka, Poe discusses man's relationship to God and the universe, or as he offers at the beginning, I designed to speak of the physical, metaphysical, and mathematical of the material and spiritual universe, of its essence, its origin, its creation, its present condition, and its destiny. Now, um... Let me read a quick thing from the preface. It's just a few lines. To the few who love me and whom I love, to those who feel rather than to those who think, to the dreamers and those who put faith in dreams as in the only realities, I offer this book of truths, not in its character of truth teller, but for the beauty that abounds in its truth, constituting it true. 
To these, I present the composition as an art product alone, let us say as a romance, or if I be not urging too lofty a claim, as a poem. Now, uh, this thing bombed. Uh, Poe thought that they should print 50,000 copies of it, that that might be sufficient, that it was going to change the world, that, like I said, it was one of the most important things that was ever written. Um, It's basically nobody reads it now at all. Um, It's completely overlooked. I think it's possible, you know, I am kind of interested in like, what is Poe's sort of cosmology, right? Like there's a, there's a, imaginable world where that's an interesting book i think the problem is poe was out of his mind when he wrote it like it was all the wheels had come off at this point um and so and he was arrogant right like to set out i am going to write the most important book ever written that is a surefire way to write a piece of doggerel right yeah um Mm -hmm. yeah so now as we sort of alluded to, after Virginia died, Poe proposes to several women who all reject him. Marie Shrew, his nurse. Uh, Annie Annie Richmond uh, was a woman. She may have been married at one point. Annie, Annie Richmond wouldn't marry him because he was a drunk. Um, uh, his Shrew, uh, Mary Shrew, his nurse, didn't want to marry him because she'd seen... She was his nurse. She'd seen how dark he was. Uh <laughs> After her rejection, Mary Shrew rejected her, Poe became belligerent and challenged a newspaper editor to a duel, which never happened. Uh, Annie Richmond was this woman who was younger than him, unsophisticated, but attractive. She sort of fell for Poe, but in he, but Poe ended up trying to play her against this other woman, Sarah Helen Whitman. It didn't work out. Poe loses his mind and tries to kill himself with laudanum. Uh, And the reason he does it is because Annie Richmond had promised him that if he were to be on his deathbed, she would rush to his side. She doesn't. He comes Uh. out of this. (laughs) She comes out of this laudanum haze. Uh, It ends the relationship. It ends the relationship with um, with uh, uh, Annie Richmond. And four days later, Poe shows up blackout drunk at Sarah Helen Whitman's door in the middle of the night trying to get her to marry him. Right. So just desperately flailing about for any woman who might be able to save him from falling into the abyss of his own despair for a minute. Right. And you got to feel for him. I mean, he lost he's had it all lost it all. Like it's it's. You have to imagine how like he's already a man. I mean, the poor guy, he lost his kid, both parents when he was three, got kicked around by this foster father. He should have had the biggest uh, inheritance in the history of Virginia. And that didn't happen because according to him, his foster father's an asshole. He's just as talented as Longfellow, but that guy's sitting in a chair at Harvard with a wealthy wife. His young wife has been coughing up blood for the last five. It's a tough to be Edgar Allan Poe. Like it's not a, it's like I said, I, you wouldn't trade your life for his, you know, very, very few people would. Um, he keeps writing in his final year. He writes a story called uh, Malonia Tata, which is a very prescient science fiction story we'll talk about in the After Dark. He writes Hot Frog, which we read at the very uh, top of the episode. Um, he writes some love poems, a sonnet for uh, his Aunt Marie Clem. Now, in June of 1849, Poe traveled south, uh, intending to uh, to lecture on a lecture tour starting in Richmond. Um, he... Uh, 
He stops in Philadelphia on the way to Richmond, gets drunk, gets loses his briefcase, gets locked up in prison where he undergoes his first attack, supposedly, of delirium tremens, has visions of being boiled alive in a cauldron, visions of watching Aunt Maria torn to shreds. Um, when he finally does come out of it, he gets off of all charges because somebody in the court recognized him as Edgar Allan Poe, the poet. And they send him on his way. But now he's more paranoid than ever. Something really cracked in his brain. He's He constantly thinks that people are out to get him. People are trying to kill him. It takes him two weeks to get down to Richmond, only to discover that his planned lecture was in the suitcase that he lost. Now, he spends a week in Richmond. And we have to remember, he's sort of from Richmond, Virginia. He visits with his, his doting and kind of backward and somewhat deranged sister, Rosalie. She, I think she was like mentally handicapped, but it's never laid out, his, his younger sister. Um, Poe tries to hook up with his youthful love, um, Elmira Royster. This was the girl he was sort of engaged to as a teenager. He almost manages to pull this off, but it's just too problematic. Like, they both grown up. She was very religious. He wasn't religious at all. Her interests did not run to the literary. Um, she had grown children who were against the marriage. She'd been left a bunch of money and the extended family was concerned that he would try to get his hands on it. Um, he starts drinking again down there. He actually briefly joins the Richmond chapter of the Sons of Temperance. <laughs> <laughs> as, like, as like a show to like as a, just like as a goof yeah now she yeah. might have married him she she there are some suggestions that she might have married him she later claimed that she went to him in late september he stays in richmond for weeks um there's she later claims that she went to tell him in late september of 1849 that she would marry him but he had already left whether that's true or not who knows but he had left um he decided after some time in Richmond, though, that Poe did, that he was a Southern boy and he was going to go back to Richmond. But first, what he needed to do is he needed to kind of make a couple things happen. He wanted to go up to New York to get Aunt Maria put together once again to help her move down to Richmond. He's going to drag her back down to Richmond, right? Along the way, he stops off along the way from Richmond to Baltimore. He stops off for a few drinks. He arrives on September 28th. He supposedly meets some friends who insist that they have a sociable glass of whiskey. Um, supposedly, he hadn't had a drop to drink since he spent the night in Philadelphia. But there's conflicting stories about this. He spent the night in prison in Philadelphia. Whatever the case, between September 28th and October 3rd, 1849, no one has any idea what Poe was doing. The five-day gap, he gets off the train, drinks with friends, and then on five days later, on Wednesday, October 3rd, a young printer found and recognized, when he found him, the great Edgar Allan Poe, semi-conscious, on the ground, some people say in the gutter, outside the Irish Tavern, Gunner's Hall. He was dressed in a cheap palm-leaf hat, a second-hand coat of commonest alpaca, dingy and badly, badly fitting pants. His shirt was, quote, sadly crumpled and soiled, and he wore no vest nor neckcloth. He was wearing someone else's clothes. Now, I'm going to read. This is the last little bit I'm going to read from the bio because it summarizes all of this really, really well. Um, 
And there's a lot of mystery around this. We'll talk about that a little bit. I think people like to make it more of a mystery than it really is, to be honest. Like anytime there's unanswered questions, like people want to populate that with all kinds of stuff. I don't think it's really that that mysterious. But nonetheless, let me read this little bit. Um, so Poe didn't know somebody, the, the printer asked Poe if there, he knew anybody locally who could help him. And, and Poe had called out for this guy named Snodgrass, who was a doctor and a writer, but also like a temperance activist. Um, okay. Uh, Snodgrass quote, Snodgrass also noted that Poe's face was haggard, not to say bloated and unwashed, his hair unkempt and his whole physique repulsive as a strict temperance advocate. Snodgrass could not resist using the sad example of Poe to emphasize with clinical precision, the evils of of alcohol. Right. So he goes on about that for a while. Now they get him to a hospital. Quote, Poe was cared for there by John Moore, uh, John Moran, the resident physician. He was confined in a prison-like room with barred windows that resembled the grim cells, chambers, vaults, and tombs of Poe's most lurid stories and placed in the turret of the building with the other alcoholic patients. According to Dr. Moran, quote, when brought to the hospital, Poe was unconscious of his condition, who brought him in or with whom he had been associating and remained in that state for the next 10 hours. After that, he suffered the same hallucinations he had encountered in Philadelphia. He experienced a, quote, tremor of the limbs and at first a busy but not violent or active delirium, constant talking and vacant converse with spectral and imaginary objects on the walls. His face was pale and his whole person drenched in perspiration. Uh, a little bit further down. Um, he regains consciousness. He thought Virginia was still alive. He didn't know what happened to his clothes. Quote, Moran tried to convince him that he would recover, but horrified by his degradation, Poe exclaimed that, quote, the best thing his best his best friend could do would be to blow out his brains with a pistol. Um, he at one point, he calls out for somebody named Reynolds. People think that this is uh, the author of a book he may have may have reviewed. Um, and then uh, let's see. Hmm. <clears throat> When describing his last days, Moran attributed to Poe some uncharacteristic religious last words, supposedly spoken before the fever called, quote, the fever called living was conquered at last. This is Moran talking. Um, Let's see. When I returned, I found him in a violent delirium, resisting the efforts of two nurses to keep him in bed. This state continued until Saturday evening. He was admitted on Wednesday when he commenced calling for one Reynolds, which he did through the night up to three on Sunday morning. At this time, a very decided change began to affect him. Having become enfeebled from exertion, he became quiet and seemed to rest for a short time. Then gently moving his head, he said, Lord, help my poor soul and expired. So, uh, right. October, uh, 5th, I believe, or is it October 8th? of 1849 october 7th 1849 poe dies fairly mysterious consequences there's been a lot of ink spilled about what was happening in that time um in when he you know those three or five days in which nobody knew where he was um some people have said i mean alcohol seems to have clearly been involved some people have said that he was the victim of something called cooping I don't know if people have heard of this. It's this this 
it's basically a, a form of electoral fraud where like press gangs will go around and sort of kidnap people and like force them to vote sure. multiple times. You're going to vote. You're going to vote good and hard and you're going to vote early and often. Right. And and this would explain why he was in different clothes, because you'd make him vote and then you come back, he'd change his clothes, you'd make him go vote again. And the idea is you'd get plied with alcohol or you'd get beaten to do it. I suppose that's possible. I don't think there's any way to really know. It was October 3rd was an election day or one of those days and there was an election day. Um, some people have said that he may have had a head injury. I find that sort of unlikely because... I think the doctors would have known there was a head injury. I mean, I guess not. You could have a close like head internal, injury. Yeah. It seems sort of I mean, is the, is the sort of going idea that he he died from like uh detox? He did like he, alcohol. Yeah. yeah. See, I think I think there's that. Now Jeffrey Myers claims that there's some evidence that Edgar Allan Poe is a diabetic and alcohol can really screw with your insulin levels and it's very possible that he went to insulin shock and 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 a diabetic coma. I mean, to me some of that's like medical nuance. I mean, it, I think however you cut it, he drank himself to death, I think. Um, there is a suggestion apparently, um, at one point in the nineties, there was a pathologist and sometimes apparently like in medical, I don't know if they're doing this in medical journals or at conferences, pathologists like to play a little game where you get somebody's symptoms and then you have to say what they had. It's a sort of a professional mm -hmm. game kind of, right? Yeah. Um, you've got a, you've got a terrible case of Rufus syndrome. You keep, you keep, <laughs> you keep interrupting women on the first date. <laughs> Uh, this guy right. over here, he's got right. a terrible case of podcaster syndrome. He won't <laughs> shut up. Yeah. Now there's, uh, so in one of these cases, somebody, uh, a doctor was given, a cardiologist was given Poe's symptoms and he said that Poe had rabies. Um, hmm. there's not much, I mean, I'm no doctor. So what do I know? Um, whatever the case, the man is dead. Um, he's, of course, well-remembered now uh, in, uh, by Baltimore. Uh, there's a statue. Uh, the football team is the Ravens, or the Vikings. Uh, <laughs> but in some ways, uh, despite the celebration of at least some of his writing, it did take a while for Poe to be recognized. Um, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. Part of the reason that Poe for a long time was not well-respected in America or well-respected as he became, and part of the reason people thought he was insane, and frankly, he was kind of insane, but the reputation was that he was an opium-addicted madman with violent tendencies. I don't think that's fair. I think he suffered from depression. He was an imaginative genius who could not suffer living in his head anymore. That's the way I take it. But part of the reason his reputation suffered so bad is Rufus Griswold became his literary executor probably because his um, Aunt Maria Clem, who was still around, was looking for somebody in the literary world to take care of it. And she he didn't had understand. no will. She didn't understand all the nuances of the New York literary. He, she just knew Rufus Griswold as a guy... He's sure. he's has Poe's old job. Can he do it? And then Griswold wrote a scathing obituary that was Ugh. printed and reprinted and reprinted. So anyway, 
that's literally this guy extended it beyond the grave of the rivalry and that is the story of poe finally thanks to charles baudelaire and so many other people who came to love the writings of poe he he has been established uh his reputation has been established in the appropriate place and at time of recording the baltimore ravens football team yeah are at the top of the afc north with a schedule of five and two, it's the five and two Baltimore Ravens. Wow. And I, I do have to say it is very cool that we have a football team in America named after a poem. That is pretty Wait. cool. Yeah, yeah, that is cool. Yeah, agreed. Banger. Thank you, Brad. Ooh. Core episode in the can. Lots of fun. I learned a lot. We had some laughs. Now we know what Rufus syndrome is. We also, <laughs> we got a, we got a new shirt. Yeah, uh, we got we got new merch at some point. Yeah. We're going to have to make uh, become wayward. I I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. I think the the episode's going to be called uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Wayward Demons. Uh, okay, if, all if right. You're, not, does that work for good, you? That's good with me. Yeah, we're going to do more on the after dark. You tease yes, that yes, in sir. a second. Every episode we do, Patreon people get a bonus episode. I imagine this one will go a little long. Mm. Those are usually 20, 30, 40 minutes. Uh, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. But got to ask the closing question. Brad, what do you think uh, EAP would be doing yeah. if he was alive today in his prime? What do you think? I think he would have, I think he would have uh, kept writing. I, I unfortunately think that, do you remember when we we did the, um, the Lucy and Desi episode um, and at one point, Lucy said about Desi, she, she said he was a very talented guy and a very lovely man, but he was a loser. And it was mm. sort of like, well, what do you mean by that? And she's like, he just had to lose. He would not let himself win. And I think that's where you get with Poe. I think mm. talent, he would have invented four more new genres. You know, he would have kept producing and it never would have quite worked for him because he wouldn't let it. But he'd be a genius and he'd produce works of genius, but it would never coalesce into a better life for him. Yeah, it would never make him wealthy or even just like a, a broken, good standard of living. Yeah. Broken like a broken soul. And and who can blame him for you lose both your parents in your, you know, in your youth like yeah. that. I mean, obviously we love a story of like an Annie. Hey, I overcome right. it. I'm an orphan and I overcame right. Here's here's one who he did in a sense he left us this magnificent work that influenced yeah. and continues to influence uh, people, but there's just fundamentally a certain degree of pain that uh, is almost impossible to overcome. What a yeah. story, Brad! Yeah. Riveting. Our first orphan, uh, yeah. great American author. We're going to yeah. come back on the uh, after dark. What are we going to talk about there? We are going to talk about the story of Melanta Tanta. Poe's most prescient and most unusual and most overlooked short story. And we're going to talk about the scandal that there were a lot of reasons, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back, getting Poe effectively booted out of the New York literati. Where can people hear that? Uh, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We're going to be back. Thank you all for listening. Uh, in the meantime, I got a really weird rash. This just popped up. So I think my I think my Rufus syndrome is really starting. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> I gotta that's get, never, get this, that's never gotta, good. Gotta go get this check. <laughs> oh, it's not rabies. <laughs> Nevermore. <laughs> <laughs>